Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History, History, and True History, History of Nassar. Infinite blessings at this most sacred time. We are here on the Saturday before the 1st of May, which is known as the Beltane Festival. It is the cross point between the spring equinox and the summer solstice, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today and do a special Beltane prayer. In addition, it is um, St. Germain's Ascension Day. St. Germain had incarnated as St. Joseph, the one that we know as the stepfather of, of uh, the uh, being Yeshua, Jesus. Um, in any case, um, it is um, St. Joseph the Worker Day, and so it is celebrated by um, uh, labor and workers all across the world. Um, so it's a very, very significant date. In addition to this, this is our final Saturday program, before the full moon on May 5th. I'm, I men- I've mentioned in the past that um, the, the full moon in May, uh, usually in May, under um, Taurus is the Scorpio full moon. And this year, of course, we have the lunar eclipse along with it, and it falls on the 5-5 portal May 5th, where, which is celebrated as Cinco de Mayo, in many, many places, so we have a lot of attention on this full moon. And the spiritual hierarchy does consider this Wesak full moon, the Wesak festival, the uh, festival of the Buddha on the full moon um, in uh, Scorpio to be the holiest time of the year. So we have a lot of assistance coming toward us, and we're going to celebrate these energies in advance here, we'll be also celebrating on my Sunday and Monday Ascension calls. So it's a powerful, powerful week ahead. And we will celebrate. We'll do a, a Wesak Festival ceremony on Saturday the 6th, okay, the day after the full moon. And, of course, we know our full moons and our, of course, our eclipses uh, energy lasts a very, very long time. But um, we can tap into those energies three days before, three days afterwards, we'll celebrate Wiesnach on next Saturday. So let's go into our heart center first. And going into the heart center, we call forth the full integration of our soul, our higher self, our monad, our mighty I am presence often referred to as well as our planetary Christ presence. All the way through our multidimensional being, we're calling in every aspect of our multidimensionality through to our God presence and goddess presence. See yourself in a beautiful, beautiful pillar of light extending directly from source into the heart of Mother Earth. This is an important time to connect with Mother Earth as well. 
And so we are bringing in the violet flame of St. Germain for transmutation in through and around us. We'll be doing a lot of work with the violet flame here today. But let's bring it within and around us and see our pillar of white light also filled, our pillar filled with white light above and below us. And we're going to call on everyone to join us in this ascension work, in this activity to bring heaven on earth. We call forth everyone across the planet. We do so with the following prayer. So please repeat after me. I am I, I am present. As my I am present, I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. Take a nice deep breath and start feeling everyone connecting. Allow yourself to expand your heart and connect heart to heart. High heart to high heart. Cosmic heart to cosmic heart. With every single soul across the planet. And we see them also in their pillar of light. If we invite them to help us anchor heaven on earth. So we call forth for one and all, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic. All of our ancestors. All of our genetic lineage. Our ancestral lineage. All the generations past, all the generations forward. We call forth all of our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pots. We welcome all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the bird kingdom, the fairy kingdom, the elemental kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all angelic healers and healing teams. We welcome the assistance of all of the Ascended Master Realms, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Light Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams. If we ask to be overlighted by St. Germain and all those of the Violet Ray, we call in our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light Healing Team, especially those that we work so closely with, from Arcturus, 
from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus, and from Lyra as well. And all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service. We welcome as well the entire company of heaven asking Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do. And magnify, magnify, magnify all that we do. 999 billion times, 999 billion times. In alignment with divine will and divine law. In divine order, the maximum that everybody can receive individually and collectively. We ask our, our Mother, Father, God to continue to bless us during this most holy week with the highest of blessings and dispensations and transformation, especially here as we work with the violet flame. We also call in all of the other rays and flames and universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively. The maximum that we can receive are expanding to perfection in every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our work field, multidimensionally, on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well. We call in everyone from our circle of support. From the very first name that created it, to every man, woman, and child, every family member, loved one, every friend, every neighbor, every pet, every animal, every group, every organization, every institution, everything that's in the news, every nation, every military, every government, the legislative aspect of each government, each Congress, each level of government on national, state, and local levels, each legislature, each parliament, and all the laws, and all the laws being considered, the executive aspect of each government, and all decision makers, every president, every prime minister, every cabinet post, everyone who makes decisions, and all of the judicial aspect of each government, the Supreme Court here in the U.S., and every every federal court, every state court, every local court, every municipal court, um, every um, in every state, in every province, in each and every nation, and all the juries and grand juries and prosecutions and prosecutors and um, court cases, everything of a legal matter and all judicial decisions as we ask the goddess of justice. The goddess of justice is also overlighting us and working with us during this month of May. We ask her for the highest decisions and, and divine justice in every situation. 
and we hold that in our circle of support. As we hold our, our weather patterns and our climate change and our um, uh, extreme weather conditions and everything else, as we move into this uh, time of belting to honor Mother Earth, to bring forth the perfection of Earth as we hold everyone and everything, every situation, every condition of life in the circle of support, holding that picture of heaven on earth, holding everything as divine blueprint. And we call for the Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc seals multidimensionally, through her ley lines and song lines, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system, and through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire, as well as every portal, every vortex, every monument, every sacred sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light. As we continue up the spiral of evolution, on this ascension path with Mother Gaia, she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. We ask for everything to be magnified and placed in our collective cup of consciousness the energy of the new moon solar eclipse that we went through, the energies of Easter and all that we've celebrated in the month of, of April, including uh, Ramadan and Passover and Easter Sunday, all of the attention given to those events and the attention given to Beltane across the world, the attention given to the full moon, lunar eclipse coming up, as I said, that falls on the 5-5 portal. So the, if they're focused on the 5-5 portal, we want their energy. Focused on the Beltane, we want that energy. Focused on St. Germain, we want that energy. And... So, of course, the wonderful festival of Wesak, the festival of the Buddha. We call in all of that energy to work with us here today in our collective cup of consciousness for the transformation of this planet, for the ascension of this planet, each individual on the planet, and the creation of heaven on earth in its full manifestation. And we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. So as we work in this uplifted frequency, I'm going to share a little bit about Beltane. As we greet the midpoint, this is the midpoint between spring and summer, at least in the northern hemisphere, and in the, in the lower hemisphere, it would be the um, fall and winter. So we are celebrating the ancient Celtic festival of Beltane. And this is a joyous way to invite pleasure and connection into our lives. Beltane is also known as May Day, falling on the 1st of May. It is a cross-quarter festival that marks the midpoint between the spring equinox and summer solstice. In Celtic traditions, it also means the beginning of the abundant, bright, beautiful summer season. So it's about abundance as well. And I just wanted to mention that the cross point 
are considered by some to be even more powerful than the uh, Solstice and Equinox Festival. So, Beltane is related to the Hawthorne tree. So, celebrations have always included decorating the May tree, usually a hawthorn, by dancing around it while holding colorful ribbons. The hawthorn tree is sacred in that it represents the three faces of the goddess. So, this is also considered, in many ways, a goddess festival. So, we welcome the goddess, we welcome the divine uh, feminine within ourselves to blossom over this um, spring and summer. So in the winter, the hawthorn tree is gnarled and ancient-looking, representing the wisdom of the crone. In the spring, it bursts with beautiful flowers, representing the fresh possibilities of the maiden. In late summer and fall, it produces bright red berries, representing the fertility and abundance of the mother. Hawthorn is also known as the fairy tree, as it is said to be sacred to the fairy folk. So this is another thing to remember. This is a really powerful time. The veils are the thinnest, like in like in uh, sewing in uh, November 1st, you know, six months later. So at this time, the veils are the thinnest between humanity and the fairy realm, all of the Divic kingdom, okay? So it's a good time to connect with your fairy energy within yourself and the fairies that assist us in our creation of the world. So Beltane is one of those times, it is believed, when the veils between the worlds, so specifically the fairy world and our, our world, thin a little bit. Treating the hawthorn tree with respect and reverence is a good way to keep the fairies on your side. Beltane bonfires and blessings for marriage. So traditionally, again, this is a little history, traditionally May Day was a time to get out of the house and celebrate with your neighbors. Bonfires were lit. So it's a huge symbol of the Beltane, is the bonfire, representing the new heat and energy of the summer season. And we're walked around or even left over for good, good luck and to cleanse any stagnant energy from the winter season. It was also a time for young people to meet in court so they could be wed in June, the month for marriage, named after Juno, the goddess of marriage, among other things. So Beltane is an ancient festival. It's um, often celebrated by modern pagans, but even without the official name and celebrations of this date, this time of the year is very powerful, and its spiritual meaning is accessible to anyone who's interested in experiencing The beginning of May feels like a gift for many of us. April showers have mostly finished, and the world takes on an abundance of beauty as sunshine and flowers surround us. We are invited outside to enjoy the bright half of the year, which is a time for connecting with the magic of the natural world, especially that of plants, flowers, animals, the sun, and the earth. It is a time to reconnect with our bodies, the food we eat, the flowers we smell, the sunshine on our skin, and the sensual joys of being a human in a body. So how to celebrate Beltane, even if you don't want to jump over a bonfire, decorate a hawthorn tree, or throw flowers over your doorstep. 
this is a wonderful time for small rituals that can help you connect with the spiritual meaning of Beltane. So here are some ideas. Practice pleasure, especially the kinds of pleasure you can access outside. Go for a walk, smell the flowers, soak in the sunshine, spend time outdoors quietly watching the plants, observing the flowers, noticing any animals that show up, birds singing, squirrels hunting, or even your cat soaking up a sunbeam. Dance, move your body in gentle, loving, playful, and intuitive ways. Think of melting any stagnant places where the winter still sits within you. Eat mindfully, receiving the abundance of the earth. Traditionally, dairy from cows was particularly important at this time of the year, so you might enjoy some fresh yogurt or homemade ice cream. Enjoy flowers. Observe the flowers that are blooming in your area. Go ahead and pick some if it's safe and you have permission, or buy some cut flowers to place in your home. Invite the energy of color, light, and scent into your environment. So there are some, um, the sacred time of the year is also good for manifesting the beginning, especially relating to love, marriage, children, and abundance. And we're going to invite in the many goddesses with a little prayer in just a minute. But uh, we invite in the wild huntress Artemis, mother, queen, and magician Isis, sensual Aphrodite, magical Rhiannon, primal creatress Shakti, patron goddess of marriage Hera, Flower Queen Flora, Lover and Warrior Freya, and the Mayan fertility goddess Cochiquetl. So let's invite them in as we go ahead and um, begin our prayer work. Dear Artemis, Make my aim clear and true. Let me run free and wild like you. Dear Isis, help me heal my deepest wounds and create my life anew. Dear Aphrodite, let me embrace my body as my temple and enjoy life's sweetest pleasures. Dear Rihanna, Let me awaken my magic and wisdom that I may be the queen of my kingdom. Dear Shakti, awaken your primal power within me and rise in bliss within and through me. Dear Hera, bless me in sacred union with my beloved on earth as we dwell already in heaven. Dear Flora, crown me with a garland of flowers and bless me with beauty in all hours. Dear Freya, Help me know that it is safe and right for me to be lavished and ravished. Dear Katsukweto, help me conceive, nurture, and birth every dream within my heart. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We know the world is in need of continued transmutation, so we call in the highest frequencies of the 
solar crystalline diamond violet light. We call forth St. Germain and all of the beings of the violet fire to join us in these decrees. Let us begin by saying, in the name of the beloved, mighty, victorious presence of God, Goddess, I am in me, and my very own beloved, Holy Christ Self, I call to beloved St. Germain and all the angels of the seventh rite. And you can fill in your request. Let's make a request personally. You can also make a request planetarily. I ask you to, and fill in the blank, just take a moment to call in what it is that you would like to see transformed in yourself, in your body, in your relationships, in the relationships amongst all humans and all nations. Just hold that intention now. I ask that my call be multiplied and used to assist all souls on this planet who are in need. I thank you and I accept it done this hour in full power according to the will of God, Goddess. My deep breath. We're going to do some violet flame decrees. Now I know I carry the violet flame and I've taught others in class to become the violet flame. We can all hold that frequency. The more that we work with it, the more that we carry it. So let's imagine, again, imagine it in through and around you, in through and around every man, woman, and child. We can't just select one person to get it, but we can do everybody. We can do groups. We can do all government leaders. We can do um, all governments. We can do um, everyone on the planet. We can do our, our entire genetic lineage, okay? But not just one single person. So we just call it in for everyone and everything as we say, I am the violet flame in action in me now. I am the violet flame. To light alone I bow. I am the violet flame in mighty cosmic power. I am the light of God shining every hour. I am the violet flame blazing like a sun. I am God's sacred power freeing everyone. We know the violet flame is used for forgiveness. And so let's call it in for ourselves, but we call it in for ourselves, we call it in for every man, woman, and child. And let me speak as one voice for us all. I am forgiveness acting here, casting out all doubt and fear, setting everyone forever free with wings of cosmic victory. I am calling in full power for forgiveness every hour. To all life in every place, I flood forth forgiving grace. We're going to call in Arcturus to work with us of the violet ray. 
O Arcturus, blessed being bright, flood, flood, flood our world with light. Bring forth perfection everywhere. O hear our earnest prayer. Charge us with thy violet flame. Charge, O charge us in God's name. Anchor in us all secure. Cosmic radiance make us pure. O Arcturus, blessed Elohim, let all light all through us stream. Complement our soul with love from thy stronghold from above. Charge us with thy violet flame. Charge, O charge us in God's name. Anchor in us all secure. Cosmic radiance make us pure. O Arcturus, violet flame's great master, keep us safe from all disaster. Secure us in the cosmic stream. Help expand God's loving dream. Charge us with thy violet flame. Charge, O charge us in God's name. Anchor in us all secure. Cosmic radiance make us pure. O Arcturus, dearest Lord of might, by thy star radiance beaming bright, fill us with thy cosmic light. Raise, O raise us to thy height. And in full faith, I consciously accept this manifest, manifest, manifest. In full faith, I consciously accept this manifest, manifest, manifest. In full faith, I consciously accept this manifest, manifest, manifest. Right here and now with full power. Eternally sustained, all powerfully active. Ever expanding and world unfolding. Until all are holy ascended in the light and free. And we seal this by saying, Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. In the name of the beloved, mighty, victorious presence of God, I am in me. And in my very own Holy Christ self, beloved Lanello, the entire spirit of the great white brotherhood and world mother, elemental life, fire, air, water, and earth, I decree. O violet flame, come violet flames, it ends and around every molecule of life. Now blaze and blaze and blaze. O violet flame, come violet flame, to raise and raise and raise the earth and all thereon. The earth and all thereon. The earth and all thereon. O violet flame, come violet flame, now blaze and blaze and blaze. O violet flame, come violet flame to raise and raise and raise the children and their teachers, the children and their teachers, the children and their teachers. O violet flame, come violet flame, now blaze and blaze and blaze. O violet flame, come violet flame to raise and raise and raise the plants and all elemental creatures, the plants and all elemental creatures, the plants and all elemental creatures. O violet flame, <clears throat> come violet flame. Now blaze and blaze and blaze. O violet flame, come violet flame to raise and raise and raise. The air, the sea, the land. The air, the sea, the land. The air, the sea, the land. O violet flame, come violet flame. Now blaze and blaze and blaze. O violet flame, come violet flame to raise and raise and raise. 
Make all to understand. Make all to understand. Make all to understand. O violet flame, come violet flame, now blaze and blaze and blaze. O violet flame, come violet flame, to raise and raise and raise. Bless all by Amritas's hand. Bless all by Amritas's hand. Bless all by Amritas's hand. O violet flame, come violet flame, now blaze and blaze and blaze. O violet flame, come violet flame, to raise and raise and raise. I am, I am, I am. The fullness of God's plan, fulfilled right now and forever. I am, I am, I am. The fullness of God's plan, fulfilled right now and forever. I am, and I am, I am. The fullness of God's plan, fulfilled right now and forever. And in full faith, I consciously accept this manifest, manifest, manifest right here and right now. With full power. Eternally sustained, all powerfully active, ever expanding, and world unfolding until all are wholly ascended in the light and free. And we give thanks for this as we say, Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Keep blazing that violet fire. See it in turn around you, the planet, and all humanity. Radiant spiral. Violet flame, descend now, blaze through me. Radiant spiral, violet flame, set free, set free, set free. Radiant violet flame, O come, expand and blaze thy light through me. Radiant violet flame, O come, reveal God's power for all to see. Radiant violet flame, O come, awake the earth and set it free. Radiance of the violet flame, expand and blaze through me. Radiance of the violet flame, expand for all to see. Radiance of the violet flame, establish mercy's outpost here. Radiance of the violet flame, come transmute now all fear. And we give thanks for this. Breath of God inside each cell, I am the violet flame. Pulsing out the violet, the cosmic time, I am the violet flame. Energizing mind and heart, I am the violet flame. Sustaining God's creation now, I am the violet flame. With all love, with all love, with all love. Shimmering in a crystal cave, I am the violet flame. Searching out all hidden pain, I am the violet flame. Consuming cause and core of fear, I am the violet flame. Revealing now the inner name, I am the violet flame. With all peace, with all peace, with all peace. Flashing like a lightning bolt, I am the violet flame. Stretching through the galaxies, I am the violet flame. Connecting soul and spirit now, I am the violet flame. Raising you to cosmic heights, I am the violet flame. With all power, with all power with all power. <clears throat> Keep blazing that violet flame. Lovely God presence, I am in me. Hear me now, I do decree. Bring to pass each blessing for which I call upon the Holy Christ self of each and all. 
Let the violet fire of freedom roll round the world to make all whole. Saturate the earth and its people too with increasing Christ's radiance shining through. I am this action from God above, sustained by the hand of heaven above, of heaven's love, transmuting the causes of discord here, removing the cords so that none do fear. I am, I am, I am the full power of freedom's love, raising all earth to heaven above, violet fire now blazing bright, in living beauty is God's own light, which right now and forever sets the world, myself, and all life eternally free in ascended master perfection. And we decree, Almighty I am, Almighty I am, Almighty I am. Take a nice deep breath. As we say, Holy Christ, put a self in me, hear me now, I do decree. Let violet fire of freedom roll round the world to make all whole. Saturate the air, the sea, the land at St. Germain's divine command. Let wisdom reign, God power grow. Let love prevail and mercy flow. Let war now cease and evil bind. Reveal the truth to all humankind. Compel all leaders to be just, for liberty is now a must. Diffuse all plots. Expose all lies. Let Portia rule and justice rise. Now Zodkiel and Amethyst consume all darkness east and west. May anarchy and terror fail. God, government, and hope prevail. O violet fire of Amritas, now blaze with blessed aromasis. O masters, angels, now appear. We see perfection everywhere. We pray with you both near and far till earth becomes the freedom star. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We're going to close with one final prayer here. As we come back to ourselves, but we say this in the name of ourselves and the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. Blaze a vial of flame entering around you. As we say, mighty I am present, beloved God, goddess, Saint Germain, my heavenly source, and all the beings of the vial of fire. Please make manifest in me now the sacred violet flame of transmutation. Bring the violet flame into every cell, molecule, and atom of my body, filling me totally and completely and multidimensionally through all 12 layers of each cell, molecule, and atom. Blessed violet flame, blaze into my heart and expand out and around all of my body physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, and all of my light body, all of my multidimensional being, surrounding my entire being with your divine grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness. Transmute all karma, negative thoughts, actions, deeds, and energy that I have ever created in any time, space, or dimension, on any level, in all bodies, 
through all time, space, and dimension, past, present, and future, for all eternity. Transmute anything and everything that stands in my way of embodying the ascended Christ being that I am. Beloved violet flame, turn all that has been transmuted into the golden platinum light of God Goddess, the Christ Consciousness, the light of God Goddess that never, never, never fails. Send this golden platinum light to me now, filling and surrounding my entire body and being with its divine radiance. Raise my vibration and frequency to the highest level possible for me at this time. As we call this forth for ourselves, we call this forth in divine order for every man, woman, and child. So be it, and so it is. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Take a nice deep breath. We ask for this to be sealed. All of our work to be sealed in the violet light, the white light, the golden platinum light, and I, all of the highest celestial and angelic frequencies that will serve us individually and collectively on this planet. And allow yourself to experience the purification of this time, the purification of that Beltane fire, the purification of the um, violet flame, the ascension energy that St. Germain brings in. We celebrate his ascension as well. And all of the amazing transformation of the Weesock Festival and the blessings of Buddha and Maitreya and all of the hierarchy of light. Just breathe that in right now. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for their assistance. As I give thanks to you for your assistance and your divine service here this day. And I invite you to further divine service every Sunday and Monday for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. And we, it is a teleconference call, so you're calling in. If you're having problems with the line, please let me know. Someone just told me that their carrier um, is demanding a dollar per minute for those calls. Um, but there is an app. We had her use the app yesterday. You can get on by either by the internet as well. I'm going to give you that information in just a second. Okay, so so we meet every Sunday and Monday. We begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. It's about 25 minutes of greeting. We have about 20 minutes of updates from Taran Rama after that, and we begin our work of, of bringing heaven to earth, letting ourselves be that vehicle for anchoring heaven on earth, and all of the golden age and all of the aspects of Nasara and all of the blessings that we are meant to be experiencing. We begin our work promptly at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time. The phone number to dial, the number that we've been recommending is area code 
The access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. This is through free conference. So you can look up on your app store free conference and download it on your phone, and it goes through the Internet. So to my knowledge, I haven't heard back from them with answers on this, but to my knowledge, you shouldn't be charged because you're going through the Internet. The same thing with um, if you want the um, link to get on on your computer, just contact me. I also have international numbers. I also have numbers throughout the, the country. So I'm, I just asked them for an updated list of that. So contact me at Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. And I'll get you that listing of all the updated numbers and all of the updated information. So we, we can't be stopped, okay? We know this is our time. This is what we came here to do. And I ask you to come and be in divine service. And at this time, we're going to thank uh, Tara and Rama for their divine service. Thank Rainbow for her divine service. I thank you all. My um, love and blessings go with you on this most sacred and holy week. So celebrate Beltane, celebrate St. Germain and all the blessings that he's given us, and celebrate Lord Buddha and all of the blessings of the Wesak Festival, the holiest time of the year, and come join us next week as we celebrate Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. We'll be celebrating Wesak um the end of the week and and our Sunday and Monday calls after that. So infinite blessings, magic and miracles to each of you. Uh, my love and gratitude goes with you and I pass the talking stick to uh, Rainbird. Rainbird, thank you. Yeah, Much love and gratitude. I pass this beautiful talking stick. Mostly violet flame, but we've got a lot of dairy energies with us here today too. So love and blessings. Thank you, Cheryl. I'll take that talking stick. <clears throat> yeah, I think those fairies really like this maple idea. So there's that, and it's definitely a lot of wild crying here. So thank you for this talking stick. Thank you for your divine service. We're so grateful for you and what you bring for the world this way. So lots of gratitude. And I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. And each week we need 300 and some dollars around that. So this month it's been $316.50. And and we're behind a week. So we need $316.50 for last week and for this week. And that comes to $633. That's a momentous number. It's got a lot of energy in it with this threes and six and I know we can just gather that energy and <laughs> and make it happen. So let's go into your heart space. See what is yours to give. And then go to bbsradio.com and what you're looking for is the schedule there at the top of the page. 
You'll see the schedule, the menu for the shows. And for this program on Saturdays, it's Radio Station 2. Click on Radio Station 2 and you'll see this program listed at the 3.30 hour. That's the central time zone. And it is a true history, history in this era and our galactic origins with Tara and Rama. So you click on that icon there and it'll take you directly to our account with BBS Radio. We're using your bank card. You can make a donation in any amount. Thank you for your generosity. And we have two other programs you can look for the icons there, and that's on Radio Station 1 on Thursday nights at the 8 o'clock hour. You'll find, um, oh, yeah, at night at the round table with the panel. And so there you go. That's, as you click on that icon there, that'll take you directly to our um, donation page. <laughs> our account with EBS Radio, and you can donate there in any amount using your bank card. And then on Fridays at the 8 o'clock hour, the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. Click on that icon. That'll take you there, too. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action and making those donations so we can get caught up and be in good way with EBS uh, Radio. And so thank you for participating in that way. We're also assisting Tyre and Rama with their needs. And this week they need to pay their bills. They've got bills coming due of $400 worth. And those need to be paid. And they also have $496 that they need to pay ET, their mechanic. And the mechanic is saying, he's starting to say your brakes are not lasting that long. So let's get this that paid for before we have to do something else. And because he might not do anything else if we can't pay our bills. So take that to heart. Let's see what we can do to make that $400 that we owe him happen. And then we also, Rama needs to fix a spare tire, which is a spare. That means he's not running on a tire that's, that's, that's good. All his tires are good. He just wants a little peace of mind to get that tire, spare tire fixed in case something happens. So that makes it $496 that we're needing for ET. And then they have living expenses. They need to feed those kitties and then their their own bellies. And they've got to uh, buy all the, all the household things that show up that you need. So $200 will cover that. And uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for assisting in that way for Tara and Rama. So, um, there you go. That's just $1,100 <laughs> for Tara and Rama. Not bad. Here's how we make a donation. You want to go to the web address to access the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. So, you do that by going to rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the homepage, you click on that menu grid. And it'll drop down a menu, and near the bottom of that list, you see the Donate button. Click on that, and that links you to the PayPal account for the Rainbow Roundtable, where you can make that donation there. And if you look on that Payment Option list, you'll see a heart. And that's where you click to access the Friends and Family option, where they just, uh, as you enter the email that's there, then... Um, 
yeah, you don't have to pay the commercial charges for the Rainbow Round Cable. So it makes it for a friendly, user friendly too. So click on that and you need to, this is the email you want to put in there. Koran, K O R A N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And that works perfect. So thank you for taking that action. And uh, let's see, what else? Oh, yeah, as you're taking that action, uh, let Rama know that you sent him something, and when you sent it, in that email for Rama for that personal information is Koran, K-O-R-E-N, 999-39, at Comcast.net. So let him know what you sent, when you sent it, and... Then, as you need it, the, the mailing address is as follows. Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567, zip code, I'll say it again. Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. There you have it. All the information. And, yeah, remember that violent frame? We're celebrating all this this amazing time and eclipses and all this energy coming in. Let's let's send a little forward. It agrees the wheels for Tara and Rama and, and for our account at BDS. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thirteen thank yous and honey in the heart. Long life. Live long and prosper. And I'm passing this talking stick, and it is definitely full of the violet flame. It's almost on fire. (laughs) And it's very violet. Violet. (laughs) And it's got lots of fairies and feathers. They are celebrating the May Day, so the Maypole is there, and all the streamers with all the rays of the rainbow and their healing in their healing qualities and then lots and lots and lots of gemstones around that circle, around that maypole. And all those healing ones. So greetings, Tara and Rama with all the magical people and in kingdom coming along on this talking stick. Here comes this talking stick. Greetings. Greetings, greetings, everyone. Whoops. Happy Delta. Oh, got to click the line a bit somewhere over there. Commanders, whoever's finding this work. Oh, that's the voice mechanic. Don, can you uh, make it so it doesn't echo? There we go. Thank you. All right. Um, so where are we, Commander, on this fine day? Belting the eclipse coming up. I can say that the energies are as high as Cosmic law will allow, and it, you can't it, say that every day. <laughs> it, it is because that's the, fifth, the way it the, is. Fifth dimension is 
being fully anchored, and at the same time, it's quite a drama unfolding. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, the Army of the Dead is, uh, you know, blaze of violent fire is, you know, thank you, Cheryl, thank you, Rainbird. It's quite a experience to be here. I saw 15 deer today that ate the compost and 10 crows and they had a good time. And the only message I got was that the solar flares continue to increase exponentially and the Schumann resonance is way up there. And call in the forces of light. Like we're being told, um, you can, you can call in the unicorns too because they are real. Yes. They are all over this planet, but they usually show up with beings that recognize them as well. So got to work on that. Yeah. It's, uh, there's a couple of books we have that are so wonderful, but there's all these photographs of real unicorns uh, with people in them who have been taking the pictures, etc. And there's a whole story about each incident. There's unicorns I have known by Robert Vavra. D-A-V-R-A. If you want to get a good gift for anybody for a birthday or any kind of thing like that, that would be an absolutely stupendous gift have. I think it might be that it's uh, a rare thing now. Uh, you just got to look for, they show, you tell you where to call for something that's kind of rare. So you might, yeah, have to look for that. But I think that it would be great to get those things out there again. The unicorn book. Unicorns I have known and What's the other one, Rama? Unicorns of Kilimanjaro. Yes. K-I-L-A-M-A-N-J-A-R-O. That's a mountain. Uh, see, it's at the southern part of, of Egypt and, uh, I think it's still in Egypt, yeah. Mount Kilimanjaro, but you can find it if you look it up on a map. And Robert Vava climbed all the way to the top of that mountain. And he took pictures of um, a unicorn. There's a, a, a bit of a lake up there. And he took a picture of a unicorn drinking water side by side with a lion. And they just knew each other, recognized each other, and they were just having a little sip of the water. Wow. <laughs> And so, yes, and uh, to get the water, invoke pure, pure, pure clean water everywhere. I know we're going to, we are getting galactic help to clean the uh, the air, the water. Oh, Rhombus got something we can start with. Tell everybody. This got. is a message from Aurora Ray in the Pleiadians talking about what we're calling in now. How long is that, darling? Oh, uh, seven minutes. All right, here we go. 
Pleiadian message for humanity. Dear beloved ones, today I'd like to share a wonderful message from the Pleiadians that I got. It's always important to keep your vibration high and get messages from the universe in order to receive the highest vibrations within ourselves. All we have to do now is keep our eyes open and keep moving forward, learning and growing spiritually. That is why I am sharing this message. Dear Earthlings, we are the Pleiadians, and our home planet is the Pleiades, a star system of seven planets located in the constellation of Taurus. We are vastly spread out across the universe and have colonized many worlds. We were once united, but now we are separated into 13 different colonies. We have been watching you for some time now, and we have decided to make our presence known in a very special way. We come in peace. We are from the future, and we are here to assist you in your ascension process. We are sending you this. message through this channel because we have been waiting for a very long time to contact you. Reality is not what it seems to be, and there are many beings like us who have been communicating with you since your beginnings. Please share this message with everyone else who cares about the fate of humanity. The reason why we have been contacting you is that we want you to understand that your reality is not what it seems to be that there is much more than what you see on a daily basis. There are ancient ruins on Earth that show evidence of civilizations existing before yours and that there was a huge catastrophe that destroyed most life on Earth and almost destroyed the planet itself. Your history has changed according to your needs. So, some things have been erased from history while others have been kept in order for humans to grow spiritually. We know that many people do not believe in us or in extraterrestrial beings, but we are here nonetheless. We want to create a loving alliance with humanity in order to help accelerate your spiritual growth. Your planet is at a crossroads where it can either ascend into a higher dimension or continue to spiral downward into doom and destruction. You have created a magnificent civilization and have been at the forefront of exploration and scientific achievement for many centuries. But you have also created terrible weapons that could destroy your planet many times over, and now they are being used. You live in a time when humans still believe that they are alone in the universe, even though evidence has long since shown that another life exists. You can see our ships in the sky everywhere if you want. Sometimes they are transparent, sometimes they are visible, and sometimes they are invisible. There is no need to hide them because they are here to help you and your Mother Earth. Over the past few years, we have shown you our ships from time to time and hope that you have been enjoying them. Now we are preparing for our landing on the planet Earth. We would like to invite you to be part of the experience with us. We are here now to assist you in your awakening process. We wish for you to join us in celebration of the greatest event in your planet's history. As always, we come with peace and love in our hearts. This is not a war, but a great awakening. Whatever happens, it will be a smooth transition for everyone. 
We are here to assist you in every way possible. Our fleet is much closer to your planet now, and the shift in energy is already being felt. Some people are already experiencing the effects of this new energy. We will land on your planet with our huge mothership. It will be so large that it can cover a small city, like Washington, D.C., in its shadow. Your scientists know that everything is made up of atoms, right? Our mothership contains atoms far more organized than any you have ever seen or imagined before. The mothership is made of special materials that are not available on your planet. It will emit a beautiful, angelic glow and be surrounded by clouds of multicolored lights and sounds. These lights and sounds will connect with the DNA of all living things on Earth and lift them into higher levels of consciousness, activating the higher chakras in each human being. When the mothership lands, our first act will be to hug everyone on Earth and share greetings from our star brothers and sisters who have visited your planet in the past. We love you very much. We are already in connection with your Ascended Masters, who made their crystalline bodies a long time ago. They will meet us on our arrival as well. When we meet your leaders and officials, we will greet you with great honor, as we are a peaceful civilization. We will land in your area and come down to greet you personally. We will introduce ourselves and answer any questions that you may have. We will be bringing a special gift for all of your pets as well. On our arrival, we will emit a 5D omnipotent energy, which is a high-frequency wave that will refresh and awaken every aspect of your being and allow you to embrace new possibilities in your life. Your DNA will change from a carbon base to a crystalline base in a moment. We welcome all of Earth's inhabitants and their pets to join us on the beautiful ship. The best way to prepare for our arrival is to be in a good mood. Be happy and laugh a lot. Be nice to each other and help the people around you. Right now, your attitude towards other people is important. Experience the feeling of being in this higher vibration as often as possible. If you can do it, it will become easier every day. This is a time where the higher vibrations take over. Now is the time to dream big and create the reality you desire. It's time to get happy and have fun. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. That was wonderful, Rama. Yeah. I could um, I could say that was a good place to start. Mm-hmm. And I think one you want to do uh, Mr. Doty. What's his name? Um, Richard Doty. Special agents in the shadows. Yeah. Is there something there that says a little more about that? Um, well, you got a little more than I do to read there. No, I don't. I just put some words down. I don't, oh. I don't have anything. Oh. 
uh, Richard Doty is at the Awakening Conference in Blackpool, England, talking about special operations, ETs, UAPs, counterintelligence, disinformation campaigns, and what missions humans of Earth are working on in the shadows. And in a certain sense, the black budget, deep state. And there are things that Dr. Greer has said about Richard Doty that Dr. Greer agrees to disagree with Richard Doty, yet I believe Richard Doty is walking a fine line with what he knows and what he can't say because he's seen stuff. Um, yeah, and it's the same thing with Dr. Greer. Yeah. So we'll just listen with our hearts, and Rama, if you have anything you want to say, and you've been up and down and all around more than most of us. Yeah. I, uh, you can just stop that and say something, you know. Yes. So we'll witness this. Okay. And tonight's the uh, White House Correspondents' Dinner. We'll see what that looks like. Mm. Here we go. Here we go. It's coming. There we go. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to take you on a ride today. I'm going to take you on a uh, espionage, counterintelligence, some might call disinformation uh, ride with Paul Benowitz. It's a little uh, humor I always like to start my presentations off with. And um, But we're going to talk about this guy, Paul Benowitz. It's probably one of the most uh, known about secret government operations that I was involved with. And um, the operation was called Operation Seven Lambs. And we'll, we'll explain that in a little bit. First of all, about me, I'm not going to go into great details about myself. Most of you know who I am uh, and what I've done. But I come from a military family. My father was in the Air Force. Uh, he retired 33 years as a colonel. Uh, he was a pilot before he became an intelligence officer. Father shot down in Korea, uh, and after that he didn't fly again. But he went into intelligence. He didn't. He, he didn't delve into this game or this enigma of of UFO activities. He was a what we call a positive intelligence collector. He did that for his entire time, other than the, the time he spent as a pilot. But on the other hand, my uncle, my dad's brother, Major uh, <clears throat> Major Edward Doty, uh, was, in fact, a Project Blue Book investigator. Mm. Some of you will 
probably know about the Lonnie Zamora incident in Socorro, New Mexico, 1964. My uncle investigated that as Project Blue Book. And then there's my cousin, Richard Eldo. He was an operations officer for the Central Intelligence Agency. He's retired now also. And then David, who was Defense Intelligence Agency. So I came from somewhat of a, a, a intelligence background. And one of the uh, uh, questions I'm asked all the time was, did they recruit you into intelligence because my father, my uncle, and cousins were there? Well, you know, honestly speaking, I was never told that I was. But um, there were a lot of hints passed along during my career that, you know, you're, you're here because of your of your family. Okay, who am I? I served in active duty in the United States Air Force. I was in, um, again, in something uh, uh, specialized during my enlisted days in the Air Force, just four and a half years. I also was in the National Guard for a short period of time. Uh, I got out. Um, I went to college. Uh, and then I went back in, recruited in to the intelligence community. Um now, a lot of people don't realize that in the United States, uh, there's various intelligence agencies, but there, if you go into intelligence or counterintelligence, counterespionage, you're trained in one particular place, and that's the uh, intelligence operations course. And you go through a, a lot of training, a lot of vast amount of training. Uh, I was talking to some people earlier about some of the stupid things they did to us to to test us, test our abilities to concentrate on a particular matter without going to pieces. Uh, in my particular class, there was 60 uh, candidates that went through the class. Only 18 of us made it out of there. So it, it wasn't easy. Uh, it wasn't anything like SEAL training or anything like that, but it was still tough. Um, I stayed and I retired in what we call in the States as combined a government service. You, you serve so many times, your military uh, can count against civilian service. I also worked for a short period of time as an investigator for the New Mexico State Police. And then I went to work for Dr. Putoff at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Austin, Texas. A lot of that information that we gathered during that time period, can I can relate back to the subjects of UFOs or reverse engineering. But unfortunately, that's a private company, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit. It's a private company, and there's proprietary uh, safeguards. So I can't talk and disclose everything I did during that time period. And since then, I've worked for uh, a number of film companies. I've, I've been on the air a number of times. And then in 2017, um, I started uh, working for Gaia. I have approximately 25 episodes on Gaia. I want to thank Gaia. I want to thank Vitaly. I want to thank uh, this wonderful crowd out here. I mean, I've spoke to a lot of people out here, and it's it's a fantastic event, and, and I'm glad you're here. Okay, let's delve into Paul Benowitz. This, this operation I ran, and there were others involved in this, um, If once you hear and see this, you would swear this is a movie plot or a script for a movie. I don't think 
I don't think there's anybody out there, eh, maybe Steven Spielberg or maybe Sid Goldberg, my boss out here in the crowd, uh, might be able to write a script like that. But it has a little bit of everything. It contains espionage, sabotage, abductions, alien abductions, uh, and other strange phenomena, which uh, you probably won't even believe when I get into it. It includes real contacts, absolutely real proven contacts that Paul Benowitz had with ETs. And that will be discussed in a little bit. But anyways, um, most of this information hasn't been released. Uh, some of it has. I've given, I've given this a presentation, uh, several years ago, uh, but I didn't have a lot of the details because they were so classified. In 2019, uh, the, the Air Force and the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, released a lot of information about Paul Benowitz. Unfortunately, most of those are redacted, and I'm sure some of you researchers out here can relate to that. You get a document from the Central Intelligence Agency or CIA or Air Force or something, and most of it's blacked out. This one was, but you can fill in the blanks on a lot of these things. And I try to do that. Okay, who was Paul Benowitz? He was born in California. There we go. He was born in California in 1927. He grew up, uh, and at the age of 14, he moved to New Mexico. His father was a miner, uh, a lot of mining going on in New Mexico back in those days, uh, uranium mining. Uh, at the age of 17, he wandered away, Paul wandered away, went to California and joined the United States Coast Guard. Uh, this isn't during World War II. And Paul actually saw actions in, in and around the Pacific in the Coast Guard. A uh, few people realized that the Coast Guard was, in fact, a combat uh, organization attached to the Army during war. And so Paul saw action there. Paul attended college, got a bachelor's of science and engineering, went on and got a master's degree. And then he started his own laboratory in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's called Thunder Scientific Laboratories. It's right outside the gate, uh, the one of the main gates to Kirtland Air Force Base. He managed to get a, a contract to make temperature and humidity sensors for submarines. Paul's interest in UFOs began in New Mexico. He took his family on a trip to northern New Mexico, camping trip. Him and his family saw a UFO. Uh, not just one, but many. And Paul's story about this, uh, I wish I could tell you all of it, but I, I have limited time. Paul started reading everything he could about UFOs, what they were, where they came from. Paul joined MUFON, cause. Um, all the other UFO groups. In fact, he was the director of operations for MUFON in New Mexico for a number of years before this incident happened. Now, Paul lived in southeast Albuquerque, an area called Four Hills. And Four Hills is adjacent to Kirtland Air Force Base, perimeter Kirtland Air Force Base. I'm going to show you a map here in a little bit. And Paul's house was right on the perimeter. Now, inside this base, 
directly in view of Paul, was the largest nuclear weapons storage in the world, Manzano Base. It was called Manzano Weapons Storage Area, but in in actuality, it was a nuclear weapons storage area. Uh, They built it in the 50s, uh, dug it out of the mountain, and they put together both the fission and the fusion nuclear weapons inside that mountain. Paul was also a camera buff, amateur uh, photographer. He saw some things flying around Curlin, didn't know what they were, so he set up his camera out in his patio, uh, brand-new AE-1 camera. This is in 1979. Uh, some of the older people here probably can remember what a Canon AE-1 is. And uh, other other electronic uh, gathering and, and, and scientific devices. Now, he was a scientist, so he knew how to collect signals, frequencies, uh, radiation, electromagnetic waves, and he had all these monitors out in his patio. He directed his camera and the equipment towards the base, not necessarily Manzano, but just the base. Also inside this base was a very, very extremely sensitive area. It was, it was called the Starlight Complex. Starlight Complex was a national security agency. That's another intelligence agency in the United States that uh, collected signal intelligence, electronic intelligence uh, for the, for, for the intelligence community. They had a, a special laser out there at that base in that complex. And we're going to, I'm going to talk about that in a bit and exactly what that did. Paul started collecting all these strange signals, started photographing these strange lights and objects that were flying around the base in both around the runway. Now, Kirtland Air Force Base shares a runway with Albuquerque International Airport. Well, I'd like to say Albuquerque International Airport shares a runway with the Air Force because the Air Force had priority a, uh, a control over the, of the airstrip. And um, he didn't know what to do with this stuff. So he went to a retired military person. He, he, he told this military person, uh, hey, I saw these uh, strange things flying around the base. What do, you think, what do you think I should do? And Paul says, uh, I mean, uh, this colonel says, I think you should report it. So, um, and that's what Paul did. Paul eventually contacted Lieutenant Colonel Ernie Edwards. Uh, Colonel Edwards was the commander of the security force guarding Manzano Base. And Paul says, listen, I've collected all these photographs, all these electronic signals from the base. I'm not a spy. I'm a loyal American. I'm a veteran. And I'm afraid that there's a danger to national security. So he came out to the base, talked to Colonel Edwards. Colonel Edwards saw everything he had and said, and and, and, and Colonel Edwards, I mean, uh, uh, Ernie Edwards said, my God, this is, this is amazing. So immediately he called me on the phone. I was a counterintelligence officer for the, for the base. He said, you got to come down here. You got to look at what I just got from this guy that lives right outside the base. So I did. I went down. I looked at everything. I said, wow, this is amazing. 
So I knew looking at the photographs of what Paul initially photographed. Now, at Kirtland, there's a research and development uh, uh, entity or, or uh, unit called the Air Force uh, Weapons Laboratory. And they were testing all sorts of different things, high energy lasers. And at that time, and this is the 19, late 90, 79, 80s, was a highly classified drone program. So took one look at the pictures, and I was a counterintelligence officer base. I knew what was going on. So I did a report, uh, sent it up to headquarters, and headquarters was um, fascinated by what he, this guy was doing, but he was also they were also very concerned about it. So I get a, a message back saying, you need to interview this guy, and we need to, to, to see what he has and, and, and investigate it. Now, in the government, in the United States government, especially in the intelligence community, we didn't do anything with an op- without an operational plan. Now, people have been in the military or in government. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. You got to you got to have a plan. And so the plan came down from headquarters. And so they told me, go out and interview him, collect as much information as you can. And uh, so I did. I called him. I introduced myself. I said, "Here's what I, what I need. Can I, can can uh, can you uh, make time to, for me to interview you?" He said, "Yeah, sure. Come on." So I went over to his lab. I sat down with him. He showed me what he had, um, and I accepted everything he had. I mean, I, I took everything that he gave me, and I said, "Wow, that's fascinating." But why are you doing this, Paul? Why are you photographing things on the base? He said, I'm concerned. I'm a veteran. I'm a loyal American. I have a, a, a government, as called industrial security clearance with the, the government, making uh, humidity sensors and temperature sensors for submarines and spacecrafts. And I'm concerned that there's a, there's a danger to the base. I said, okay. So... And then he started telling me about all his his past uh, history, about investigating cattle mutilations, uh, UFOs. He was a member of MUFON. He, he talked about all these things to me. And I just sat there and listened to Paul. And Paul had met uh, in another realm, uh, we're going to hopefully I'll get to, uh, of another incident that happened involving an abduction incident. Anyways, you talked to a woman by the name of Tamara Landcroft. She was an intelligence officer, uh, a civilian intelligence officer for the 650th uh, MI, which is a military intelligence unit on on Kirtland. And th- their primary mission was uh, protecting nuclear material, nuclear weapons. He also had contact with Gabe Valdez. Now, a lot of you know who Gabe Valdez, and if you don't know him, he was a, a New Mexico State police officer, lived in northern New Mexico, and he was the first person that uh, came upon and investigated cattle mutilations. He was the first, very, very first one. He did very, very detailed reports. He got the FBI and, and everybody else involved in this. And then Paul talks, told me about Myrna Hansen. Myrna Hansen 
was an abductee and she was abducted and he was working with Leo Sprinkle uh, regarding regarding her. Anyways, after I spoke to Paul, gathered all the videos and, and photographs, I went back and sat down with my supervisor and he says, okay, we need to, you know, you need to do a very detailed report. We need to send this up to headquarters, which I did. And headquarters says uh, they want more information. The operational plan came down and said, you need to go out and we need to conduct a counterintelligence operation against Paul Benowitz. Now, I know that sounds pretty horrible. Right? And, and in your words, that meant Rick Doty was going to go out and run a disinformation campaign against Paul Benowitz. Well, that's exactly what I did. That's the mission. I I was given the mission. I did what I was told to do. And you'll show, I'll show you later that I was, I was uh, commanded for it. But here's, here's the difference. Paul was a true believer in UFOs. And he, he was thoroughly convinced that what he was taking pictures of were in fact UFOs. I knew they were drones. The only thing I didn't know about was this electronic signals that Paul was collecting. Where's that coming from? Well, what Paul uh, tapped into was at that time, and it's not classified anymore, was a highly classified program that the United States have had, the blind Soviet satellites coming over the United States. The NSA had a high-energy laser that they could shoot up in the air, hit the lens of the Soviet satellite and blind them. So the Soviets couldn't take pictures of what was on the ground. We had one at different locations in the United States, including Kirtland, Area 51, and other other places around the United States. Paul was detecting the frequency used by that laser. Now, at the time, I wasn't fully briefed into this, but that's that's what he was doing. But I was told to go out, collect everything I can, and convinced Paul that what he was what he was seeing was in fact UFOs and not obviously a classified program. I couldn't brief him into that. We get deeper. So I go out to Paul and I, I tell him, Paul, I said, you know, what do you think it is? And Paul says, Well, it's UFOs. I know it's UFOs. I'm adamant about it. I said, You think? That the, the, the signals are also from you? Absolutely. A side note here, Paul knew about Dulce, New Mexico. He was up there many times. He, Paul was a private pilot, took pictures up there, came back. And we'll talk about that a little bit, too. And so I said, you know what, Paul? I think you're right. I think you're right. I think what you're seeing are exactly UFOs. Now, you can believe me if you want. That's the only convincing I had to do to Paul Benowitz for him to believe that there were UFOs. My job was finished. I convinced him. He's thinking it's UFOs. I knew it wasn't UFOs. Okay. This is where things change. Now, remember, my job was to convince him a disinformation, you call it, we call it counterintelligence, that 
what he was seeing was UFOs. Paul invited myself and another agent and Jerry Miller. Now, Jerry Miller, I haven't really talked about. Jerry Miller was a former Project Blue Book investigator. He came out with me and interviewed Paul. I came out to the house, Paul's house in his lab. And and he was a scientist. I'm not a scientist. My background isn't in science. So I had to bring somebody that knew what they were looking at as far as signals and so forth. Anyways, we went out one night to Paul's house for dinner. And I had an, another agent with me by the name of Steve and, and, and uh, Jerry Miller. After dinner, we went into a, a room off the dining room. Uh, there's a couch. I'm, I'm sitting on a couch. Steve's sitting next to me. Jerry's sitting over here in a lounge chair. And then Paul Benowitz. My, I'm facing a wall, just a wall. There's just a picture on the wall. And during our conversation, it's just a, 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 a casual conversation about weather and, and, and nothing to do with the subject matter. And while I'm looking at the wall, in the lower left-hand corner of the wall, I see this pulsating light. And I'm watching this, and I, and it's, it's moving, but it's not moving other than just that corner. Well, Steve next to me jabs me and you know, says, look. And I'm looking at this thing. And look over at Jerry, and the first thing Jerry Miller, now Jerry's a seasoned UFO investigator. Jerry says, pointing to his watch. Now, at first I didn't really understand what he was saying, but um, I caught on later that he said, look at the time. Make sure we're not going to miss any time. Anyways, this orb moved up and around and all around the wall, all around the room. Um, and as it was in the middle, now at first I thought it was a, a light, a beam from, from a light behind me, but there was a hutch behind me. So that, you know, I'm looking all over for some kind of a flashlight or something and I couldn't find it. But when it came out in a three dimensional, uh, shape, I knew it wasn't a light. I'm, I'm thinking, how the heck did he do this? I'm thinking Paul's doing this. I'm looking over at Paul and Paul's just staring at it. He's not making eye contact with anybody. As it moves around the room, I'm I'm looking at Jerry. I'm looking all around, waiting for somebody to say anything. About that time, Paul's wife comes out from the kitchen through the dining room. And she has a tray. We were having coffee. She was going to get more coffee to us. And she stopped and looked that up. And she said, oh, our friend is back. And that kind of broke the ice. The object then went exactly back to where it came from and disappeared. Now, what what did we just see? Um, I immediately confronted Paul. I'm a straight shooter. I'm good interrogation. I said, Paul, what have you just done? Paul says, I haven't done anything. I was convinced Paul was doing this. Jerry was too. Jerry said, you know what? What we just seen is... You know, you got to tell us how you did it, Paul. I didn't. I didn't do anything. So Paul allowed us to bring Jerry's equipment in. We scanned the house. We checked. We couldn't figure out how it happened. But that is an incident that will I'll never forget. And that kind of changes the course of our investigation. I went back and I did a very more, a no more detailed report. And, and plus, I added all the information that we collected during our uh, investigation in Paul's residence. We couldn't find anything. 
that would would indicate or prove or any kind of equipment that would have generated such orb. Now, against a wall, I can understand it because we actually actually duplicated that. But when it flew out in a three-dimensional in the middle of the room, we don't know how I did that. But we were then convinced after thorough investigation that what Paul, what happened in Paul's house was, in fact, not connected to Paul. And it wasn't connected in anything that we did. So who did that? So <clears throat> what we did then was we kind of changed tones in investigation. We thought, well, okay, maybe, maybe pause telling the truth. Now, Paul had a computer. And the computer that Paul had, he was collecting uh, strange characters, almost like Chinese characters or Egyptian hieroglyphs on his computer. So we, we photographed these things. He also, and, and we'll go into this in a little bit, a figure appeared on his monitor. Now, this is back in 1980. No, no colored computer monitors. Uh, they were very crude back then compared to today. So it's a black and white monitor. The image that came on, and I'm going to show you this image, is color. How did that happen? Now, this also, we also have a, um, espionage involving, involved in this and sabotage, but I'm not going to get into great details on that because it didn't relate to, to, to Paul's, uh, UFO connections. What I want to go into now is what Paul was doing, what Paul was collecting on his monitor and, and what Paul uh, saw and did later on. As this case progressed, we realized that there's a possibility, and we sat in a secure room, uh, the bubble we called it, and with people coming down from headquarters, high-ranking officials coming down from headquarters, and the Defense Intelligence Agency and, and the Air Force Intelligence, and we're sitting around a table talking about what what just happened. Paul was invited out to the base, and he came out and he did, gave a demonstration to all these top ranking. In fact, the people in this room, uh, other than myself, was just a special agent, uh, were at least a colonel. We had five generals and we had some GM, which is civilian equivalent to generals, GM 16s and 17s. He gave a presentation. They all scratched your head. How does he do this stuff? Well, how is he doing that and what did he collect? Number one, as I told you earlier, Paul tapped into NSA signals. And um, he um, unwittingly did this. He didn't do it to collect espionage material. He didn't know what he was collecting. While we were collect, while we were running our operation, unbeknownst to us, the National Security Agency 
was running their own investigation. There was an incident that happened out of Paul's house. We were out of Paul's house, myself and this other agent, and uh, we we were searching around the house, looking at different things, and we were up in his, he had a, a, a large uh, window that looked out into the street from his bedroom. And as I looked across the street, and it was a rainy night in Albuquerque, I see this red light in this window on and off. And I asked Paul, I said, who lives over there, Paul? Paul says, nobody, it's vacant. I said, somebody's over there, Paul, look at that red light. He goes, wow. So myself and the other agent, we're federal federal agents, we have guns. So we went over there. And I, I and before I left, I called Albuquerque Police Department. I contacted down there. I said, hey, can you send a patrol car out here? Uh, we got a situation, maybe break and entering or something. So they did. They sent a, a couple officers out there. We went over. We confronted the two people that came down. What are you guys doing here? Oh, we rented this place. What, what company do you work for? We work for Avis Rental Car. You work for Avis Rental Car? And you're taking pictures of Paul Benowitz's house from up there? What? You can't even see his car. Is it, did, did, you know, did he rent a car and not turn it back or what? And they wouldn't talk. They wouldn't really tell us much. They wouldn't allow us in either because the Albuquerque police officers, and this is a civilian, this is civilian jurisdiction, not federal, said, we want to come and look at what you got in there. You, you, they said, no, without, not without a warrant. Well, after this happened, the next day I went out to NSA and I, I know the guy. His name is Ferguson. Uh, he's the chief of security out there. And I said, listen, you got two options. You tell me what you're doing against Paul Benowitz, or I'm going to come out here with a federal warrant and search your files. And he said, okay, let me get you briefed in. And he tells me, tells me the story. I said, you guys are investigating Paul and you didn't tell us? That's interfering with a federal investigation. That's against the law. He said, no, 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 we're not doing it for criminal uh, matter. Uh, we're just doing it to collect what he has. Well, they did. They... Um, they continued, and we're going to get into what they did. Um, another incident that happened, which solidified our beliefs that Paul really had contact with extraterrestrials. Paul, he, Paul was a pilot, like I said earlier. Paul flew a plane. He had a plane, a Cessna 180. He flew it up uh, to Dulce. He had with him in the right seat a photographer that worked at his, his, his uh, laboratory. And this guy was an extra photographer and he had a camera with him and they were going to photograph Dulce base, or at least the top of the mountain, the top of Archuleta Peak. Now we all know what's supposed to be there and the legend there and so forth and so on. I wish I could go into that, but I don't have time. Anyways, as they were flying back over Red River, New Mexico, which is in northern New Mexico, Paul had an encounter with a UFO, a huge UFO. This thing was so huge, you could have probably put 10 Cessna 180s in there. The Cessna 180 is a single-engine plane. Um, and ironically, this UFO came right up, and the right wing of Paul's plane sat on top of that UFO, as if Paul thought that they were trying to make some kind of contact. Now, of course, the photographer was over here after he... Probably had to uh, change his pants, took pictures. And he took a lot of pictures. 
And so when Paul got back to the, to, to his office, he called me and said, I got, you've got to come over here and see these pictures. I said, pictures of what? He said, you just got to come over here and see these pictures. I said, okay. And now Paul had his own laboratory, a photo lab. So I went over there and I sat down and he showed me. He had eight by tens, 10 by 12s. He had them all over his desk. And I'm looking at him. I said, where'd you get these from, Paul? He said, I took them. Jason, who's a photographer, took them. I said, where? He's over northern Mexico near Red River. So I said, well, can we get the negatives? I need to send them back to headquarters. Sure. Paul gave me negatives. We sent them back to uh, headquarters. They analyzed them. And now we're convinced. We're convinced that Paul Benowitz, a Thunder Scientific, has got into a, a very touchy area. Now, at this point, the Air Force had to admit, not to him, of course, to themselves, that Paul Benowitz was, in fact, in contact with extraterrestrials. Now, Paul Paul called me one night about midnight. Phone rings. I'm, I'm, I'm not married back then in those days. I didn't have a social life, but I'm living in my apartment and phone rings. I pick it up and pause. Various hysterical. He says, you got to get over here. You got to get over here. Please, please, Richard. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm down, Paul. I said, if you need, if you got an emergency, somebody breaking in or something, you need to call 911, call the, the Albuquerque police. I, I mean, no, 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 no. It's not. It's what's on my computer. You got to come and see this. You got to come and see this. I said, oh, okay. You know, so uh, I get dressed. I call another agent, a Virginia, a, a female agent. And I say, hey, you know, get dressed and we got to go out to Paul Benowitz's house. So I'm thinking Paul's, you know, he, 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 he was already not, he wasn't in very good physical condition. Paul was a chain smoker, had high blood pressure, had kidney problems. He drank uh, probably five or six quarts of Coca-Cola a day, plus probably 10 or 12 cups of coffee. He had a lot of medical problems. I was afraid that, you know, he was going to have a, some kind of medical uh, episode. So we get to his house and Paul said, you got to come up. So I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, Paul, I want you to sit down here, right here and calm down. He was sweating. He was almost hysterical, despondent in some ways. Virginia had been a, had been a, uh, a medic in the United States military before she came in intelligence. And so I said, you know, check him out, make sure he's not going to have a heart attack. And so she did. And I said, okay, once he's, once he was calmed down, I said, let's go see what you got. He went upstairs. He said, look. And this is what was on the computer. That picture. I looked at that thing, and, and this is a black and white computer. This is this is the actual picture we took off. We took a picture of of, of the computer screen because we had no other way to connect the camera to the monitor like you could do today. Today, back in those days, well, I was flabbergasted. I said, "Well, how did this come about?" He said, "The voices came on talking to me, 
I said, what language were they speaking, Pa? He said, English. But it was as if it was a mechanical English. Like a lot of people have had abduction experiences or, or contactees know what I'm talking about. A mechanically induced sound. So, uh, you know, I was pretty excited and we, I didn't have any equipment with me to try to take a picture at that point. But I called somebody else, uh, one of our uh, ace photographers woke him up. You get out here, take a picture of this. And then we took the, the we took the monitor back to the office. And we had a, a, a couple agents who were experts in computers even back in those days. And they were trying to figure out, how did he do this? But, you know, that's our mentality, which we, you know, I can admit now it's a big mistake. We didn't accept everything that Paul was, was telling us. But this picture, I was convinced that Paul somehow got this in. Now, the next day, all right, we, we, we got his computer, brought it back. We couldn't get it off the computer. We couldn't, there's no way we could, other than to taking a picture of a picture. So, um, I went back to Paul and I asked Paul, I said, Paul, uh, this isn't number one. I, we knew this isn't the monitor you had to book for. Who, when did you buy this? He said, I didn't buy it. I said, who bought it for you? He said, Alan Hynek and Leo Sprinkle. I said, what? He said, yeah, they brought it to my house some weeks ago. Oh, this changes the dynamics of our investigation, like interference. I said, why did you let him do that, Paul? He said, why? I said, why didn't you tell me this? He said, I'm sorry, I didn't think anything of it. They, they came here, we talked about it. I said, what else did they talk to you about? He said, well, they were convinced that I was in contact with aliens and they were going to decode the, the symbols that came on my computer. And so this uh, presented some problems to us in our investigation. I actually had a conversation with Alan Hynek, um, a nice a cordial conversation with him. I didn't want him to think or, or, or uh, have access to what we have already done. But anyways, I talked to him and he said, yeah, I, you know, I heard about Paul. I said, wait a minute. How did you hear about Paul? I mean, this is classified investigation. Seven Lambs, Project of Seven Lambs, was top secret. Code word. SAP, Special Access Program. Sensitive Compartment and Information. Well, how did you get it? He said, well, I got it from Bill Moore. Okay. I just mentioned a name that some people think is a demon within ufology. Well, in actuality, Paul, uh, Bill Moore, as most, some of you know, follows the story, was one of our sources. He was in a source. Actually, we had Paul, I mean, Bill Moore, contact Paul months and months before. And just to see what, as a reporter, to see what Paul would tell Bill. We more or less tested Paul Benowitz. And unfortunately for us, Unfortunately for us, Bill Moore gave Paul information about our investigation. When I figured, you know, put two and two together, I confronted Paul. I mean, confronted Bill Moore. I said, Bill, what did you do? He said, well, I was just trying to 
you know, see if I could get Paul to do the same. I said, you told him about this investigation? Well, a little bit. I said, okay, you told Paul. What about Heineken, Sprinkle? Well, yeah, I told them a little bit too. Well, that kind of ceased some of our cooperation with Bill Moore. And you know what happened uh, later on. These are, it's hard to see, but these are some of the, 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 the uh, symbols that, that Paul got off his, his computer. Now they're not hieroglyphics. I have a, I have a, a expert person, uh, Johnny Enoch, my very, very, very good friend, who's in, well, I consider an expert in this area. I'm going to throw this stuff at him and see if he can translate. Also, my very good friend, Billy Carson, uh, congratulate him for that award yesterday. But uh, we've done some checking, and we can't find anything close to hieroglyphics, uh, Chinese characters, uh, Korean characters, or Japanese characters. So these are actual, actual symbols that came off Paul's computer. It's not something that he made up because we had photographed them. We, we saw these things. Now, in this particular uh, <clears throat> display, it, we copied them down. One of our agents copied them down. But we took, them, we took pictures off, off. Okay. Enter the National Security Agency, Project Jagger Star. This is a project that they did. This is the information that came out two, uh, three years ago. Uh, about three years ago, um, 2018 or 19. This is what they did. This is what National Security Agency did. This isn't what Rick Doty did. This is what the National Security Agency did. They became involved in Bob Benowitz. They wanted to know how he collected signals, how he, how he was doing what he, what he was doing. Well, um, they thought he was so smart that they gave him $135,000 in a contract to tell them or show them how he did what he did as far as collecting these unique signals or frequencies from the laser. Now, back in 1994, or 84, 1984, $135,000 was a lot of money. I don't know quite the equivalent in pounds, but it's a lot of money. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a lot of money. And so, Paul, and what their object was is duplicate what you did. I want, you know, NSA people gave him equipment besides just the money and duplicate what you did. And he did. Paul did. Not only did he duplicate, Paul Benowitz got a contract to create in his laboratory something to collect signals. Now, not only was he collecting what we were generating at the laser complex, starlight laser complex, but Paul developed a way, a method to collect signals that were coming in from space that were unique. They were unique frequency signals. And I'm not a scientist. I'm not a frequency expert. So I can't go into great details on that. But there's signals... Uh, that are some kind of mimicking uh, what we have in space. In fact, 
Paul Bennett was, was in a, in a very classified program. And we talk about it now because it was released, uh, sending unique signals to Voyager one and Voyager two. Now Voyager one and Voyager two was launched in 1977. During this time period, they were, I think near, uh, Jupiter or Saturn and national, uh, NASA, National Space Agency, had a unique way, a signal that they were had to shoot up and back and forth. Well, Paul developed a different way of doing that for NSA. And it was still highly classified. Okay, our investigation ended in 1985. And um, NSA's continued to 1988 because of the contract he had. At no time during the five-year investigation that we had with Paul, did, did we ever give him psychi- psychotropic drugs, which story out there that Rick Doty stuck drugs in his, to his drinks? Did we ever illegally enter his home, bug his phones, uh, place cameras in his phone, place a pen register? A pen register is something intelligence used to know who you're dialing, who you're calling. In fact, when this all started, I asked Paul to sign a waiver, a United States government waiver. He did. I asked Paul if if we could have access to his home. He gave us permission to go into his home. Did we go into his home? Yes. But we had permission to go into his home. Did we place clandestine or surreptitious devices in his house? Yeah, we did. Unbeknownst to him, yes. But after this was over, get over with, we told Paul everything. You know what Paul said? I know what I did. I know what I collected. I know what's ETs. I know you were just trying to protect me back in those days, and you're not going to change my mind about it. And so I mean, I maintained friendship with Paul right up to the day he died. Well, two days before he passed away. His, his wife didn't want anything to do with me and, um, his, uh, sons didn't want anything to do with me, but I, I maintained friendship with him. Paul Benowitz wrote a, pre- a letter to President Reagan. I know you can't see it. Uh, it's on, it's on the internet and I'll tell you how to get it. Um, he wrote a, a pretty nice letter to pre- President Reagan. Uh, of course, after he wrote the letter, there's a lot of questions about why he wrote it and what he, the contents he had in there and, and so forth and so on. But one of the things you got to understand is Paul Benowitz, not only did he photograph a classified drone program, which he did. I mean, he was, he was doing that. He never told anybody about it. He tapped into a highly classified project on Kirtland Air Force Base. That's one avenue over here that he, he did, one, one particular box. But on the other hand, Paul was in contact with ETs. I can say for a fact now, and having spoke with a number of people in the NSA, they were thoroughly convinced that Paul was able to communicate with ETs. We, dis- we, we disavowed it back in the 80s. I did. Because I didn't, just didn't think he could do it. But he did. He had contact. 
that picture that I showed you. I don't know what that is of. I don't know if that's the, the particular species of ETs. I don't know if that's a picture of a picture that somehow it got on this computer that we can't understand. And I tell you what, the National Security Agency is the best code breakers and the best um, in tapping into something like that. If they couldn't figure out how he did it, I think the only answer is the ETs put that there. Um, this is Manzano's uh, storage area. In uh, Paul's house was just off the perimeter. Uh, that's a map of the storage area. That's the actual case number of uh, the, the Paul Benowitz's case. Now, at the end of my investigation, at the end of the Air Force Office Special Investiga- uh, Investigation and DIA's investigation, uh, volumes of reports from from me and from all the different agents that worked with me, all the different scientists, all the different analysts. And believe me, this wasn't something I did on my own, as one particular UFO researcher said. Oh, you probably made all this up. Yeah, right. <laughs> but after all this was done, I was called. I was on a assignment in Germany. I was called and said, you need to get back to Washington, D.C., on such and such a day. I said, what did I do wrong? <laughs> I thought, you know, that's typical of anybody who's been in a service uh, or, or in government services. Why am I going back to Washington? What did I do? You got an assignment for it? Oh, we got, I got to tell you, just get back here. You know, so I get on a plane, I fly back to Washington, D.C. I met and I'd driven out to the Pentagon. I was really thinking, I'm in trouble now. I'm going to the Pentagon. So I get in the Pentagon, and these two people meet me, two Army, one's a major in the Army, one's a lieutenant colonel. He said, sir, we're going to take you into General Vesey's office. I said, oh, okay. General Vesey was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States military back in those days. When I went in there, I went in and I sat in an outer office and I went into an inner office and uh, an aide came out and said, uh, General Vesey wants to come in. Why don't you come in, sit down in the couch, the chair, and, and he's going to ask you some questions. I said, wow, it would be nice to know what he's going to ask me because I still didn't know what, what I did. He said, oh, he's going to ask a question about some investigations you did. And he said, believe me, General Vesey's cleared for everything. So I said, yeah, no problem. So I go in, I introduce, you know, he introduces himself, which I, of course, I already knew him. I sat down, I, and he, the first thing he asked me about was seven lands. So I told him the story. He said, you were recommended for not only a, a step increase, but also a medal, intelligence medal. And this is me receiving these, the secret award, because it was secret, because I can't, couldn't keep it. From General Vesey, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at that time. So what I did during my time uh, investigating Paul Benowitz uh, was all sanctioned by the government. I learned a lot of things, including a, a citizen, a private citizen, can make contact with ETs. 
during my time investigating it, there was always a doubt in my mind. But this proved that Paul Benowitz was able to have contact with extraterrestrial race. Now, I wish, I mean, there's a lot of things I wished for uh, during the, I mean, you know, um, after afterthoughts. Everybody has these afterthoughts. Of course, hindsight is 2020, right? I thought, well, I should have done this, 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 and this. And what I really was um, sorry for is that I wish these ETs that he had contact with, and he, he had a contact almost daily with these, this particular race of ETs. I wish they could have cured him because the, the world is, 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 is not the same place as Paul Benowitz. He was a, he was a fantastic human being, a, a benevolent person, um, very patriotic, loving father, a loving husband, and he was dedicated to these things. Another thing I regret is we should have, we, U.S. intelligence, not NSA, should have spent more time in collecting what he had the ability to, to obtain. Can you imagine what we would have learned from these ETs if we were able to collect what Paul was given? Now, Paul, of course, he was somewhat responsible for not doing what he was doing. Uh, I mean, collecting data. But in those days, there wasn't any way we couldn't keep, we didn't have a thumb drive or a, a, a USB port to, to collect things on or take a picture or do a screenshot on a computer. Um, we still couldn't figure out. I don't know that they've ever figured out uh, how to get that image off that computer. And believe it or not, you can believe it or not, all that information that Paul gave us is in Washington, D.C. All of it's still there. So, closing, in conclusion, um, because that's my email if you, if you want to copy it down and send questions. Um, I've written a book. I, a lot of people out here know I did. I submitted the manuscript to uh, intelligence and they said, ah, you got a, a 600, 642 page book. They took out 300 and some pages of it. It didn't make any sense to publish to what I couldn't write. So I had an attorney, spent money to get it appealed. I got appealed. And they gave me 120, 129 pages back. But out of those 129 pages, a lot of the stuff was redacted. So I'm going to, I'm going to publish it. So probably out here later this year. And then on the other hand, I'm going to write a, uh, a fictional account of this. <laughs> they, they can't block that. Thank you very much for being a good audience and good listeners. Oh, my goodness, everybody. That was very interesting. You know, there's more and more stuff coming out. I think you can see that. This is what Dr. Greer sharing with us and so many others that we can make contact and 
they are asking us in no uncertain terms, call us in. <laughs> they lied to us for 5,000 years, it says up there. Yeah. Whoops. Hello. <laughs> Hello. There's somebody want to talk to us up there on the screen. Okay. Um, so is this for this? Mm -hmm. All right. That's um, the screen for this next piece we're going to play. And this is called Greg Braden, New Evidence, The Shocking Truth About How They Built the Pyramids. Now we're going to listen with 10 ears too because we heard some things. I'm going to see what what happens? We're all going to learn. Yeah. Greg Braden is a five-time New York Times best-selling author, researcher, educator, lecturer, and internationally renowned as a pioneer bridging science, spirituality, and human potential. From, 19, from 1979 to 1991, Greg worked as a problem solver during times of crisis for Fortune 500 companies, including Crisco Systems, where he became the first technical operations manager in 1991. He continues problem solving today as he merges modern science and the wisdom of our past to reveal real-world real solutions to the issues that challenge our lives. His research has led to 15 film credits and 12 award-winning books, now published in over 40 languages. Greg is a member of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS, and is active with visionary organizations, including the Heart Math Global Coherence Initiative and the Arlington Institute. He has presented his discoveries in over 30 countries on six continents and he has been invited to speak to the United Nations, Fortune 500 companies, and the United States military. The United Kingdom's Watkins Journal lists Greg among the top 100 of the world's most spiritually influential living people for the seventh consecutive year. And he is a 2020 nominee for the prestigious Templeton Award, established to honor outstanding individuals who have devoted their talents to expanding our vision of human purpose and ultimate reality. Please join my conversation with Greg Graydon. Okay, so let's see. This is one hour and 11 minutes. And did you know who, who's talking with him? It doesn't say. Um, it doesn't say. Okay, well, we should just get started. Yeah, hopefully, 
the other person will introduce himself on the video everybody. So we'll get started. Here we go. Here's what's happening. Archaeological discoveries now are are being made that precede that that five thousand year cycle. So when it first started happening, scientists said, "Oh, well, these are anomalies." So you know, we'll, we've got we've got our history, and we're sure it's right. And then here's an anomaly, and we'll put it over here. We'll come back and look at it later. Well, now there are so many anomalies. The anomalies are telling the new stories. I'd like to welcome back to the show returning champion, Greg Braden. How are you doing, Greg? Hey, well, thank you for that warm introduction. It's good to, to start as a champion today. I'm, <laughs> I'm doing well. I am uh, coming to you as before from our studio just outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I've got to tell you, this day with you is the first day in two weeks we haven't seen rain and snow. So I'm, you brought I'm, some I'm, sunshine to the high desert. I'm happy to be I'm, with you. I'm glad to, I'm glad I could help you, sir. I'm glad I could help you. Uh, our last conversation was uh, such a hit with our audience, and I think we made plans right after our first conversation, even before that other one was released. We're like, we got to keep talking. We have to. I have to come back. We have to make something happen. So I appreciate. I know you're a very busy man. I appreciate you coming back on the show. And today's conversation really wanted to, to tackle something that you know a little bit about uh, in regards to ancient uh, ancient civilizations technologies of ancient civilization, spirituality in that space as well. Sure. So I'll just start with a very easy question. Who built the pyramids? <laughs> well, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to start, I'll start with an easy answer uh, to, to lay a foundation sure. to the answer to that question, if I can. You know, when, when I was in school back in the, in the Midwest of this big, beautiful country we live in, 1950s, 1960s, oh. uh, I was taught at that time, what we are still teaching our children today, and that is that civilization began uh, in a uh, in an isolated location in what today we call the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, mm-hmm. um, and it began in a primitive state and evolved in a linear fashion, slowly, gradually, over a long period of time, to what we have today. The problem with that story, Alex, is the evidence doesn't support it, uh, and there is still a uh, there's a battle to maintain what is called the the standard model when it comes to our history, when it comes to civilization, when it comes to science, when it comes to physics, when it comes to human origins. There there's a battle to maintain this static story. <clears throat> Excuse me, it was developed you know in late 1800s, early 1900s, even though the evidence no longer supports it. So the new the new discoveries are now telling us that rather than a single cradle of civilization, excuse me, in the the Tigris-Euphrates, rather than a single cradle, that there now appear to have been at least five simultaneous cradles of civilization. And some of those are very familiar to us. There was one in China. There was one in the the Tigris-Euphrates. That was Mesopotamia. Uh, There is the Indus Valley, mysterious... uh, Technology has been found buried in the Indus Valley and what now is uh, in India and Pakistan. There was uh, Corral in northern Peru. There was Mesoamerica. There was uh, the the area in what we now call uh, the UK and, and Europe and, and that part of the world. 
So <clears throat> these five, or depending on how you look at them, maybe six simultaneous civilizations, uh, and Egypt. Egypt was certainly a part of that, and that's this is a long answer to mm-hmm. to to your question. They appear to to have been uh, simultaneous. There appears to be a, a communication. There's a continuity of knowledge between these civilizations in terms of agriculture, the ability to grow large amounts of food in hostile environments to feed large populations, certainly mathematics, certainly architecture, multi-story buildings. It's no easy feat to build these these multi-story structures the way they were built. Uh, and a, a knowledge of the cosmos that was so advanced, Alex, in many instances, it was discounted as myth until the 20th century when our own satellites began telling us more about the, the neighborhood that we live in, our solar system neighborhood, and and lo and behold, these ancient traditions had it right on. So the question that <clears throat> comes up often is uh, where did these civilizations come from? And uh, and I think the answer to that question may be the answer to who built the pyramids. So that's why I wanted to, to lay that that foundation. What we know is that there, uh, I'm a, a geologist by degree, and I, I rarely get to use that, uh, that degree anymore, uh, with a strong background in, in the life sciences, math, physics, computer science, cosmology, and, um, and archaeology. And I, I say that once again because it's that multidisciplinary background that helps me to stay current in many different fields as new fields of science, as new discoveries are being revealed. And I got to tell you what we're going to talk about in this program. It's no secret in the scientific community. It is simply there's there's a resistance to embracing it in the mainstream. So mainstream textbooks, mainstream classrooms. And the reason is uh, because the pushback from the religious community, from the political community, certainly from the, the 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 technological community, uh, and, and much more. So what I'm saying to you, uh, is, is peer reviewed. It's out there in the, in the open literature. It's just not something that we often hear about. So I'll, I'll just, uh, the mystery is where did those simultaneous, uh, advanced civilizations come from? And that might be where we want to go with this, but I'm going to, mm-hmm. I'll stop there and, and uh, see if it no, makes no. sense of where we want to go. Yeah, I would love, yeah, let's, let's dive into where these ancient civilizations come from because it's, it is such a mystery to, I mean, anyone who has a logical mind to even look at the pyramids and, and believe the story that we've been told. It just doesn't make logical sense. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about the pyramids for, for a little bit. I had my, my first opportunity. I had studied the pyramids since I was a kid. You know, I've been fascinated by this stuff. Um, you know, I was five years old. My mom was helping me to read books by Edgar Cayce about mm-hmm. lost civilizations. And and we were memorizing the planets in the solar system and the names of the dinosaurs and the, the kings of, of Egypt. So I've been fascinated by this stuff for, for a very long time. My first journey into Egypt was 1986. <clears throat> and um, And I was... Just, uh, I was just astounded by what I saw. Now, that was a very different Egypt from what we see today. There are a lot of places now that are restricted and they have been, um, uh, revamped, you know, for public consumption. It was much more raw, uh, back in, in the 19, 1980s, 1990s. So, but the, the pyramid, and we talk about pyramids, there are pyramids all over the world. 
And it's the similarity of those pyramids that uh, that brings to mind the question, where did they come from? But typically when people talk about pyramids, they're talking about three pyramids on the Giza Plateau uh, in Egypt. And interestingly, the largest of those is called the Great Pyramid, and it's not the one that people show in the pictures because the Great Pyramid does, n- does not have a capstone. It's flat on top. That capstone was lost at some point in history. There's another one of the three that does have a, a, a capstone, and that's the one that the news anchors and television and movies, they always call that the Great Pyramid, and it's not. But the uh, there are so many. I mean, we could do a whole program on the mysteries of that single structure alone. It's over 400 feet tall. Uh, it is made of massive blocks of, of limestone, when I was there, I went back in 1989, and there was a, a scientific group that was trying to recreate the Great Pyramid. And uh, the first thing that they discovered was that none of the equipment, they were using uh, Caterpillar tractors and forklifts and things like that. None of the equipment that we had at that time could lift the blocks, the 20-ton blocks of the pyramid. So they had to go to the Caterpillar tractor company and, and have commissioned them to build a, a special device that they then could use to build the pyramid. And after six months, the Egyptian government told them to clean up their mess and go home. They simply could not replicate the technology. The way when we see that pyramid, what we're seeing actually is, is a part of the structure that was never meant to be seen. So there were essentially three layers of the pyramids of Giza and the Great Pyramid. The outer layer was encased in highly polished uh, limestone, looked like marble, uh, a white that would have reflected that light in just a magnificent way. And there, there are only a few layers of that left on one side at the bottom uh, because it has been stripped away for convenience at, used in other buildings throughout uh, Cairo and other mosques and other uh, primarily in, in other mosques and other structures that are there. Uh, so what we're seeing now is the inside that was never meant to be seen. And these are the, this, the tiered limestone blocks. And inside of that was built around a, the rooms themselves are granite, uh, the king's chamber, the queen's chamber, a massive, massive, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 ton blocks that are so highly polished uh, we can't do this with our technology today. They're, they're less than one one thousandth of an inch of tolerance between the stones. There's no mortar holding these together, and they've been there for centuries. The mathematics involves uh, the mathematics of circumference of the Earth and the diameter of the Earth and the Earth's relationship to the moon, our relationship <clears throat> to the magnetic fields of the planet. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So the question is, how, how was it done? And obviously, these were not primitive people that were doing this. Right. So when I was there in um, in 1989, another scientific group was there, and they were given access. This is the only time this has ever happened. They were given access to the casing stones that we see today and permission to drill core samples into those casing stones because <clears throat> when you do that, you're destroying the, the stone. So I've been part of it. So obviously it's not happening a lot. So they, they took the core samples and the, I know as a geologist, what you would expect to see if these were naturally occurring limestone blocks taken from 
the surrounding limestone in the area. There's a lot of limestone in the area. You would expect in those core samples to see what you see in naturally occurring limestone. You would expect laminations. You would expect uh, microfossils, uh, maybe visible fossils because it was presumably from, from ocean bottom. And what they found in the core samples was just the opposite of that. There, there were no laminations. The entire block appears to, to be homogeneous. That's not what you see in nature when nature is laying those, uh, you know, year layers. after year after yeah. year, the, the layers that go down. But they also found air bubbles. They found insects and they found human hair. And, uh, and what they, when they did the chemical analysis, there were chemicals in the blocks that do not occur naturally. So the bottom line, I mean, this is a mind blower. This is 1989 when they found this, is the question, how did they get massive blocks of such high tolerance fitting perfectly 400 feet above the surface? And, you know, I mean, if you watch the old movies in Charlton Heston, you know, and <laughs> Exodus, what you see is, you know, a million slaves with ropes and log rollers and they're rolling them up sand ramps and all that, you know, and maybe that happened in some places later on. That very possibly could have happened later on. But that's not what happened with the, the three pyramids, the Great Pyramids on Giza. And what they found was and what was published and the pushback was tremendous is that these stones are what are called uh, their artificial stone. And the way they were created is they were, in fact, the stone itself was mined from nearby limestone quarries. It was then pulverized and mixed with a high-tech epoxy that allowed it to be plastic, you know, kind of molten, uh, or at least, um, you know, soft, poured into molds. And then those molds, they, it was hardened. Uh, and the molds were poured on site. So that's why you could pour one block next to another and get one one thousandth of an inch tolerance. So, you know, and I talk to people about this. I have I used to do a lot of programs on this, not so much anymore. But one of the questions people say, OK, well, you know, what's the big deal? Artificial stone. Well, we didn't know really how to create this. So there's a, another interesting story that goes with this in um, 1990. Some of our viewers remember the U.S. was about to invade Iraq in what was called the first Gulf War. I, I remember watching on TV. I was crying watching it on TV. I didn't want to see it happen. Yeah. And there's a backstory to this. Saddam Hussein knew that he, that America would, well, everybody knew because we broadcast that we were going to attack. He contacted an American artist who was using the technology that was used in the Great Pyramids uh, he contacted that artist because he wanted that technology to harden his bunkers before the uh, the U.S. forces attacked Iraq. He wanted that uh, the epoxy based uh, stone so that he could harden those bunkers. And the U.S. got wind of this, U.S. government, and uh, made it illegal. They forbade the the artist from sharing his patented technology with Saddam Hussein. Uh, that would have actually hardened those bunkers against uh, the shock and awe that, that we were doing. So so the, the point is the technology that was used to build the pyramids was so advanced 
we weren't even really doing it until the 20th century. And uh, and it had military applications that were recognized pretty quickly. And we still don't do it. And we still aren't using it heavily in our construction or anything like that right now. No, not in. Uh, there are some artists that, that are using this, but but you don't see it in construction. So so this was a mind blower to the to the scientific community in 1989 because all the textbooks say those blocks were carved and then somehow mysteriously moved in, into place. Now we go down just adjacent to the Giza Plateau is the Great Sphinx. And I, I know most of our viewers are familiar with the Sphinx. And as a geologist, I was fascinated when I went there in 86 because what is what you see uh, on the, the back of the Sphinx, on the rump, and this is a, a view that you don't often get in, you know, in mainstream. They're always looking either a profile or right on at the face. But what you see is there, there, first of all, the Sphinx is carved from, uh, in place from a limestone bluff that was in place. So it's, it's like there was a, a solid limestone bluff and the Sphinx was carved and then all the empty space around it is where the rock was cleared and moved away to, to, so that the Sphinx looks like this isolated, uh, you know, standing structure. Mm-hmm. So it was it was actually carved in place. When you go around to the back of the Sphinx on the rump, you see erosion marks that are about 12 feet deep in some places. And it's limestone. Limestone's a sedimentary rock. And when uh, there are some parts of the limestone that are more resistant than others, and the softer parts are what get eroded away, creating these erosion marks. Well, there was a, there is a, a geologist from Boston University, Robert Schock, and I know many people are familiar with his, his work now, uh, because of the Charlton Heston special. Charlton Heston did, did a special on, on the Great Sphinx. And Robert Schock was the first one that credibly questioned the age of the Sphinx from a geologic perspective. And what he did was he looked at those erosion marks, the same ones I'm, I'm looking at, and he said, well, this is obviously fluvial erosion. The term fluvial means high, it's, it's based in water. And it would take high amounts of water moving quickly over long periods of time to create that kind of erosion. Up until that time, the scientists had called it aeolian erosion, which means it was wind, wind blowing, mm-hmm. you know, sand like sandpaper and 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 cutting it away robert shock said no it's obvious this is fluvial erosion and here's here's where the kicker comes in the only time that there has been that kind of water high amounts fast moving water over long periods of time uh predates anything our textbooks are talking about when it comes to the the pyramids we're told the pyramids were built uh approximately 45, 4,500, maybe 5,000 years ago. And uh, the water that would be required for that erosion has not been seen since the melting of the ice at the end of the last ice age, which is right around between, uh, sorry, around 12, 13,000 years, BP before present. Mm-hmm. So if that is the case, it means the structure had to already be existing at 12 to 13,000 BP, it had to be older than that. And this is, this is where the problems are, are coming in today. Now, 
uh, as a geologist, I, I was a member of a, a geologic uh, organization, AAPG, American Association of Petroleum Geologists, was the, mm-hmm. the term, but it's about more than petroleum. And they have a journal, a peer-reviewed journal that comes out. Robert Schock published his findings in AAPG, and the scientists, the real scientists, not the pop scientists, they looked at that data and they said, of course, of course this is fluvial erosion. Of course it had to have happened, uh, you know, 12, 13,000 years before present. They accepted it no problem. The geologists have no problem. The historians have a, a horrible problem because it means the history is wrong. Yeah. And the evidence, the evidence no longer supports the history. And what I, what I find fascinating, Greg, is that the, the pyramids, which were supposed to be the oldest of all of them, uh, it seems to, two things. One, it's, it was said it was a, a king's chamber. Uh, yet there has never been, there's nothing that's no. ever proven that at all. They've never found a corpse. There's no hieroglyphs. It completely goes against every other tomb we've ever found. And two, it seems that the technology keeps getting worse. So the pyramids, as they get closer to our time period, seem to degrade almost in the style that they're being built. They should be getting better and yeah, there should be yeah. more of them out there, right? Well, this, it is true, Alex. And it's something that this is not isolated. Well, first, I'm just going to back up. The way that they have dated the pyramids, you, you cannot date something that has not been alive. You can only carbon date. Uh, something that has been living, uh, breathing oxygen, carbon-based life. So stone cannot be carbon dated. Uh, the way that they have dated these pyramids is by estimating through, uh, you know, who was the king at what period of time and, you know, whose face is on a statue or something like that. And then here, I mean, this makes no sense at all. They also have found uh, mice and rats inside the pyramid that are dead and mummified, and they carbon date those dead mice and rats. They might date to a four or five thousand years before present. There is nothing linking that dead rat to the origin of the pyramid. I mean, the rat could have come in a thousand years ago, you know, inside sure. of the pyramid, but this is. This is where the scientific community, they've got a story and, and they want to stick with it. And there, this is what I said at the beginning, there's a, a battle for what is called uh, the standard model. And they, they had this all nice and buttoned up, nice and tidy, you know, about the, the kings and the eras. So where all this is leading, if the Sphinx was already existing when the ice melted and if the Great Pyramid, was made using technology and incorporating mathematics that are so sophisticated. We, we didn't know it until recently. Where did that come from? All of this is pointing to, uh, and it's something I've talked about extensively, is that civilization appears to be cyclic rather than linear. So the linear model is what we're teaching our kids. We began ancient Sumeria, Mesopotamia, 5,000, 5,500 years ago. And, you know, then you've got, you know, Rome and Greece and, and all of that. Well, all of that happens to have occurred within the most recent cycle uh, that began about 5,000 years ago. And what the, the mathematics, what the archaeology is showing 
is that our history appears to be closely correlated to 5,125 year long cycles. Uh, and there are five 5,125 year cycles uh, that make up one big cycle called a precession of the equinox. And I know some of our astronomers and astrologers are familiar with that. It's about 26,000 years. It is uh, related to the way that Earth is it relates to the sun and to the way that all of, I don't want to get too deep with all of this, but the, our, our relationship to our, our solar system and the Milky Way. And if those of you that remember the 2012 phenomenon, you know, that's mm-hmm. what this was all about. 2012 was the end of, uh, of the last, the fifth 5,125 year long cycle. And the beginning of a new age, a new a new cycle that, that we're in right now. Um, so when you plot that out, I didn't know we were going to talk about this. I would have brought some slides. Mm-hmm. When you plot that out on a graph, when you look at these 5,000-year cycles. So here we are today, 2012, the beginning of a new cycle, uh, or the end of one that began 5,000 years ago. Well, here's here's what's happening. Archaeological discoveries now are are being made that precede that that 5,000 year cycle. So when it first started happening, scientists said, "Oh, well these are anomalies." So, you know, we we'll, we've got we've got our history and we're sure it's right, and then here's an anomaly and we'll put it over here. We'll come back and look at it later. Well, now there are so many anomalies, the anomalies are telling the new story. So you've got Places like uh, the Gulf of Kambat in India. It's a three-mile-long, five-mile-wide submerged city. It's under 120 feet of water, 9,500 years before present. Very sophisticated archaeology. We've got Gobekli Tepe uh, in Turkey that is still being excavated and is now over 13,000 years before present. Now that the ice is melting in Antarctica, the satellites are showing complex, massive, complex structures. These aren't like little log cabins or, you know, pit houses. I mean, these are massive structures. Uh, the ice has been there for 20,000 years. So the question is, who is building complex architectural structures 20,000 years ago in Antarctica? Well, when you plot those, what you're finding is, Rome and Greece and Corral, Peru, that is the most recent 5,000-year cycle. So what we've been studying and what we've been teaching ourselves and our children is not the history of the world forever. It's the history of the world in the most recent cycle. Now we've got to start looking the 5,000-year cycle before that, where we see Corral in Peru, which is now dated. It's the oldest technologically advanced civilization in all of the Americas. It's older than the Inca, than the Aztec, than the Olmec, uh, than the Toltec. It's older than anything. We've got to rewrite all the history books. And next to it, another site has been found that's even older. There, We're told civilization began 5,000 years ago. That's when these ended. These civilizations ended when we're told that civilization began. So that's a 5,000-year cycle. Now you go back and you look at Gobekli Tepe. So so we've got today back to about 5,000 years. 5,000 years to 10,000 years is another 5,000-year cycle. And that's 
you know, all the things, Shatol Hoyuk in, in Turkey and Corral and all those. Now we're looking at Gobekli Tepe, 13,000. So now we're looking at another, we're looking at another 5,000 year cycle. And now we're looking at Antarctica, another 5,000 year cycle. So the evidence strongly supports cyclic civilization. And the question is, what happens every 5,000 years? Why do those civilizations, why do we lose the memory, lose the knowledge of those civilizations? And what happened before those simultaneous, those, those five or six simultaneous civilizations, where did they come from? Where did the, the knowledge for those come from? And all of it leads to a, uh, the understanding that there have been great catastrophes in our past. And one of those now is, is hotly contested, but the evidence is very strong for a, uh, a comet impact during what is called the Pleistocene geologic era, uh, as we were coming out of the last ice age and that that comet plunged us back into an ice age. Uh, and that brought an end to a great advanced civilization that existed on Earth. The remnants from that became those five simultaneous civilizations. The remnants became, uh, you know, the pyramids in Egypt and China and Indus Valley and all that. And this is why they had such similar mathematics, architecture, cosmology, and, and things like that. So we just covered a whole lot of ground. I'll stop and, and let's let's fill in the missing pieces here. <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've studied, um, I'm assuming you obviously know about the Yugas uh, and the Yugic cycles from, sure, the, yogi, sure. from the Yogi uh, uh, Swift who wrote a, and he literally laid out exactly what you're saying, the 26,000 year cycle. And he, the way they lay it out is that there is advanced knowledge, then we lose it, then we come back to it. And everywhere between there's like little jumps here and there, but, and we're now on an upward swing toward our new, our new cycle is obviously we're advancing technology, technologically we're advancing spiritually, even we're advancing even the last, hopefully in the last 30 or 40 years, how much we've advanced. It is a fascinating idea to think about what is where we were coming from. And, and I don't want to get into why everyone's fighting this in, in the in the status quo, but it's ego and other things like that. But the main one question I'd love to have talk to you about, because it has not really been talked about publicly a lot, Antarctica. I've mm-hmm. seen these these satellite images of these yeah. massive structures that could arguably they say pyramids um that are bigger than the Great much bigger sure. than the Great Tell yeah. me what you tell me what you've learned. No, I I've seen them as well. So Antarctica is is a mystery uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, it is supposed to be international property that no one owns. And there were agreements signed in the early 20th century that it would not be militarized. We signed those same agreements for space and we signed them for the moon. And both of those have been violated. We we have militarized space. We have weapons in space. Uh, and there's a lot of controversy about what has been done on, on the lunar surface and how it's been done. The same goes with Antarctica. We know that China has their military base. Germany has theirs. Uh, Russia has theirs. The United States has theirs. Uh, we, we've obviously militarized, uh, Antarctica. What 
has happened since global warming. And as a geologist, I'll just say straight up, global warming is a fact that we've been talking about. We were giving people a heads up that we should be moving into a warming cycle. Humans didn't cause it. We've contributed to it. But if there are no humans, we would still be the geologic record shows, you know, we would still be in, in a, a warming cycle. Mm-hmm. So, so the warming is happening and it is melting this, uh, uh, two miles of ice that has been there for about 20,000 years. And as that began to happen, it began to expose these complex structures. Now, one of the first things I learned as an, uh, as a student of archaeology is that nature never builds in 90 degree angles. Right. And, uh, you know, you won't see a, a river like coming down and been, you know, doing one of these things and, uh, and you don't see wind eroding in a, in a 90 degree angle. So one of the first things you, you look for, if you're looking on another planet or if you're looking, you know, for lost civilizations here on earth, as you begin looking, uh, for these 90 evidence of 90 degree angles in, uh, in architecture. And what began showing up in Antarctica, and again, this isn't like a little one-room pit house. These are massive, complex structures with room after room after room after room, within rooms, within rooms. Uh, and once those, this was around 2016, 2017, then Google Earth pixelated all of that out. And if you go to look at Antarctica right now, you will not see any of that. However, I've, I've got pre-pixelated images showing uh, where you can compare the, the same areas. So they don't want us seeing what uh, what it is that is is there. Why? Why? Is My sen- well, a couple of reasons. First of all, it messes up the story. Remember, there's a battle. There's a battle for what's called the standard model of, of history. The standard model says we began primitive about five thousand years ago. Mm. And slowly, gradually, we've evolved into the pinnacle of sophistication that, that we have today. And it's only happened once. What the cyclic model shows is that there are different kinds of technologies, Alex. And, and you can have an advanced technology and not have it based in transistors and resistors. There are other kinds of technologies. And my sense is that if these technologies... Uh, so I'm going to go back as a geologist once again. The catastrophic event theory that now ha- has a lot of evidence of, of a comet impact. So here's the, I'll just lay the ground here. Here's what was happening. We were coming in the Pleistocene. We were coming out of the Ice Age and Earth was, was beginning to warm as, as it would cyclically. All of a sudden, and this is quick, you see this drop where the the temperatures uh, on the planet drop quickly and we plunge into briefly uh, into another ice age. But what also happens during that time is there's a rapid rise in sea levels that are happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make a lot of sense until you begin to look at the evidence. It appears that this comet that impacted, scientists have been resistant to accept this theory because they'd say for something that big, it'd have to leave a, a big hole in the ground. They're assuming it was one piece that hit Earth. What we now know is there were some big pieces, and they have now found the craters in Greenland and Newfoundland. But now they have found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of smaller craters 
all the way from Greenland and Newfoundland all the way down across Europe, down into South Africa. And when they go to do the uh, the geologic testing of the craters, what they find are high amounts of standalone platinum. This is important because, first of all, platinum is a rare element to begin with. When you find it on Earth, it is generally with uh, another mineral called iridium. Iridium is a transition metal in the platinum family. There is no iridium suggesting, and scientists now they say this in the open literature, this is of extraterrestrial origin. It's not terrestrial geology. It's out, it's, it's incoming. Mm-hmm. So, so this comet broke up and scattered hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of these craters. And when that happened, the ice in, uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, most of, uh, North America, most of Northern Europe, Northern Latitudes was covered in ice. There's what we called an ice wall that was holding back large amounts of, of water that was from the melt. This comet brought a rapid intense heat that was enough to, to melt that ice wall. And there was a rapid infusion of water. So first of all, it was, uh, uh, it had a different salinity than the ocean, different temperature. It infused into the Atlantic. And we, we can see this. We have records of this. Sea levels rose in some places 200 feet. If you can imagine two, the 200 foot sea level rise, um, in, so in a so very, so Disney World's gone. Disney World's gone. Oh man. Well, most of <laughs> the coastal areas are gone. And, uh, and so all of this happened in, in a really, really very compressed period of time during a, a mysterious time called the drier yugas, mm-hmm. um, uh, or the, the, uh, not the, the yugas, uh, the younger dryas. We were talking about the Hindu yugas. It's called the younger dryas. Dryas is the name of a flower that you typically see in certain climatic, uh, conditions. And when that flower began to, to appear, uh, in the ways that it did, that was where this came from. So, so there's a little period of time called the Younger Dryas. That, uh, my, my friend, um, uh, I have a couple of friends that have done a lot of document, documentation on this. And, uh, you know, there's some pushback on it. If, if people watch any of the video Netflix series or anything mm-hmm. like that, uh, you know, they're, they're talking about Graham Hancock has, Done the Netflix series. I don't know if you saw this last mm-hmm. week. Uh, the Archaeological Association is now petitioning to have the series. If if Netflix is going to to hold it, they would prefer they not show it. If they're going to show it, they want them to reclassify it from a documentary. They don't want to call it a documentary. They now want to call it science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, even nice. though, yeah. Because, uh, because it is now the most popular and most viewed, uh, episode or, or series on Netflix. And it's giving a lot of people a, a lot of ideas about, about our past. So it, it changes the story. But now back to Antarctica. And the reason I, I talked about the, the influx of the water and the, and the dropping of the temperature quickly. If this was a highly advanced, technologically sophisticated civilization, the change that we saw happened so quickly, there's a good chance that whatever technology they were using is still there. It was preserved. They didn't have time to, uh, you know, to, to cart it away or anything. I mean, this, this is a very quick event. 
And that technology uh, threatens the status quo of the technology that we have today. Obsolete technologies like internal combustion engines and the burning, the burning of fossil fuels to create energy. I mean, those have served us and we have made great advancements based upon that. And we are at a point now where I'm amazed that we're still using internal combustion energy and, and still burning stuff, uh, to, you know, to create that kind of energy. So I think this is the reason that uh, they're trying to cover this up. You know, there was a film crew from uh, Los Angeles. There was some university students and there were some professionals that went down to document what was happening. They said go for a drive and these naps have been unbeatable. So we're getting Chevron with Techron for unbeatable mileage. Paying with the Chevron app makes this stop a snap. A very quiet snap. Unbeatable mileage for unbeatable drives. Down to document what was happening and they have not been heard from since. They've disappeared. Um, they, their families suspect that they have found some of these bases and are simply and we're uh, in Antarctica and Antarctica. Yeah, in Antarctica, that they are are being held. They're not. I don't. They don't know that they have died, but they, if they were successful in finding the bases, they probably would not have been allowed to leave. So, uh, so Antarctica, a lot of mystery happening around Antarctica, and there's a lot of diversion away from that. Mainstream doesn't want to talk about it. They're, they've been told not to talk about that. So, well, well, let me ask you this because it, it, the younger Dryas, which yeah, Grant Hancock is doing doing, doing the Lord's work in many ways, uh, doing what he's doing over these years, and that documentary series has been it's kind of like ignited a whole conversation about this. Yeah, but the Antarctica stuff has not been talked about too much. If there is these these um, these uh, structures that are being shown after the melt how because we're not this is beyond the young and dry this is this is deep into antarctica so that means that that that's been there for a long period of time what is your estimation well this is this is where it, it gets really interesting where is there a mother civilization or a father civilization depending on, on how you want to look at this indigenous traditions i i for uh for over 40 years i've led groups into the the Andes of southern Peru. Actually, in September, we're getting ready to take, it'll be my 39th trip in 36 years. Nice. uh, In in the Peru. We haven't been since COVID. It's been uh, the indigenous, yeah, the indigenous populations have not had really much outside contact since COVID. Um, Their traditions, whether we're talking about the Southern Andes or we're talking about the aboriginals uh, or in Papua New Guinea or Australia or New Zealand or, um, you know, the American desert Southwest, the Navajo, the Hopi, they all talk about previous worlds. They all say that they are the, the remnant that emerged from a previous civilization and they almost universally uh, all of the stories, as different as the traditions are from one another, they all tell the story of the Great Flood. Um, presumably this flood is the resulting of, of a rapid melting of the ice and the rising of the sea levels. And what that, what that does is when this, when the ice, there was a time about 30% during the Pleistocene, about 30% of, 
uh, of the surface area of the earth was covered in ice. And what that does, where that ice comes from, it's seawater. If it's not in the sea, that means the sea levels are lower because the water's locked up in the ice. If the water is lower, it is exposing land that connects continents, land bridges, like between Alaska and Siberia, for example, where humans could presumably walk. Um, and the same Philippines, is happening. Yeah, the, the Philippines Islands were all a big landmass. Exactly, exactly. So when you go back far enough, the indigenous traditions talk about a continent, and there are different names for this. We've all heard of these. We've heard of Lemuria uh, in the Pacific, uh, James Churchward in late uh, nine, uh, 1800s, early 1900s, linked that with uh, the lost continent of Mew, which would have uh, extended from Hawaii is is the high part that remains above water today uh, down to uh, to the uh, Malaysian islands to the to the west uh, and then down to Easter Island to the south. Those were all part of the, this this massive continent uh, and and an advanced civilization in the Pacific on the Atlantic side. Of course, we hear about Atlantis and the the technology and uh, what happened there. Well, as Again, as a geologist, it's interesting because on the Atlantic side, where Atlantis, where Plato says Atlantis was, uh, is exactly at a, a place where three of the continental plates come. It's a triple junction for the mm-hmm. continental plates, the African plate, the North American plate, and, uh, and the, the, uh, the, the northern plate to the side. When those plates come together, not only are are they often subducted? One goes under another. Like right now, the Pacific plate is being subducted by the North American plate. And that means the Pacific plate is moving underneath North America to the east. So I'm in New Mexico, just outside of Santa Fe, Colorado Rockies. The mountain ranges that we see, that is the leading edge of the Pacific plate. So in other words, if if I drilled far enough down from my studio right now, I would actually hit the Pacific plate because it's being subducted. Mm-hmm. That happens sometimes. What also happens is in a triple junction like this is there's an undulation that happens over time. And, uh, and both of those appear to, to be what is happening precisely the place where Atlantis was said to have existed. And maybe this is the answer to the question that began this conversation. Uh, when Atlantis submerged pretty quickly, the sea levels rose and they lost everything and they sent people, they sent survivors into what they called the four corners of the world with the knowledge that they had gained. They didn't have the tools, but they had the knowledge and they tried to replicate that in with the materials and the tools that they had. So, um, so this may be the answer to the question, where did this knowledge come from? And it all links back to a catastrophic event uh, that was was not foreseen, even by an advanced civilization, that obviously they had the knowledge. They knew about the cosmos and the stars and our relationship to the stars. Where Antarctica may be a little bit different is it appears to have been even older than these other civilizations and the the indigenous traditions, the stories, the cultural stories, 
say that there was a link to our cosmic family through Antarctica. And there have been reports from people who have, you know, insiders that have come through whistleblowers and things like mm-hmm. that, that not only is there are the advanced structures, but possibly craft that were stuck in the ice, mm-hmm. um, you know, when this happened. And if that's the case, then it implies technology that can be reverse engineered that could could forever free us from the shackles of the fear and the lack and the scarcity of the kinds of technology that we're uh, that we're offered today. Things like fi- finite, you know, all the technology. The technology is bringing us together right now, and the reason that the green revolution is not going to work is because it is based upon the use of 17 rare earth elements right. in just a couple of locations on earth uh, right now in nations that are not sometimes so friendly to the West. And it's a finite, it's a, a relatively small, it's a finite supply of these rare earth minerals to make the batteries, uh, to make the copper, to make the solar panels and things like they're good stepping stone. We, I think we need to embrace them to move to a more sustainable form, but they are not going to be the answer. And it could be that when we find uh, whatever is hidden in Antarctica, that it offers that technology. And that might be one of the reasons why it's, uh, it's not being shared right now. It, it ties into disclosure. And the reason that all the disclosure is not is forthcoming. It's not so I don't think anybody's surprised that we're, we have a cosmic family. I mean, we, you know, I think that's pretty broadly accepted, but the implications of an advanced technology and what it would mean uh, to our world today, from my perspective, uh, it could be a beautiful thing that frees us in in a way that does just that. It allows sovereignty for the individual uh, and for society, and that is in direct opposition to the attempts to subjugate and control that are are being levied right now through uh, through technology. So, yeah. It, well, I mean, long, an- it, long answer to a short question. It, well, I mean, and, and it's it's you know, if tomorrow morning someone woke up and said, "Oh, I discovered how we could get free energy," um, it would be stopped instantly. It, I mean, look, even the electric car in the early two thousands came out and it was working fine, and then they said, "No, no, no, this doesn't work with our business model," and they pulled it off the market. I mean, it's. It's, it's, you know, the, the, you know the, Alex, I'm going to say my, my first uh, job out of college, I, I was hired. I was a, an, a geology major, geophysics major. Uh, I was hired in the industry without my degree initially because I also had a parallel background in computers. background in computer science and in the 70s that was pretty much unheard of computers were in they were they took up a whole room very few people knew how to talk to a computer uh and i I was pretty good programmer in in the early programming languages uh and i was hired by an energy company and I, i finished my degree going nights once i was i was working there one of the first things that i i saw when i was there is that this was 1978, 79, is that there 
was a carburetor that would allow uh, a gas-guzzling vehicle to get over 90 miles to the gallon. Mm-hmm. And this was in the 1970s. And that carburetor threatens the energy industry because if all of a sudden cars are giving 90 miles to the gallon, you're not going to use as much gas, sales are going to drop. So they bought they bought up that patent and they sat on it. And to the best of my knowledge, they're still sitting on it. It has never – we're not using carburetors now. We have elect, – I mean the same way. You know, we've got electronic ignition and and different kinds of engines. But um, – but that was an example of where a technology was developed that threatened the status quo and to, to subdue it, it, they just bought it outright and never, never used it. But this is, this is where we are. And, and this is, this conversation about the ancient civilizations, it's not happening in a vacuum. It is happening within the context of a crossroad. Here we are as a civilization at, at a crossroad where we're being uh, threaten the freedoms that allow our creativity and our intuition and our imagination to create great and beautiful things to free us as uh, as a society, to free us as a species. Those are all now facing the just the opposite, the technology that wants to control, uh, that wants to um, to take away the sovereignty that we've had. So for, for a lot of different reasons, and we're seeing this through social media, of course, we're seeing it through the transhuman movement, the, the movement that, that believes that we are flawed as a species, that we need to replace our biology with artificial intelligence, with, oh. uh, with gadgets, with computer chips in the brain to be, to be more efficient. All, all this is part of a bigger conversation. And I think what it, it invites all of us to do, we've all got to come to terms with what what is it that we value? What values do we cherish as individuals? What values do we cherish as families, as communities, as societies, as nations, as as a species? And we've got to claim those values now because that is what is being threatened. And the, the, the hiding of the truth, the hiding of advanced technology, the hiding of our extraordinary potentials within our own bodies, super immune system, super cognition, super memory, super learning, all the things that we're told we need gadgets or we need chemicals to do. Our bodies do it even better. All the gadgets and the chemicals are mimicking what we already do in ourselves, except we do it better. Mm-hmm. And those are the kinds of things that uh, that are at stake right now. We're at this very, very powerful crossroad where if we it's, – and it's not going to last forever. This is moving quickly in one generation. We either choose to cherish and value our humanness and our sovereignty and our freedom – or we're going to lose it as a species. And this this is how you lose a species. We'll become a hybrid technology, biological species uh, where emotions are bred out of our existence because they're inefficient, mm-hmm. where our memories that don't serve us uh, become a, a thing of the distant past. This is exactly what the technology is doing now. And so the conversation about ancient civilizations is important. Because it tells us we do have a history. We've been here longer than we've been led to believe. 
We've had advanced technology in the past. We had to, to, to see the kinds of things that, that we're seeing right now. And I think ultimately what it says is if we have had these in the past and we as a species, if we, if we have built great and beautiful things together as a species and then something happened and we lost all of that, if we came together as a, as a family, as a global family, how far could we go this time with everything that we have now? We've got all that we need to create the evolutionary edge so that we not just survive, that we thrive through all of the things that we're seeing right now, all of the war, all the climate change, all the social change, all the political change. But we've got to claim those values, I think, and, and make those values the foundation of all the all the policies and all the laws and all the choices. So so that's my soapbox. And, and, and that's why I think the past is important, Alex, because if we don't know who we are and where we've come from, and we've made mistakes in the past. We're going to repeat those with the cycles as uh, as they come again. Uh, Greg, uh, you know I could talk to you for at least another five or six hours. Please, uh, please promise to come back and we have another deep conversation about many of the things we kind of touched upon in this one. Well, thank you. Well, I want to ask you, so you and I are having this conversation. Have you had this conversation with other guests? I've, I've dabbled in it, and it's, it's an area that I want to start t- touching more upon because my audience – based on our last conversations, which we touched upon certain aspects of it. We also talked about simulation theory and other things like that. It is something that I people are super interested in and super fascinated in. And I think it's something that not only talks about our um, our past as a species, but the implications spiritually that it has for everybody and where we've been spiritually, where we've been in, in, in evolution of our of our soul and our spirituality through, throughout the you know hundreds of thousands of years even that is something i'm really interested in kind of diving we didn't even touch the spirituality aspect of all of well this. so can we can we go can we go till 10 after the hour Are oh you please right? please oh yeah i'm, yeah, I'm here I, as I, long as you like sir <laughs> no i i uh, i did a quick text i apologize i texted while you were speaking just to let my next interview know uh i'd be a few minutes late that. When, when we talk about spirituality, it means different things, different people. And I think there's a deeper conversation that goes beyond spirituality to, a, and I'll, I'll use the term, I'll, I'll mention it and I'll define it. It goes to our divinity. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you look up the term, and I think we may have talked about this a little bit in our, our last conversation. When you, you look up the term divinity, a lot of people associate divinity with religion. And I can see why religion would have hijacked the term. Sure. But the, the term divinity, actually, if you look up the definition, it's interesting. It means the ability to transcend perceived human limitations. Our ability to not just survive, but to become more than, to thrive in the presence uh, beyond the limitations that we may have imposed upon ourselves in the past. What's happening today is there is a a movement to keep us from our divinity, to keep us so that we feel that we are powerless victims of a world that we have no control over. And if you're a victim, it means you need a savior. And the savior that's being touted is technology. Mm -hmm. We're we're being taught, our young people are being taught, all you need to do, you know, is to embrace this you know, this piece of technology, this virtual reality or computer chip. There's a proposal now to implant computer chips into the brains of all newborns 
to give them the edge so they can compete successfully in the world today. What's being missed is that when our biology is replaced by technology, if you have a computer chip working for you, it means that your neurons think they're no longer needed and your your systems begin to atrophy. If you pump chemicals into your body for an immune response, your natural immune system says, maybe you don't need me anymore. The systems will begin to atrophy. You don't have the robust systems. And this is precisely what's happening today. And, and this is where we lose our, our sovereignty as an individual because we feel that we need something outside of us to to be the best version of ourselves and to be successful in life. It's a very, very different way of thinking. And it's being done through really slick marketing. I mean, I'm aware of it, and I'm still in awe of how sexy the marketing is when I see the YouTube. You know, if you watch a, a YouTube video, you're going to get commercials, you know, while you're watching that video. Mm-hmm. And some of those commercials, if I, if I were a, a young person and didn't know what I know now, I can see where they would be drawn to sure. want to, to you know, what's wrong with a computer chip in your brain or a, a well, special. But it goes into that whole superhuman superhero aspect of it. You're like becoming Iron Man. You're becoming Iron Man. And that's kind but of see, the way they're positioning Exactly. But this is, this is where this is the battle that's coming down now for, for our divinity. Because do you accomplish that? By giving away your humanness to a technology, or do you accomplish that by developing the potential of, of human biology? We don't even know what that potential is. But here, here's now this is where the spirituality comes in. When you replace biology with polymers, synthetics, AI, and computer chips, you have replaced DNA with artificial technology. The DNA is the link to our spirituality. The DNA is the link to our biology because and, and our divinity because the DNA literally, DNA and the genes that make the DNA are literally antenna. They are soft antenna that tune us to information in a field of energy that scientists tell us underlies and, and connects all things. That is not controversial. Scientists are on board. There's a field underlying all existence, including us. We're in constant communication, non-verbally, through energetic transactions. Our DNA is picking up information. That's that's where intuition comes from. When you hear the voice in your head that says, this is a good thing to do or or, this is not a good thing to do, or when when you go into prayer and you ask for help and guidance and you receive that, you receive that because it is coming through this energetic pathway. If we give away our biology to computer chips and synthetic technology, it might help in the moment. You're giving away your divinity, your access to your greatest potential, because now you're no longer able to to communicate through these information pathways that we're only beginning to understand. You know, this is one of the reasons... Cloning technology, there's a mystery to cloning. Scientists in Dolly, the first sheep that was cloned, I mean, others had been done, but that was the the first public uh, uh, clone, appeared to be successful at first. 
And then something mysterious happened. Her body began to break down and she died uh, at about 50% of the age attained by her species. And it's not a one-off. All kinds of scientific articles are out there, peer-reviewed articles. They do this with cows. Now, bovine cloning for, uh, for you know, they, they want to breed certain kinds of, of cattle. Neat. They, yeah. they, they clone them. At first, they look fine. They might produce a couple of offspring. They will not live their full lifespan. They begin to degenerate and break down from weird diseases. And what here's what they've missed is in the cloning, there's a mismatch in the in the cloning, they, they take the ovum, they pull the DNA out and put in the DNA from another animal, but that DNA still has to communicate with the rest of the cell, and it can't because it is a different DNA from another animal. There's a, a mismatch, and that is that is an example of what happens to humans when we embrace begin replacing biology we're replacing our dna with chips and wires and chemicals we are actually limiting our our potential we're limiting our potential because we're losing the information pathway to our divinity that's a huge statement and that yeah. that's the other the other part and i've just uh, saw a series of articles on this in the science journals a computer chip it's definitely fast Definitely efficient, definitely logic, uh, much more logical maybe than human emotion. But that chip will always be limited by the physics of the stuff it's made from. Whereas a human neuron and the, the cell, uh, the cell walls of, of, uh, of, of a human, well, human cells, mm-hmm. we are scalable. And what that means is that when our neurons, for example, when they reach what we used to think was the upper end of their ability to transmit information, mm-hmm. now the neurons adapt and are able to begin transmitting higher speeds of more information um, than we ever thought was possible. We don't know the upper end of our scalability. We are a highly advanced, technologically sophisticated, soft technology. And I talk about the lot in other programs, the books, all kinds of YouTube videos, mm-hmm. soft technology. We're not chips and wires and chemicals. We're cell membranes and neurons moving ion potentials across the cell wall. And here's the beauty. You don't have to know any of it because we use thought, feeling, emotion, belief, breath, and focus. That's it. And this is what our ancestors always told. You don't have to know the tech because we're such an advanced tech. The interface is so simple. And that's right. the beautiful we're, thing. And that's we're, and we're so much more advanced than any technology that we. I mean, no one's been able to. No one's been able to duplicate the, the insanity that is our body. It is. It is our brain. How our brain works. How our cells work. How we're able to regenerate ourselves. N- none of it. None of it. And it sounds like from the cloning thing that you were saying that there is a failsafe in our system. That they. That there's. There's someone. Something in the creation of the process of what we are made of. There is a failsafe that you can't you can't mess well, around this is, with. It. It's you said that so beautifully, Alex. Thank you. And and you know I'm I'm a scientist and I believe in science. Uh, we've got to keep science honest mm-hmm. if science is going to serve us. And science has been hijacked by politics, religion, corporations, technology. 
Uh, we ask science to tell us who we are. And science has done a good job. The question is, do we love ourselves enough? Do we love ourselves enough to accept the truth of what science is telling us? And the cloning experiments, I think, is one of the pathways that will lead science to understand and accept what it is that you and I are saying right now. If they are ever going to be successful in the cloning technology, they will have to accept that there's an information exchange that is happening within the cell to a field outside of the cell and that there has to be a match of the antenna. So um, just to clarify, here's what I mean. In, in the cell, there's a nucleus of the cell. We know there's DNA in there. What a lot of people don't know is there's DNA outside of the nucleus, mitochondrial DNA. Mm-hmm. And so the, the DNA in the inside has to be able to communicate with the DNA. DNA outside, and some people are calling this junk DNA. Well, it's not junk. You know, it has it has it has a purpose. So, so I mean, just think about this. There's a communication, the DNA inside and outside the cell. So, if you now take the DNA inside the cell, throw it away, and you bring in DNA from another animal, presumably the same species, but you put that in there, there's going to be a mismatch. These two can't talk to one another. They can establish the information link, the resonant information link to the place in the field that allows them to be successful. And that's where the breakdown comes from. So when the scientific community, they will have to embrace this. Now, they'll never call it soul. They'll never call it spirit. They probably won't call it divinity, but it will lead them They'll have to understand this if they're ever going to be successful with the uh, with the cloning technology. So so uh, I think there is a place where we will meet with this kind of knowledge. And maybe this is the process. Maybe this is how it happens. I don't know. It's it's fascinating, isn't it? It is. I mean, like I said, I could talk to you for hours, Greg. And I think these conversations are so important because they are starting to plant seeds in people that might have never thought about these things because they've just been. You know, and, and you can go through, they've been, they, they swallow basically whatever they've been given. And I mean, you just go back to when I was growing up that, uh, egg yolks were good and whites were bad. And then they're like, no, 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 we're kidding. Now the whites are good. Now the eggs are yellow is bad. But now they're like, no, 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 it's kind of like, so it's kind of, it's always just something as yeah. basic of an example as that. So you have to question. And nowadays we're not just followers. There's so much information accessible to all of us, like these conversations that we've got to start asking questions about things that, are mysterious. Even quantum physics, the, sure. the physics community doesn't even want to accept these ideas yet. And it's like, come on already, for God's sake. Yeah. Well, let's, you know, I, I just want to acknowledge to our viewers, we covered a lot of ground today <laughs> at, at a, a high level, maybe didn't do it justice. Maybe we shouldn't have, have breached, uh, <laughs> you know, some of the topics, but, but they all really are part of the same conversation. And it's about us, our potential, our relationship to the world around us. And ultimately, it's about our our ability and our willingness to love and honor the body that we have. The history is telling us about who we have been and what our potential is. So, so the the battle for our story involves these ancient civilizations, and it's it's not like a little offshoot over here. I think it's it's central. To, to what's happening. And I, I really appreciate you. I had no idea. This is unscripted, obviously. I had no idea what we're going to talk about today. And, and I appreciate you choosing uh, this particular topic because I, I do think it's, 
it's important. And maybe we laid the foundation for Alex and Greg, uh, volume three. Yes, I hope so, my friend. We've definitely got to get you back on the show. Greg, I know you're a busy man. I know you got to go. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Is there anything, anywhere that people, if people want to find out more about you and the amazing work you're doing, where do they go? You know, they, uh, first of all, I have a dedicated YouTube channel so that the work cannot be sliced and diced and misrepresented as it is when it's not on that channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Greg Braden, uh, on, on YouTube, there's only one official channel, uh, where we talk about a lot of these things in more detail and much more, as well as I uh, just go to the website, gregbraden.com, G-R-E-G-G, two G's, B-R-A-D-E-N.com, and, uh, trips to Peru, you know, uh, speaking engagements all over the world, things like that. So Alex, thank you so much for the work you do. Thank you for your trust, my friend, and for sharing me with your community. Uh, I'm honored, and I look forward to uh, to part three. I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you again. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks for watching. Oh, my. Click on. What do you say, Rama? I think we're on to the... Uh, it's really close for full contact to be announced on a global scale, yeah. I believe. Rama's got the Ancient <laughs> Aliens channel on the TV, and it says the possibility of direct human contact with extraterrestrial life within the highest levels of the U.S. government. I mean... Mm. That's how the TV guide. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, I'll read this. I'll read this. Um, let's read what Aurora Ray has to say today. And then it'll be time for a look at the stars with mm-hmm. Richard and Tanya, and Kepacha, etc. And Rama will print out. You can go print it out. Yeah. Okay, so this is Indigo Children have an innate ability to communicate with the planet and the world around them. They have a deep connection with the universe, which means they can connect with their higher selves, know what's best for them, and make good decisions. Unlocking the mystery of indigo. Generation Z is just a 98.99.9% indigo. Okay, so here we go. Children, what you need to know. We've all heard about children born with special gifts. They are called indigo children. However, some parents are wondering as it's something to be concerned about and what their children might be up to. Indigo children are being born into the world at an incredible rate. They have a wide wide range of talents, abilities, and emotional lives. So So what is an indigo child's ultimate secret? Are they different from the rest of us? Do they possess superpowers? Does their, does their consciousness have some kind of alien origin? Are they new species on Earth? 
And why does this phenomena appear to be increasing? Is it possible to know the future of our children just by looking at their DNA? These are the questions I have been asking myself for some time. So many parents have told me that their child has displayed certain characteristics at an early age, often around five or six years old. It's almost like they have a sixth sense about certain things, and it's always correct. Wouldn't it be nice to know as you're an indigo child? Okay, maybe you already do know. You've noticed that your children are different and have a special sparkle about them. Yet maybe you have been... Uh, just a moment. You have been searching for answers in vain. You feel as though something is outside, out of the balance, out of balance, yet you don't know what or why. Uncovering the mystery of indigo children is one of the most exciting endeavors you will ever undertake as a parent. It's a wonderful adventure, and anyone who comes becomes an indigo child or a parent will surely be enriched in countless ways. As you are the parent of an indigo child, understand that you that they are incredibly special and will change the world. Trust me. As I say that your children can change the course of history and that you are helping to create such a mo- movement right now, it may sound too, too incredible to believe, yet there would be no world for children as these special ones were not first born into it. So, keep reading to learn more about indigo babies and then share it with your friends and family. Indigo children are highly intuitive. They can read people's thoughts and they can know what's going on in their minds. They have a sixth sense of things. Indigo children are bright, creative, and keenly aware. They are more mature than most kids their age, and often they have advanced knowledge of social issues. They have an understanding of themselves that is deeper than most adults. They know who they are and what they want from life. Indigo children are individuals who have an innate ability to communicate with the planet and the world around them. Um, they have a deep connection with the universe which means they can connect with their higher selves (laughs) know what's best for them and make good decisions without being told what to do they are open to change and they want things to change for the better in the world they possess a clear sense of self-definition and purpose These individuals are often described as having an internal knowing of themselves and where they come from. And they can also be described as being spiritually connected to their families and their ancestors. They have a strong sense of right and wrong, yet they may not 
always follow societal norms or traditional rules of conduct. They often have incredibly developed psychic abilities that allow them to connect with people on a level beyond words or other forms of communication. They also tend to be very empathic, which means that they connect easily with others' emotions, even as those emotions are difficult for them to understand on an intellectual level. Indigo children are often described as shining beings or having a gift of some kind. They frequently possess an intuitive understanding of how things work and can even predict the future. They are also very aware of their surroundings. They're always looking for ways to improve themselves. They are not afraid to take risks or try new things. So long as... It doesn't put them in danger or cause them harm. Indigo children are born with the ability to see beyond what we call reality, which means that they have eyes that can see beyond our physical views of things. They are born into a world where the old ways are no longer working, and they seek out answers from those who can provide those answers. Indigo children are also known as ancient ones by some cultures because they were once here on this planet before the humans came along. They were taught by the creator how to use their natural abilities to help others in need. They have an innate sense of justice and fairness, which often makes them stand out in a crowd of people who are not so fair-minded. They can often pick up on subtle clues that others miss. And while they may be different from other kids, keep in mind that they experience life much like anyone else. You can count on them to experience joy and pain, as well as all the things in between. As much as possible, try to provide a space where they can develop their special gifts empathy and compassion in a way that will serve them their community and the world indigo children need a great deal of understanding acceptance and patience as they struggle with their unique gifts and challenges with the right support they have the potential to achieve great things and many Many even surpass our expectations of them. And as you're an indigo adult who has been through some of this before, there is no need to shy away from sharing your experiences by doing so. You foster understanding among parents who may be struggling with similar challenges. Whether you are an indigo adult or the parent of an indigo child, it's good to know that you are not alone. There are many other indigos out there who are feeling the same way, and they and there are plenty of ways to support your own indigo child and 
learn from others' experiences. In the end, whether or not you believe in indigos, there are many good things to consider and plan for as you raise your one, your one of a kind child, adopt open mindedness and be flexible as you adjust and adapt your parenting style to meet your child's needs. You may even find that some of the indigo characteristics listed are true of your own child. And it doesn't matter as it's an indigo or not. As you see a trait in yourself or your child, it's worth exploring how best to take advantage of those strengths. To say that indigo children are misunderstood would be an understatement. People tend to judge them by their appearance. And let's be honest, they are not the easiest children to have a conversation with. Yet once you get to know them and learn how to connect with them, there is so much more to discover. There is a whole world in there just waiting to be unlocked. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho, Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. And Rama, last word before we take a break. Keep looking up. (laughs) I can't top that. That's a good idea, everybody. Keep looking up. And we'll take a little break. We'll see you in 10 or 15. And thank you for being here and sharing this together and listening. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Namaste, Satna. For now. That's the talking stick to you, Richard. Hello, hello. Hello, Richard. All righty, it's the 29th. It is. Oh, my. Today in this month, and here comes May. That's right. And Mercury is still retrograde <laughs> at 13 Taurus. And it's right there in between the sun at 10 degrees and Uranus at 19 degrees. Yeah. The moon's at Three degrees Virgo tonight. And Venus is at 22. Gemini. Mars is at 19. Gemini. Jupiter is at 27. Aries. Saturn is hanging out at 6 degrees of Pisces. And Neptune is at 27. So Neptune's at 27 Pisces and Jupiter's at 27 Aries. So they're exactly 30 degrees apart. Wow. (coughs) Hmm. Yeah, Jupiter's creeping up towards Uranus. It's creeping up towards the North Node. Jupiter conjunct North Node ought to give us uh, some indicator as to where we're going as a group on the planet, you know, collectively, all together. 
it's beginning to show up, you know, because it's only, it's only from 27 to 5. So it's only 8 degrees separation between Jupiter and the North Node. All right, Pluto is still at 1, Aquarius, and Saturn is at 6, Pisces. And Neptune is at uh, 27, Pisces. So that's the layout. And I don't know what to do with it, except continue to work with Mercury retrograde, conjunct Uranus and the sun. Oh, my, oh, my. All right. Let's go listen to Kaipacha. Okay. Okay. Kaipacha with the weekly Pele report, and uh, this one is for Wednesday, April 26th of 2023. And I am too late with the Pele report and too busy to go on a hike out in nature down to the river. So I'm just going to be here in the front yard. It's a long story, but nature is all around us, and that's what our mantra is about today. So let's look at the big picture of nature. Yeah? Zoom out a little bit. That has to do with then what? The moon is in the sign of cancer, baby. It passed up Mars, coming into, you know, it's going to oppose Pluto, going to uh, Leo on Thursday. That's tomorrow. And it's going to go through Leo, uh, squaring the sun. And I'm going to read you the uh, the description of the Sabian symbol for the moon squaring the sun. That is happening exactly at 7 degrees, 21 minutes of Leo. The sun is at 7 degrees, 21 minutes of Taurus. Yeah. And, of course, conjunct the north node of the moon, which is at 4 degrees of Taurus. I'm going to be talking about this Taurus nodes, Taurus square, Aquarius, because Pluto is up there in Aquarius. Pluto is stationing to go retrograde on Monday. Yeah, and he's going to stay retrograde all the way until October 10th. So I want to be talking about Pluto retrograding. Back out of Aquarius, back into Capricorn, squaring the moon's nodes. This is going to be what's going on. This is going to be what we're dealing with here for a little while. That's what I'm going to be talking about. (laughs) Besides that, Mars is moving along through Cancer, right? Coming into a square with Chiron tomorrow. Okay, Mars square Chiron. I'm going to go back and just, you know, briefly discuss a little bit about that. Mars was conjunct Chiron, okay, back in, um, oh gosh, when was that? Uh, June 14th of 
14th of 2022, almost a year ago, okay, Mars was conjunct uh, Chiron, and that was at the 16th degree of Aries. If you will recall, that is about the nature spirits. I might refer to that Sabian symbol too. So there's a little something here coming on, okay, a little more with this uh, Mars Chiron connection that we need to discuss a little further. Besides that, of course, the sun is traveling right along with Mercury this whole time, and they are exactly conjunct on Monday. Sun conjunct Mercury combust. Hazeening. Yeah. Look at those guys. So beautiful. It's all in the details. All right. Let me look at the camera, talk to you a little bit about trying to make sense out of all the things that are going on at the same time here. The sun is moving through Taurus with Mercury, with the north node of the moon, and we want to think about Taurus. We want to feel into Taurus, ruled by Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, earth, fixed earth, the bull, symbol of fertility for thousands of years. We want to feel into fertility. We want to feel into the sensuous, earthly beauty and wonders. I mean, I got the the bumblebees behind me and I'm smelling the lavender as I'm, you know, giving this report. And it's just the, this, I'm sitting on the ground <laughs> and it's good to go barefoot on Gaia. And, 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 and feel into what I really want to say is a living being. And I want to discuss this, you know, very, very much so today and, and try to get this across to you. This are, you know, what is life? What is living? Uh, I just read this article by Charles Eisenstein. Uh, I, I gotta give him a shout out here. The sun is alive. Was the, was the title of the article, right? And I'm, I'm reading his book on, on the climate and, uh, and, and the whole uh, climate change thing that's going on now. I'm going to get to that a little later, but I just want to get into this definition of what is life. Because when we look at anthroposophy and we look at spiritual science, we, you know, we have many aspects of life. We have angels and archangels. We have, you know, that Jupiter is alive and the sun is alive and Gaia is a spiritual being, that we have spiritual beings and these spiritual beings are alive and they're speaking with us and working with us and they connect with us on the astral and the etheric planes. And so, you know, the, the, the definition of what is alive and what life is, is much grander, 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 grander than what our materialistic science is telling us life is about or consists of or is defined by what this is going on, you know, what's what's happening now. And I think this is very, very important because I'm going to be now talking about Pluto in Aquarius for the next 20 years until 2044. 
Pluto is moving through Aquarius. This uh, Pluto is the symbol of evolution, right? The force of evolution. So have, we've been evolving through Capricorn since 2008. And usually when Pluto enters into a new sign, there's a crisis. He brings with it an evolutionary impulse. Something must die. Something needs to be died alchemically transformed and resurrected well over the you know over since 2008 it's been the government's external authority what we look to for physical and financial security has had to evolve so it started out with a financial crisis and now we have a global government and the world health organization trying to like you know take over uh, you know uh, sovereign governments and nations and you know so we're moving from you know nations into global situation conditions of government and and then now it's going into aquarius and we have artificial intelligence uh, uh, the uh, joe biden just announced the u.s is going to introduce a digital currency Okay, so we've got digital currency, we've got, you know, the the whole change in global consciousness, and of course, Aquarius rules the climate. So we're going to have, you know, over the next 20 years, this, you know, this whole climate change thing is going to be coming up more and more and more and more, and artificial intelligence more and more and more, and science and technology and implants and, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's happening. It's not going to be stopped. It's not going back. We have to go forward. And it's very interesting now that, okay, Pluto is stationing to go retrograde. What is that? Retrograde has to do with, okay, the Earth is coming around closer to the planet. It's passing the planet by, so it appears to be going backwards. It's an optical illusion, okay? But that optical illusion is saying, guess what? That planet is closer to Earth. We are approaching that planet. Pluto is retrograde almost half of the year, almost half the time. Half of us were born with a Pluto retrograde. What is retrograde? Rebel, reorient, rethink, revolt. It is a time of individualizing of personalizing, of bringing this, you know, so here we have the Pluto, the force of evolution. Retrograde is I'm going to evolve in my own way. Unconventional, outside the box, okay? Not following, but no, I need to like really, you know, Rebel against the norm, rebel against the consensus, rebel against what I am given and evolve something new, something different. So here we are, you know, it's going retrograde, like I said, from now till October 10th. So collectively, there is going to be this kind of backlash. Like, hey, wait a minute. Okay, it's been direct for the last six months. It's been more conventional. Now there's going to be, uh, no, (laughs) Uh, this is not okay. Okay, you know, this new mandate or this new decree or this new law or this new, you know, structure or in your personal life, you know, 
this new job, this new boss, uh, this new relationship needs to, you know, redefine itself, needs to evolve, needs to step out of, okay, you know, the old way that it was, you know, like the sheaf of corn, okay, you know, kind of, and you have to peel it back to get to the corn. (laughs) So this is the retrograde Pluto. So we, uh, you know, and it's going back into Capricorn. It is at this zero degree, okay, of Aquarius for, uh, what is it? I mean, it's, it's interesting. Pluto is going to be going back and forth and back and forth, okay, through this degree, uh, you know, many times from, uh, from March 30, uh, well, no, from the 24th to June 12th. Uh, it's at zero degrees from March 24th. Then now it's stationing retrograde. It's going to go back until June 12th. That's 11 weeks at the very zero degrees of Aquarius. Goes back into Capricorn. Comes back forward. Okay. And is, and goes in that, through that zero degree from January 22nd to February 22nd of 2024. Then it goes retrograde from July 18th to September 2nd of 2024 at that zero degrees. Then in November 20th to December 30th, it goes direct finally through that zero degrees again the last time for five more weeks. So we have this, the cusp of Capricorn Aquarius getting bam, 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 bam. I know because I got the sun opposite at zero Leo. <laughs> I'm getting bam, 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 bam. <laughs> Anybody with anything at zero fixed, you know, zero Scorpio, zero Taurus, you're getting a Pluto. Bam, 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 bam. For what? A total of 24 weeks at exactly zero degrees. Ow! It is, it's going back to 27. Okay, and then it's going up to three, and then it's coming back, you know, to zero, and then it's going, so, you know, it's doing this whole dance. But right now, it is square the moon's nodes, and that is getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And it's going to go retrograde back into Capricorn, just as those moon's nodes goes retrograde into Aries, and we are going to have an exact Pluto square the moon's nodes at 29 degrees, four minutes of Aries Capricorn. Obviously, Libra also involved with the south node of the moon. But uh, that is going to be on July 24th. So from now until July 24th and then even into, you know, August and September, Pluto is square the moon's nodes almost this whole year. And that is intense pressure to evolve, change, transform, let go of the old and in with the new. Simultaneously, we can see Pluto and Saturn are ending, Neptune ending their cycles. At the same time, Jupiter and Chiron 
in Aries are starting a new cycle. So we have kind of a portion of the population, a part of ourselves, breaking out, breaking free, breaking away out of this Pluto, Saturn, Neptune that is still kind of, so it's like the old patriarchy is hanging on while there is a new reality of interbeing, as Charles would say, <laughs> emerging. And what is this about? This is what I really want to talk about. This Not only this definition of life, but this whole new paradigm New paradigm astrology. What is this new paradigm about? It is about interbeing. And that is about over, overthrowing this idea of separation and returning to this law of one, returning to this aspect that we are all spiritual beings and we are connected in this web of life that is completely interdependent and interwoven and inter, you know. So, and and this gives us a sense of support. This gives us a sense of nurturing. This gives us a sense of belonging. This gives us a sense of connection. And this is going to heal not only the environment and not only our uh, sense of loneliness and isolation, okay, but it's also going to heal the environment and it's going to heal the economies and it's going to heal our cultures and our societies and it's going to heal science and it's going to heal our medical establishments. It's going to heal everything. When we come into this sense and this knowing Okay, that nature is not some separate thing out there, that if we get rid of uh, uh, our carbon, we're going to fix the climate, or that if we, you know, that we separate things out like materialistic science wants to do. This is Pluto moving into Aquarius, revolutionizing science. The way that we come to our conclusions about what to do and what choices and decisions to make needs to be based on an enlightened Aquarius, Uranus, an enlightened perspective of the greater, greater whole. This is Aquarius. And it's going to be revolutionary. And that revolutionary, you know, has to do with the ending of this materialistic perspective and viewpoint and coming into this sense of love and union and connection so that when I talk about nature, okay, I'm not talking about rocks and stones and foxes and bears and birds and uh, carbon and da, 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 da. I'm talking about the spiritual beings, the group souls, Okay, the interweaving of how my body is and my astral body and etheric body are nourished and fed by the astral body and the etheric bodies of Gaia, of planet Earth. And there is this interweaving and interpenetration of soul spirit forces. And then... What does this do? <laughs> this sense of connection 
back to Charles Eisenstein. He's great, man. I'm going to put the link to his website and his Substack below. And, I'm, and his book on climate is where I'm also drawing, okay, this whole thing of addiction. We've got Neptune, okay, in Pisces. We've got Saturn in Pisces. This deals with addictions because addictions are what we use to fill the void, fill the emptiness. And when we feel disconnected, when we feel lonely, when we feel isolated, when we feel separated, let's not forget the ego lives in separation. So when we're in our ego, we feel the separation. When we move out of ego into soul spirit, we know we are connected and united. And when we are in love, when we are in our heart's magnetic field, we can feel this connection with nature. And that I'm not, I'm not sitting on Gaia, okay? I am one with Gaia. When I get out of this physical, egoic consciousness into this expanded state of meditative consciousness... This is very important because, you know, I just got off this call, this AI call, you know, about using chat GPT, you know, to help design a meditation practice. And it's just like, no, I'm sorry. You know, a meditative practice is moving into soul, spirit, heart, out of square wave, linear, logical, rational, artificial a computerized, uh, you know, state of, uh, you know, definitions, define, finite, okay, of what the heart is, of what warmth is, of, of what love is. There's, there's th- these, the artificial intelligence can really delude us into thinking that uh, because it's so fast, it actually knows. And it's very deceptive. We need to be very careful how we use our artificial intelligence. I just wanted to say it's like, it's like a carpenter. Uh, you know, a, a contractor knows everything about how to build a house, okay? How to do roofing and plumbing and electrical and, and siding and how to use a hammer and a saw and da, 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 da. And that's great. So artificial intelligence is great when it comes to you know, uh, like building a house or something that is material and physical and defined in this world. But to it, t- take a carpenter, okay, and, you know, ask him, you know, to, you know, to, uh, you know, perform surgery, uh, you know, a- a- ask him to, you know, heal, uh, you know, uh, you know, your psychology, a- ask him to, uh, you know, be an astrophysicist. We don't want to like be taking AI, okay, and thinking that it has some kind of philosophical wisdom or some kind of, you know, uh, understanding or some kind of, uh, I mean, no, <laughs> no. And I know it's teaching itself, but it's only teaching itself off of the food that it has been given. And the food that it has been given has been food from materialistically oriented programmers that are, you know, it's so, it's going to, you know. So these, 
you know, Mars is moving through cancer. The moon is in cancer right now as I'm speaking to you. This is a water sign, earth and water, feminine, non-linear, non-logical, non-rational, feeling, inner world of, of nature in all of her splendor and glory in square to this Pluto up there in Aquarius. So it's time for a revolution. <laughs> and it's time to, like today's mantra says, oh, I wanted to read to you the square. First of all, this is great. This is great. The, the, the square for uh, the square moon, you know, that's coming up. It's at uh, the eighth degree of Leo. This is the Sabian symbol for Leo, eight degrees. The square is happening at seven degrees, 21 minutes. You always round up when you read the Sabian symbol. Because from zero, seven degrees, zero minutes to seven degrees, 59 minutes, that is the eighth degree of Leo. A communist activist spreading his revolutionary ideals. <laughs> the emotional and ideological attempt to return to a state of non-differentiation and chaos as a prelude to a new type of order. A new paradigm. There's a new order coming. This symbol beyond all present-day socio-political controversy, represents the activity of destructive or catabolic forces in answer to the type of confrontation suggested by the symbol for Leo six degrees. The old order is confronted by the youthful drive for a new way of life and a new sense of values. As the old order refuses to yield its prerogatives, this refusal polarizes violent revolutionary action. The revolutionary may have beautiful dreams of a classless society free from greed and harsh struggle for survival. But the first practical result of his activity almost inevitably appears as chaos. Yet chaos is a state of being that calls for a new descent of the power to reorganize and differentiate Alas, such a descent most often is still based on old concepts. And one witnesses a struggle for personal and dictatorial power. I want to return to this idea of this, you know, of this ending of separation. It's an old paradigm based in ego differentiation and separation. And that separation leads to self-interest. It leads to self-preservation. It leads to a sense of a limited supply. 
It leads to a sense of loneliness and emptiness that leads to addiction and us filling that with more love and more power and more money and more uh, food and more drugs and more, uh, it's just more fossil fuels. I mean, so everything, you know, so many of our problems are based upon addiction and the and the basis of addiction is a sense of emptiness and isolation, which is based upon a fundamental conception of separation. So if we want to get to the root of all of our issues and problems that we will be facing from now until 2068, when Pluto starts a new cycle in Aries, we want to come down to the kernel to the seed, to the root source of the problem. And that is living in an old egoic paradigm of separation. And when we shift out of that paradigm in a revolutionary way into a new paradigm of connection, of unity, that is first felt in the very Neptunian, Piscean, subtle realms before it comes out of that psychic, subtle realm into, okay, the mental and the emotional and finally the physical. So this is a process. And we can aid in that process by loving. We can aid in that process by overcoming feelings of separation of judgment against other human beings and fighting for our position, our point of view, our solutions, I, me, my, my self-interest in being right and just come into states of compassion. This is really going to make the big shift. (laughs) This is Pluto. On the verge, on the edge of Aquarius. Let us be these revolutionaries with our new pamphlets of love and unity consciousness that is going to really be the source. And we're, and so it's not about fighting. It's not about us and them. It's not about separation. Being that light and listening and learning from the spiritual world of nature is really going to be the foundation piece, the foundation stone that we can really build upon for a new reality and a new paradigm. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) You know. I am not here to master nature, but quite the opposite indeed. For the more I live and grow and learn, the more I see nature teaching me. 
When we come at the world, when we come at nature, when we come at planet Earth, when we come to the environment, when we come to our bodies and we think that our technology is, you know, going to make us smarter or make us live longer or improve our uh, you know, state of divinity. And, uh, you know, it's like, no, I'm sorry. We are natural beings. We are natural spirit soul beings. And we are, you know, we are to learn from our bodies and we are to learn from the limitations that nature puts upon us. There's only so much fossil fuel. There's only so much oil. There's only so much blah, blah, this, that, and the other thing. There's only so many hours in a day. These are our teachers. It's not about mastering and conquering and dominating and something outside of ourselves. No, 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 no. (laughs) It's like taking a fish out of water. (laughs) wanting the fish to control the ocean. Get out of town, man. We have to humble ourselves. We have to take our place. And our place is not as high up there as these egoic gods running these (laughs) world organizations and these billionaires think it is. So... There's going to, uh, well, I'm not going to say what's going to happen. I mean, I, I feel like I have a sense of what's going to happen, but uh, it's going to be, you know, different for everybody. Let's just close today's report with one more time. <clears throat> I am not here to master nature, but quite the opposite indeed. For the more I live and grow and learn, the more I see nature teaching me. May we learn with our eyes and ears and nose and heart wide open. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. the talking state back to you Richard all right thank you brother okay I am looking at the full moon chart which happens this Friday the 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern at 15 degrees on that Taurus Scorpio axis. And along with that, opposition, Mars is coming into late Cancer, so it's nearly opposite Pluto. Venus.
about the effects of that. And it's also square Jupiter. And Mercury, it will be at 9 degrees on Friday. So that's conjunct the sun with Uranus on the other side at 19 degrees. So you got 9 plus 6 is 15, and 15 plus 4 is 19. So that's, you know, that's, that's the PowerPoint. Now also, as Mars gets up to 22 Cancer, it's going to be trying Neptune. As Neptune gets up to... Uh, zero Aries, it's close to sextile to zero Pluto. So we got that going on. Uh, let's see, Venus is sextile Jupiter. That's pretty close to exact. Venus uh, 2754. And Jupiter twenty seven twenty six. So those are your those are your aspects for Friday afternoon. So the full moon energies are gonna kick in Thursday and be all day Friday and all day Saturday. So get ready for that. It's an interesting one. I can I can say it depends. On, I'm looking at I'm you know I'm considering my own chart right because my own, my own my own sun is at 12 Scorpio. So this full moon is uh, is you know on my own you know on my own sun there. So we'll we'll uh, wish for good wishes for me, and uh, that's it. That's all I got to say for tonight. Okay, come in. All right, let's go see what Tanya's got on her mind. Our right. transformation. Yeah. Transformation, that's... yeah, well, you know, Pluto, 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 rules, yes, rules Scorpio, which rules the unseen world. Yeah, he has this cap of invisibility. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I'm invisible even when I'm walking around in public. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good thing. That's a good thing, is right. Okay. Well, everybody have a good week, and we'll talk to you next week. There okay, we thank you, Richard. Let's see you next time. All right, namaste. Namaste. This is Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the astrology and morality forecast where we look at an upcoming event 
so that we're prepared energetically and can rise to the occasion. In this case, we definitely want to rise to the occasion because we're covering the Scorpio lunar full moon eclipse. And Scorpio is one of those signs where we are dealing with control, empowerment, and in general, just bringing things to the surface that we're not really seen before now. So it's a big aha moment time, but also a big cleansing and healing time. So this full moon eclipse happens on May 5th, which is the fifth month. We're going to get into the numerology in a moment because it is quite extraordinary. So it happens on May 5th at 6.34 p.m. Universal Time, and that's 1.34 p.m. Eastern New York and 10.34 a.m. Pacific L.A. So this lunar eclipse has the moon at 14 degrees, 58 minutes Scorpio, opposite the sun, 14 degrees, 58 minutes in Taurus. And what's amazing is the number 14 reduces to 5, 1 plus 4 is 5, and the eclipse happens on 5-5, May 5th. So we have a quadruple 5 code, which really will accelerate the energy, especially regards to freedom and being flexible, welcoming the unexpected. And that theme is brilliantly echoed in the astrology itself because we have the sun conjunct Uranus. The sun is almost 15 degrees Taurus and Uranus is at 18 degrees in Taurus. And Uranus also represents breakthroughs and freedom and releasing old patterns, just basically starting fresh. And I know this is a full moon eclipse, so things are culminating. So we have a lot of different messages going on here between the release and the culmination, the emotional culmination, which is heightened during an eclipse. It's like a big full moon, but also then the new beginnings part of it. Now, this is the second of two eclipses. Eclipse season, if you remember, began on April 20th with the total solar new moon eclipse in Aries. And Aries is ruled by Mars. Mars is the co-ruler of Scorpio, along with Pluto. Pluto is the modern ruler. So we have a lot of Mars energy activated right now. Not only that, a day after the solar eclipse on April 20th, Mercury stationed retrograde in Taurus. And for this eclipse, this full moon eclipse, this lunar eclipse, the sun is in Taurus. Many broad subjects are covered because Taurus and Scorpio, sun and Taurus, moon and Scorpio for this lunar eclipse, are on the axis of everything to do with financial flow. Money, abundance, prosperity, wealth. So re-looking at maybe your approach to how you attract abundance, Are you feeling abundant to begin with? Because this is a time to release those old patterns about money, that money is evil. And, you know, really looking at that it's just an energetic exchange, that money is purely the energy that you put into sustaining your life by giving is service and receiving energy in return in the form of money. So this is going to be a big subject as well. So we have some lovely additional aspects to really calm down the energy. And one of them 
is exact and it is Jupiter sextile to Venus. It's so beautiful. They're both at 27 degrees and these are the two benefics. And when they create a harmonious aspect, you just feel good. So you have this good juju energy as well as the very intense Scorpio energy. And we are literally now coming to the point where our instinct, everything that we feel is being called into action. That Scorpio really governs your ability to instinctually sense what is appropriate because Scorpio is so sensitive. It feels everything. It is a water sign. And along with purging and eliminating, Scorpio wants to get involved. Scorpio doesn't want things to be hidden. It wants things to be exposed. Nothing is is swept under the carpet. So there's a real sense here of the passion to bring things to the surface. And remember, Pluto is the modern ruler of Scorpio. So Pluto is really helping here to intensify and transform and uncover the truth and observing acutely everyone and everything. And Pluto also will deal with things like abdicating power or control issues or power struggles. And on the other hand, transforming that, coming through that and uh, acting from a place of compassion and service. Because when we are in a power struggle, we can't access our intuition and instinct and compassion. So we're not allowing ourselves and we're learning that not to be uh, intimidated and controlled and manipulated. This is These are all subjects that Scorpio covers. So Scorpio is about change and restoration. And remember that Uranus is opposite the moon. So it's really going to accentuate the change part. And it will happen in many cases very unexpectedly. So it's really a fantastic time for growth. If things get difficult, just know that you're growing. There's things to see, to release, to let go. And you need to give others the space to do the same, right? So don't personalize things. Scorpio sometimes can get possessive or too intense or obsessive, controlling, secretive, judgmental, or brooding. And so those are the shadow sides to watch during this time. Some of the other positive sides of Scorpio are the loyalty and being steadfast when adverse things happen. And basically being able to go deep, being able to not gloss over things and facing fears, especially the fear of death. Scorpio governs that. So it's really the phoenix rising from the ashes and one more thing that the numerology code for this particular eclipse is quite amazing. We have, of course, the quadruple five, but we also have a universal date. Five, five, 2023 adds up to a universal date of 17. And 17 is the immortality number. That's what I call it. It basically governs leaving a legacy behind. So whatever you do around this eclipse is going to have a long-term impact on your life. So there's a sense of freedom through the five and then immortality, and they blend together for a powerful awakening at this time. Now, another aspect to look at is that Mercury is retrograde during this full moon eclipse, 
And Mercury is sextile Saturn during this retrograde. And so it does give you wonderful powers of concentration and perseverance to look within, to revisit a topic. Uh, your mind is going to feel very thorough and Saturn is a thorough planet to begin with. So it's going to go into deep philosophical thinking. You're considering everything with a lot of patience and this also favors looking at business dealings. Keep in mind Mercury's retrograde. So after the 14th, 15th of May is when you can actually consummate and sign contracts. But there's a lot of really good uh, communication regarding anything to do with business around this time as well. Now, Mars, co-ruler Scorpio, is sextile to Uranus, and that really intensifies your creativity, your yearning for independence, uh, making quick decisions, operating on instinct. So prepare for surprising developments. Your enthusiasm is really absolutely heightened, and your desire for fun and excitement is also heightened. And Mars, again, co-ruler Scorpio, so co-ruler of this eclipse, is also trying to Neptune, which is absolutely beautiful. You're going to take action about your spiritual yearnings, your spiritual nourishment. So Mars just is very proactive. So there's a lot of proactive energy regarding kindness, regarding love, which is not necessarily Mars's strong suit. But in this trying to Neptune, Neptune being a water planet and this being a Scorpio eclipse, a water sign, there's a lot of beautiful opportunities for being in a place of just romancing life and feeling compassionate sensuality and really getting into a place where you transmute any uh, challenges or anger through kindness, through love. So it's a beautiful growth experience as well. So yeah, Scorpio governs the unseen and much will come to the surface. And remember that eclipses do leave an impact of around six months just globally. If the eclipse is creating a strong aspect in your natal chart, then the impact can last as much as two years. So that's a good thing to know. Where is it taking place in your birth chart? In essence, you want to just look at what am I resisting? What am I not seeing that is really been calling my attention? Something that I may have suppressed because I've been so busy or just didn't want to deal with it. And take yourself back to your heart. This is really the key. When you go into your heart, you naturally become passionate and disciplined about the things that truly matter. The things that are for your highest good. This eclipse is extremely proactive and it will help you stop the procrastination. It'll help you stop being defensive and just get on with it and get in touch with the vibration of your soul to raise it, to always know it. things are constantly in flux and changing and that's good. What if things remain the same? We wouldn't be able to create anything. So this is really gorgeous energy. It's very subtle. It's very much about attuning and expressing yourself in a profound way that does not uh, fake anything. You know, Scorpio is not fake. Scorpio is, th this is 
This is really how things are. You know, the stinger goes to the truth. So trust in your heart and trust that you have this eternal connection so you don't have to disempower others. You can just feel powerful inside and spirit will always provide. You don't need to get into power struggles. Your heart is the source of all abundance. So tuning into here is the big key as usual. And this eclipse is so stunning in so many ways and uh, will bring you a lot of joy. One other thing I want to mention is the moon is forming a trine to Mars and the sun is sextile to Mars. So that's also where a lot of the forward momentum energy is coming. And Mars is a co-ruler of the eclipse. So where is Mars? Mars is in Cancer, the sign that the moon actually naturally rules. So you will feel activated in terms of things involving children, the home, your family, and basically nourishment, basically anything that uh, reaches you here, that sustains you here, that allows you to feel. Cancer is a water sign, Scorpio is a water sign, and Neptune had that has that beautiful trine to Mars, and Neptune is in Pisces. So we have a water sign activation in a big way, which is totally about compassion and the heart. So I leave you with that. And if you want to know more about your astrology and your numerology, I have a free masterclass for you where you can discover your birth code. You can go to starcodeclass.com and it's all revealed. You get a handout, you discover your destiny, your purpose. They're based on your numerology code and your birth name. And then we go into your astrology as well. And it is a really fun class. So enjoy that at starcodeclass.com. And you have an amazing Scorpio lunar eclipse. And I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. I guess we can go to the conference call. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I Rama's been wanting to play this water about water, and uh, she was um, Tanya was just talking about you know cancer. That's the natural sign of the moon is in and that's water and Neptune is water and um, nourishment and, uh, and that that thing about water it's really important to get the the best water you know and um, I gotta go back to the gods water here huh? <laughs> but uh I guess it's time to. What do you what, have? Anything else you want to say, Rama? Because we got a few minutes. Um, amazing energy is happening. 
day in the high heart is what I could say. <laughs> Let all the Maya go. Yeah. Ho, ho, ho. They're talking about that Skinwalker Ranch on that Ancient Aliens, too, Ronald. Yeah, that's a wild place. Yeah, that's not that far from here. It's in Nevada, right? Yeah. A little bit north in in, in the northern part of Nevada, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure. Is it northern Nevada? It's near Vegas, I, oh. I think. I'm not sure. Uh, Skinwalker Ranch actually might be in Utah. I forget. No. no I, I got to go look. <laughs> All right. Well, well, let's have the give everybody the phone numbers now. Uh, 720 716 and the pin code is 353863-POUND. Okay, how about one more time, Rama? Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 83853. Yes. 863-POUND. Yes. No, three five three. Eight six three pound. <laughs> okay, everybody. Uh one more time this the pin code is three five three eight six three pound. Seven two zero seven one six seven three zero one. We'll see you there. And at the top of the next hour, we will be right back here at BBS Radio. Best radio in the universe. So it is. We'll see you at the conference, everyone. Namaste. Namaste. I wonder what they're doing. Oh, my. Yeah. We're all connected. That's the deal. Yes. Well, we've been talking about water. So, Rama's been wanting to play the the water story. So, we're gonna... You're gonna, right, Rama? Yeah, I'm getting there. Okay, well, Rami's looking for it. And we'll play after that. We'll, we'll have time. We'll play what's been going on there. <laughs> Some of it anyway. I'm just saying it's going way over time. Yeah. It always does, though, you know. 
let it all transmute. I'll leave the separation alone. Let's get together and be all right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Here we go. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Let me just read this. Water, a living substance. Thank you, Rama. The most common and least understood. It defies the basic laws of physics, yet it holds the keys to life. Known to the ancients as a transmitter to and from the higher realms, water retains hidden messages and conveys information to the DNA. Didn't know it did all that, right, everybody? And then a few more things. Rainbird was sharing with us about not being hungry after drinking the water and uh, listening to the stories that Mr. Kesh was talking about right before Christmas, the 19th of December. And then along came all that food. <laughs> mm. And yet... Um, it's again it's got to do with what we do with the wisdom of what the water really is and you can get all the nutrients you could imagine that you would need by drinking water i know some people that have done that yeah well everything in good balance here ram and i basically eat once a day and uh well we have a a spirulina smoothie drink in the morning. Yeah, we use coconut water. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, it's a matter of balance. I know that. So we'll go on here. However, water can die as it's treated poorly. Our use and misuse of this precious resource has altered the vital information it carries in unexpected ways. It influences uh, such such as sound, thoughts, intention, and prayer, as well as toxins such as chlorine. Structure, wa- structure water's molecular arrangement affecting all it comes in contact with. Well, that structured water device, if you stir it into the water, it'll clear up. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're living in a certain part of the world, if you don't buy your water, you're just going to have chlorine in it, period. But you can use the structured water device and stir it out of there. But um, blaze the violet fire. Let's put that whole situation into the highest change change for the best of all concerned. Um, affecting all it comes in contact with. Prominent scientists help reveal the secret of water, allowing us to use its healing power for human beings and our planet. And then uh, the directors of this uh, this production are Jinka 
Raisevi and Saida Medvedeva. And the narrator is Lex Lang. And this audio is in English, Spanish, German, and French. Pretty amazing. So let's see. I bet lots of people from all different uh, backgrounds have already listened to this. Here we go. One hour and 16 minutes. Okay. substance on earth. It is with us every moment of our lives. Like the human body, the earth maintains a constant amount of water. If the quantity of water is reduced or at least one of its amazing features is changed, then life on earth will vanish. Just like you, earth is a living dynamic being. It has veins and arteries with water flowing through it, which are connected to one large thriving heart, the ocean. It evaporates water and returns it back to the hydrologic cycle as rain, falling down on mountaintops, which again form veins and arteries that return to the ocean. It is this constant water circulation that keeps the planet alive. We are just like the surface of the Earth, at least 70% water. We also have a heart and 60,000 miles of veins and arteries. And like our planet, it is water that gives us life, replenishing our cells in a continuous water cycle. The system of the universe exists as a single perfect organism. All of its parts, including us and our Earth, are inseparably bound together by huge streams of information. And on our planet, water plays the key role in how the information is exchanged. In effect, it is the medium through which all nature is governed. is a giant container of water in which all forms of life arose and every living thing is itself essentially a container of water depending on age a human being is made up of 70 to 90 percent water an adult drinks approximately 2.5 liters of water each day in order to sustain his normal life functions 
Another 1.5 liters is absorbed through the skin during bathing or showering. Science has not yet been able to answer the question of why water is the only substance on the planet that can exist in three states. Liquid, solid, and gaseous. Why does water have the highest surface tension of all liquids? Why is it the most powerful solvent on Earth? And how, in defiance of the Earth's gravity, is water able to rise through the trunks of gigantic trees against tens of atmospheres of pressure? In a seed, for example, it reaches 400 atmospheres at the moment of germination. That's why a plant shoot can break through asphalt with ease. The water, of course, remains water, but its structure, like a nervous system, reacts to any irritation. The water molecule is a dipole. One end is charged more negatively, and the other more positively. This is a well-known phenomenon. A molecule acting through its negatively charged end can attract another molecule by its positively charged end, and then another molecule. This is how the structure of water is formed. It is fluid and short-lived. Somehow. Among the changing forms, one can see stable formations. These are called clusters. It is within these structures that water retains information it has captured. Any substance coming into contact with water leaves a trace in the water. Had our ancestors guessed this when they used silver vessels to turn ordinary water into healing water? laboratory in Germany, something inexplicable occurred. A laboratory assistant dropped a vacuum-sealed ampule containing virulent poison into a vessel with distilled water. Trying to conceal her blunder, she just left it in the water. The ampule was discovered only three days later. Since it was sealed, it did not pose any special hazard, and the matter was closed. Later, the water was given to laboratory mice. And they died. Immediately, the water was thoroughly tested. Chemically, it proved to be impeccably clean. It meant that the water without direct contact with the poison somehow adopted its properties. In other words, it received negative information from the poison. A fantastic hypothesis was put forward, a hypothesis that could explain water's unpredictable behavior. Water has memory. Experiments done in many countries around the world have shown that water receives and makes an imprint of any outside influence, remembering everything that occurs in the space that surrounds it. It makes no difference where the water is located. 
If you transport water to outer space, it remains sensitive to what it encounters. NASA scientists discovered this when they released water in a low-gravity environment. If a pure water is hard to make, is hard to get, and is kind of reactive, very polar liquid, and so it tends to dissolve things and grab things, and they become what they what we call surface active. If you take a drop of oil or something like that, it won't do that. Ethanol or alcohol won't do that, but water is a highly contaminable surface. You fill up a water balloon, there was some junk on the mantle that they used to make the balloon in the first place. That's on the inside of the balloon. That's instantly in the liquid. Now, when you deploy that, that's, that, that junk that's in the liquid then goes to the surface, and so it, it changes the surface property somewhat. Water drops oscillate in reaction to the burst balloon membrane. It takes 45 minutes for it to stabilize and form a perfect sphere. Further experiments at low gravity allowed astronauts to study a sphere of water 75 millimeters in diameter with an air bubble inside. When water droplets were injected into the bubble, they created collision dynamics in action. Most of the collisions were created in a rebound or elastic fashion, bouncing off each other and the wall. But on occasion, an internal bubble would oscillate and the momentum would carry it across the interface in a mass transfer. The structure of water means how its molecules are organized. We can see how water molecules join together into groups. Scientists came up with the idea that these clusters work as memory cells of a certain sort, in which water records the whole history of its relationship with the world, as if on magnetic tape. If you consider a cluster as a group of specific molecules, then it can survive only a short amount of time. But if you consider it as a structure whereby molecules can leave and other molecules come in, the cluster can last effectively for a very long time. The stability of the cluster structures confirmed the hypothesis that water is capable of recording and storing information. It may be the single most malleable computer which can that it's like a computer memory it's the memory of information you must know how it is arranged it is like the alphabet if i give you the alphabet you don't know a word you don't know a letter you don't know a sentence so the molecular structure is the alphabet of water and you must make a sentence out of water and you can change a sentence this leads us to the idea that information is either made up of water or exists in it like sculptures that have not yet been created are present in a piece of clay so the images of all future living organisms were present in the water water merely brought to life a pre-existing conception but for any process to begin requires an impulse Wise men of ancient times believed that for life to arise was a primordial divine spark. This spark imprinted in the water the sequence of future development. The entire course of evolution provides evidence of this. There are such animals, for example, jellyfish. Jellyfishes are 99.9% of water. And we, as biologists, study the left 0.1% 
of this jellyfish in order to understand how this bulk water, why it is alive. Probably this water is alive and this 0.1% simply allows it to be alive. We ourselves, when we are newborns or when we, are, we were fetuses, we were 95 or even more percent of water. We were already alive. I think that scientists should look more closely at how water interacts with their molecules. At the molecular level, it creates the structure of DNA. We wouldn't have the DNA helix without water. It creates the structure of proteins so our bodies wouldn't work um, without the water. Water is a universal computer that reveals any biological program and thus water is the only thing that can change it. Water has a life cycle of its own flowing from melting glaciers down steep mountain slopes. During the journey down the crystal streams are filled with the energy of the sun. They absorb information about the properties of the soil, about the composition of minerals and rocks. The impressions of such water are full of fresh air. These impacts change water structurally. Meanwhile, for a human being, water remains the same without taste, without color, and without odor. Yet it's impossible to find identical water on Earth. Water is like a clean sheet of paper, which can be changed by a tiny brushstroke. The great artist Leonardo da Vinci wrote, Water assumes a special character, as many times as there are different places where it flows. Okinawa Island in Japan, people live incredibly long lives. They suffer very few cases of common human diseases such as diabetes, arteriosclerosis, and cancer. One of the explanations is that they drink water vitalized by the coral their island rests on. These natural bodies are not only stunningly beautiful, but also extremely long-lived. The most ancient of them are more than 600 million years old. The coral imprints the water with information about longevity, which is then passed over to the water medium of the human body, tuning it for long life. 75% of the human body consists of water. If the body loses 2% of its liquid content, we become thirsty. If it loses 10%, we start hallucinating. If the body loses over 12% of water, we die. In the language of the Pemon Indian tribe in Venezuela, Roraima is translated as the mother of all waters. A group of Russian biophysicists set out for this destination in January 2005 to collect a unique sample of water which scientists say has never been in direct contact with human beings. Such water exists in only one place on Earth, in Venezuela.
According to one hypothesis, a continent called Gondwana existed in the southern hemisphere during the Paleozoic era. Powerful tectonic processes occurring in the Earth's crust 3.5 million years ago split it into several parts. As a result of these changes, some segments of the continent sank, while those resting on granite substrates remained at their previous level. Elevated plateaus were formed, which the Indians called tepuis, meaning pillars. Roraima is the largest of them. It's a really remote place, very hard to get to. Three days of travel through the savanna and then the jungles. Then you climb an 800-meter wall. It takes a certain amount of enthusiasm. Therefore, we can say that the water we have there is in a unique, virgin state. There is always a large cloud over Roraima. As evening approaches, a light haze appears. When the moon comes out from behind the mountains, the mist begins to glow with an even blue light. And in that light, it is visible how fine droplets of moisture are hanging in the still air. The slightest breath of a breeze and this watery dust forms into drops. This is the origin of the rain which rushes down in countless waterfalls. So today is January 30th, water collection number 16. Then we shall pack it all up in foil. And in this form, this water will hold its energy for several days with the air of these places. Then we'll arrive in St. Petersburg and we'll calmly carry out our laboratory analysis several thousand miles away. And only then will we be able to draw any conclusions. Professor Korotkov's laboratory has developed an instrument that can determine the energetics of water. It works on the basis of the Curlian effect. Everything that enters a strong electromagnetic field begins to emit light. The greater energy the object possesses, the brighter it shines. The water from Venezuela was compared with ordinary drinking water. We can say that this water is not double, not triple, but it is 40,000 times more active. So these are really two fundamentally different substances. And water of this type, this water, which immediately activates the body, it activates the whole system. That's why there, where the Indians, despite the deprivation in which they live, live very long lives and are very happy, they absolutely do not want civilization to come to them.
This water also had an effect on the science team, even though their visit to the area lasted less than a week. Dr. Korotkov used a special instrument to measure the energy level of each person at the base of Roraima, and then two days later, after each member reached the summit. And what we found was really astonishing. We found that for all members of the group, at the top of Roraima, the energy field tremendously increased. And they felt it. So now you see these uh, images of energy field of a person at the sea level, and you see it's a lot of breaks, it's very jagged, and it's a typical uh, reflection of condition. And this is the same person, but at the top of Roraima, and you see dramatic difference. What is water? In water researcher Victor Schauberger's view, it is a living substance which can die if it is treated poorly. Schauberger believed that water is born in the forest. It falls as rain and it filters down through the rocks, gathering minerals and trace elements until arriving at the surface as a spring. At this point, water is full of mother substances ready to provide life. Its vitality depends on how it flows or how it is forced to flow. Our systems for moving and processing water are designed from the point of view that water is merely a fluid without life or energy. So we don't care how it's treated. We make water flow along straight channels through cylindrical devices and other shapes that are never found in nature. We ignore water's natural path. Spiral patterns and arrangements are all around us in the forms of galaxies, cyclones, and tornadoes. These spirals are everywhere in nature, which has chosen these formations because they represent the law of constant change. If we want to create a system for moving water, which allows it to remain vital and alive, we must provide the opportunity for water to breathe. Victor Schauberger's research on water revitalization inspired the development of flow forms, which are a series of formed basins that allow water to flow into figure eight vortical movements, causing the water to pulsate rhythmically. The type of movement in flow forms simulates a mountain stream, energizing, restructuring, and oxygenating water. Flow forms mimic nature's flowing movement, plus simulate the heart rhythms, helping to refresh and reharmonize water. Vortical treatments of harmonic frequencies is an effective way to eliminate undesirable information remaining in water after removal of physical pollutants. Water makes a long, difficult journey before arriving in our homes. It used to be common knowledge that a settlement could only occur where there was a natural source of water. Today, whether or not there is water in a place is of no importance because we transport water for thousands of miles using high pressure. In nature, rivers and streams always flow along a smoothly curving course. But any water system has multiple right angle turns. The natural structure of the water breaks down more and more with each such turn. Water from a water supply system which flows into our homes through pipes has various forms. 
crystals of various forms. But they are all deformed. That is, they may look like this. It can look like this or have these crystals and many other arrangements, but you won't see any symmetry or beauty. We've been forming crystals for more than a dozen years. From our tests, we came to the conclusion that living water forms more hexagonal crystals, and less vibrant or dead water doesn't form hexagonal shapes. What concerns me is that water from any big city tends not to form beautiful crystals. When water travels in the city, it collects negative information from the people and pollution. Also, the more chlorine in the water, the less crystals can form. We also have pipes that make lots of turns. Imagine if you were water. You might want to die with all this unnatural and forced movement. Water that flows in a floor panel heating system is devitalized and rotten. It sucks energy out of the people, plants and animals living in that house. It actually steals the energy. It is well known that the water supply in many large cities is a closed loop system. After undergoing aggressive chemical purification and passing through powerful filters, the water in these systems is returned to our homes, still remembering the chemicals and the violence it was subjected to. There are over 100,000 man-made chemicals, including pharmaceuticals, birth control pills, toiletries, and household cleaners. When the liver removes these toxins from our body, they get flushed down the toilet, where they then go into the sewer, where many pass intact through our sewage treatment facilities and filters, and are recycled back into our municipal water system for us to consume once again. Even stronger, however, is the informational pollution that the water accumulates as it flows down miles of long pipes through thousands and thousands of houses and apartments. And our we pollute water spiritually and this happens on a huge scale why? the water adopts all of the hatred all of the malice the stress the water is almost dead by the time it enters our body We subjected water to super-weak magnetic field impulses. These fields are tens of thousands of times weaker than the Earth's natural magnetic field. Fish were introduced into water that was treated in this way, and the fish soon produced an unusual hatch of small fry. They differed radically from the other fish to which they were related, though they looked as much alike as twins. Gray stripes appear on the belly of all these males at once, along with colored spots which had not been observed previously. These are called 
Еще Макс Планк сказал, что все есть в Макс Планк сказал, что все есть в 
When we write a word on a sheet of paper and apply it to water, we can see that the water crystal changes its form. It means a transformation of the water itself under the influence of the frequencies that we emit with this word. The first word Dr. Emoto's research team exposed water to was arigato, Japanese for thank you. Next, we see what happened when they used negative words, such as, you fool. Words of beauty create beautiful crystals. Gentle words manifest delicate crystals. In crystal form, water reflects the power of intention behind our words. In 1995, Dr. Masaru Emoto was the first one to record musical impressions on water. In Dr. Emoto's laboratory, they presented water with different types of music, after which they froze the water and then under the microscope could clearly see the crystals that the water had formed. Here, we see crystallized distilled water before music is introduced. And now the transformation when it is exposed to Mozart. response to something more contemporary stings fragile Examples of water's hexagonal geometry are snowflakes. Each one is created by the conditions in which it grows. No two are exactly the same, 
despite the billions of snowflakes that fall each year. The life of a snowflake begins high in the atmosphere. The lone droplet freezes into a tiny ice bead, which then expands into a hexagonal base. Each of its six corners starts to grow a branch, creating a very complex pattern. Physicists have calculated that the number of possible ways to grow a snowflake far exceeds the total number of all atoms in the universe. Therefore, you can be pretty sure that any snowflake you see will be unique, like no other that has ever fallen to Earth. to various sound frequencies using a technology called a tonoscope, we can observe various patterns emerging in its structure. As we increase the frequency at certain key thresholds, the entire pattern morphs into a new resonant pattern, which is a more complex expression of the base frequencies. This happens repeatedly as the frequency increases. We can observe familiar geometrical patterns. Here we see a perfect cube, a tetrahedron, a star tetrahedron, the octahedron. All of these forms of sacred geometry were created simply by achieving the resonant frequency to match the form. Water and human beings and plants respond the same way to resonant energy that your cell phone does when it picks up the call. Human beings and water can respond to particular frequencies and energies applied that way and you can build up tremendous energy and tremendous effects we grow crystals using resonant frequencies salt crystals like the same kind of salt flowing through your bloodstream right now in water we grow those crystals using resonant frequencies two and a half thousand times faster and bigger every change in thought or mood. The brightest of these vibrational currents is created by love. The power of this emotion is reflected in the word itself. 
our mind is related to our central nervous system. And when we have some emotions, when we have some thoughts, they directly influence not our only nervous system, but the whole body. First of all, through blood, then through vegetative system. So we, with our thoughts, with our emotions, we totally change condition of the whole body. Visionary and artist Leonardo da Vinci came to the same conclusion. Human emotions are water, he wrote in his notes. And it is the form taken by these flows within the body that determine the human character. Every seed, every embryo, begins its life exclusively in water. Amniotic fluid plays a role in the embryo's development and preservation. The amniotic fluid of a pregnant woman is clustered water. Under the microscope, it looks like clearly formed groups of molecules. You get the impression that the water is trying to protect the life inside, directing all the forces of the mother's body to its protection and development. It was discovered that the cells of a newborn also contain such water. When rapidly frozen and seen under 20,000-fold magnification, it proves to be a crystal of incredible beauty. Water is the fundamental element of life and is the telephone to the universe. And the way we feel, the way we act, the way we process our emotions is going to have an impact on the water inside our body and the world as a whole. Dr. Rimoto conducted another groundbreaking experiment. He placed rice in three glass beakers and covered it with water and then every day for a month he said thank you to one beaker. You're an idiot to the second. And the third one he completely ignored. After one month, the rice that had been thanked began to ferment, giving off a strong, pleasant aroma. The rice in the second beaker turned black. And the rice that was ignored began to rot. Dr. Emoto feels that this experiment provides an important lesson. The worst rice samples is the one that was ignored. The same can be said in our daily lives when dealing with children. Ignoring children is the worst thing we can do. Even if we have to scold them occasionally, communication is very important. We should always converse with them and encourage them. Ignoring them causes the greatest harm. In this experiment, Dr. Emoto's researchers used a glass of Tokyo tap water, which seems to be unable to form crystals, and performed a test. Participants placed the glass in the center of their circle and sent gratitude to the water. Studying the water under the microscope, they started to see a crystal formation. 
magnification showed the symmetry of the crystal, revealing how the tap water was transformed by the gratitude sent by the group. The crystal continued to grow, expressing the energies received. The tap water from Tokyo finally produced a beautiful crystal. Interesting to see children so completely astonished after they witnessed the difference in Tokyo tap water before and after they sent the prayer. Their mothers were kind of skeptical before this experiment. But afterwards, they said, we really have to believe it. Scientists in the field of electrophoton imaging were conducting experiments measuring the energy of the water here in the United States. To establish a baseline, a drop of water from a test glass was suspended above electrodes, where it was photographed using a fiber optic camera. The research team then took the same glass of water and performed an experiment in the power of intention. Participants focused on the water, sending positive thoughts and a healing chant. sample exposed to positive thoughts was then tested in the exact same manner as the baseline sample. These measurements allowed scientists to study the photon emissions or energy level of each water sample. When the baseline drop was compared to the one imprinted with positive intentions, the difference was remarkable. The imprinted sample clearly had more photon emission and an increase in stability. Next, researchers exposed water to a traditional instrument known for its meditative qualities. Indigenous Australians have performed ceremonies with the didgeridoo for centuries. Using a circular breathing technique, the water showed a significant increase in energy level as evidenced by the computer data and the resulting images. It's clear that water is one of the most sensitive indicators of any fields that we have surrounding us. Professor Korotkov's laboratory has conducted numerous experiments on the effect of human emotions on water. A group of people were asked to project onto a flask of water in front of them various positive emotions like love, tenderness, and concern. Then the flask was replaced with another one, and the people were asked to project emotions of a different type, fear, aggression, and hatred. After this, measurements were taken on the samples. The water exhibited changes that were clearly in one direction or another. Love tremendously increases energy of water and harmony of water, while aggression, anger, decreases and totally reduces harmony from water. 
This is water exposed to compassion. And this to anger. Everything we feel, hear, or see is a combination of light, sound, electromagnetic, and many other waves. Every life form, be it a germ, an insect, animal, or human being, perceives them differently. They perceive them in their own strictly defined range. Only water is able to absorb the entire range of frequencies that exist in nature and become either living or dead under their influence. The average person consumes 16,000 gallons of water in a lifetime. That is a vast stream of chemical and structural information that is passed through our bodies. When we bathe or shower, we also receive 10 times the acceptable concentration of chlorine. Chlorine in the water supply displaces oxygen. When chlorine burns off bacteria, it actually removes the fire of life from water. Water burning is oxidation by oxygen of water. What is the product of this burning? Again, water and oxygen. I couldn't think of any other substance which, after burning, stays itself. It's only water. Because any burning is combining oxygen with fuel. Burning of water is combining oxygen with water. The product of this burning, again, water and oxygen. Burning is a special property of living water, distinguishing it from dead water. Burning is the ability to eliminate harmful matter with its own power. Scientists have studied numerous samples of municipal water and did not find this natural burning phenomenon in any of them. Once we tested water in a big bottle labeled by producers as the best water in the world. They added some minerals, but this water had absolutely no life. Glass those are silicon. This is natural element of the earth. And water interacts with this element in our nature. Plus, uh, the wall of a glass, it's smooth. So water being nearby this wall, it becomes more harmonized. So water can be kept in glass bottle in principle an infinite time. That's is absolutely different. This is plastic. So this is chemicals. And chemicals, they penetrate water slowly. Plus, the wall, it's not smooth. So water being nearby plastic surface becomes more and more chaotic. Most likely, people do not sense any particular difference between naturally pure and artificially purified water. But any animal will always choose water from a spring because this water is loaded with natural energies. 
When scientists studied this high mountain environment in places where water is known for its healing properties, like Lourdes in France, they made an important discovery. They found that the pH level of these waters was highly ionized and very alkaline. While studying water, researchers exposed ordinary water to magnetically charged plates, creating a simple method of ionization, separating water into two streams, one alkaline and one acidic. The water from the alkaline stream significantly improves hydration because it is easier for the body to absorb. Water from tap or bottle sources is usually clustered in groups of 11 to 16 water molecules. During ionization, the water molecules are reduced to only 5 to 8 molecules per cluster. The percentage of oxygen increases significantly, which can be almost double the amount of tap or bottled water, allowing the body to maintain a proper pH balance. Our lifespan is directly proportional to the amount of antioxidants we have in our body. And water is an important carrier of antioxidants. If you drink water that has large quantities of hydrogen, along with the right surface tension and right mineral content, then it will slow down the aging process. It will keep our mitochondria from dying, uh, which provide us with the energy of life. And so we can expect to live longer. Uh, essentially, it is said that we should live to be about 120 years old, and we often die long before that. So no one really dies of natural causes if they, if they die younger than that. They die of dehydration. What is acidic pH? What is acid? Acid is devoid of electrons, free electrons. What is alkali? Alkali is full of electrons. So our body should be slightly alkaline. What it means? It means that our body should contain enough electrons or hydrogen atoms, if you like, which will combine with oxygen. If we are acidic, then oxygen flows in, flows out, unused. If you don't have fuel, oxygen is useless. pH is a very important factor in overall health. To stay in balance, the body has to maintain its pH level because we're continuously generating acid wastes. When we eat, nutrients are transported to our cells and then burnt with oxygen, resulting in waste products that are almost always acidic. In a healthy body, our blood would pick up these wastes and carry them through the liver, kidneys, colon, or skin before removal. But worry, poor sleep, and food choices and environmental challenges limit our body's ability to remove acidic waste quickly enough. So the body compensates and transforms acidic waste to solid waste, storing the solid waste in less dangerous areas like arteries and especially fat tissues. The doctor is drawing blood from a patient's finger. Using a special microscope, we shall be able to see the condition of her body from this drop. These are red blood cells and they've lost their electrical charge. So they're all stuck together in a formation called a rouleau. Here's a huge symplast. Symplasts are associated with heart disease and many other conditions that could be coming in the future. The doctor asks the patient to drink a small amount of structured water. 
After 12 minutes, the doctor again draws blood from the patient and studies it. So you can see that the cells then become buoyant, they become slippery, and they have their electrical charge, so they repel each other. That allows them to carry oxygen, and it means that we're changing the pH of the blood. I think that's utterly amazing that just drinking water could do that. One way to counteract overacidity is by drinking alkaline water. We can measure the beneficial effects clinically with a new technology called polyinterference photography. This machine analyzes the body using light analysis technology. The subject is exposed to controlled full spectrum light. This study volunteer had been drinking mostly soda pop on a regular basis. The doctor notes that the participant suffers severe congestion in the areas around the liver, pancreas, and spleen. A bright pink spot also appears where the participant reports having regular severe migraine headaches. The volunteer is asked to drink only alkaline water for five days and then return for a follow-up exam. The red areas where congestion was recorded are now a clearer blue, indicating that the blockages are shrinking in size. The pink spot marking the point of headaches is gone, and the volunteer confirms that he hasn't suffered migraines since the drinking of the alkaline water. The research team examined the same participant using electrophoton imaging. This technology, based on the Curlian effect, takes an image from each finger using a high-voltage electrical field and reads its photon or light emission. Each finger corresponds to specific regions of the body. The participant's first scan shows several gaps in his energy field, representing specific organs. Once again, the weak points indicate the pancreas and liver. After five days of drinking alkaline water, these gaps are reduced. The case study's image is brighter and more consistent, representing improved health, including the areas of the pancreas and liver. Even more conclusive proof can be seen using live blood cell analysis. This is a blood sample taken before the participant began the water experiment. The volunteer drank a gallon of alkaline water that day, and another blood sample is taken 24 hours later. We can see how just drinking alkaline water improved the cellular environment of his blood. The participant continued drinking good water for two months. During that interval, he lost a total of 20 pounds and gained leaner muscle mass. One theory of how to increase hydration of cells is to remove the dissolved solids from the water using distillation or deionization. This may allow the water molecules to more easily enter the cells. In an experiment conducted in the Netherlands, two beakers of deionized water are placed next to each other. A highly electrical potential difference is run through the beakers. Amazingly, the water creates a bridge between the two beakers. This bridge can reach up to 25 millimeters in length. When scientists recorded the water formation with a thermographic camera, they found the hottest part to be in the smallest diameter of the bridge and observed a transfer of heat and material between the beakers. You think when you look at it, there must be a very simple explanation to that. And it must be predictable and it must be easy to calculate, but it is not. One thing is certain. 
This experiment cannot be repeated with tap or bottled water. Only the deionized water with very low dissolved solids can create this phenomenon. The interaction of water and electricity is so basic and it's everywhere around us. When you, if you look at the, the clouds of the thunderstorm, it's water and electricity that one might think that scientists understand this completely. People don't realize that this substance, which is most common, has 63 anomalies. For water, every physical property, every basic property is an anomaly. Boiling point, freezing point, conductivity, surface tension, all anomalies. So the question is, to which extent can this problem be solved within the current scientific framework? I think it is another anomaly because it was not predicted and it cannot be calculated yet. It is now believed there might be a fourth phase of water that we previously ignored. We found something odd in interfaces. When you have a, a so-called water-loving or hydrophilic interface with water, in other words, when the water is butting up against that, that surface, that hydrophilic surface, it takes on a, a, a new uh, set of properties. It, it, it's like a liquid crystal. And the property, these properties are not like the liquid and not like the solid. They're somewhere in between. If there's a fourth phase of water, I think this is it. If we had a plant sitting here, everybody can understand that the light is coming in, hitting the plant, and this energy from light, from the environment, is then changed, transduced into other kinds of energy that the plant uses. And the water does the same thing. The water is a recipient of energy. Your cells are filled with these little mini batteries. Water from a single container was divided into two portions. One part was subjected to an outside influence that changed the structure and properties of that water. The water in the second flask acquired the same structure and the same properties after a certain period of time. Even if the two portions of water were a significant distance removed from each other. The Russian philosopher and scientist Alexander Chizevsky as early as the 1930s described one astounding phenomenon. Observing a colony of bacteria, he noted that from time to time, these quiet microorganisms were engaged in unusual activity. Chizevsky established that single-cell organisms became agitated in line with the advent of solar flares. While the sunlight still has a full eight minutes to reach the Earth, the bacteria already know about the upcoming change. Detecting changes in the universe, water immediately changes its properties both on Earth within the bodies of living creatures. This happens instantly. In the world's religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, it is the practice to recite a prayer before taking food or to consecrate the food during major religious holidays. Why did something that science is only now trying to understand seem obvious to our ancestors? January the 18th. It is the eve of the Orthodox Feast of the Epiphany. Two flasks are filled with ordinary tap water. Early in the morning, one of them is set inside the church, near the vessel over which the sacrament of sanctification is to be performed. 
Every year on January 19th, the faithful and even non-believers hurry into churches to pick up some of the baptismal water. It is believed to possess extraordinary properties. In order to confirm or refute this, the two flasks were taken to the laboratory for study immediately after the service. Here, the water was frozen in a cryogenic chamber and photographed under the microscope. The crystals of the tap water looked like a chaotic, diffused spot. While the water that had been in the church had the rectilinear symmetrical form of a six-pointed star. There was a fabulous experiment done at McGill University in Canada a few years back in which uh, the goal was to see if uh, water that had been prayed over and blessed would stimulate the growth of uh, young seedlings more than plants that were watered with water that had not been blessed through prayer. Sure enough, the plants that received the water that had been prayed over and blessed had a more vigorous growth rate over and over, we see uh, around the world where water seems to play a major role in healing. We know that water is a recorder of frequency. And we also know from a great deal of evidence that thoughts create a frequency and that water is a recorder of those frequencies. People are mostly water. Food is mostly water. Anything alive is mostly water. So if all of these things are picking up and embedding our thoughts, what is it we are thinking? From all this research, I can give you very simple advice. If you go to lunch or dinner, please never ever sit with people who are in aggressive mood, in bad mood. They can totally spoil your food and it will have very negative effect on your health. How a person handles water. If he approaches the water with good thoughts or blesses it and says thank you to it, the quality of the water will improve and the water will have a positive effect on a person and his body. If you go to Bible, if you go to Rig Veda, or if you go to other sources of the origins, it turns out a very interesting thing. Water was not created. If you just read the first verses of Genesis, there was there is not a single word about the creation of water. And all other religions uh, talk about water as non-created. And here is the major mystery to which science will never give the answer. No matter the faith, a person must be clean to stand before the Creator. Water is an intermediary that connects humans with their source. The Jews have ablutions and mikvahs. The Muslims wash before ritual prayers. In Christianity, water is the foundation for baptism. There have been many wars based on religious grounds in human history. But sincere prayers from any major religion can have a positive effect on water. From my experience, any positive information being given to water, such as mantras or words from holy books, 
no matter the religious faith, or beautiful crystals. The Christian prayer. The Buddhist prayer. The Muslim prayer. By the summer of 1991, Israel had had no rain for two years. The water in the country's only freshwater lake, Lake Kinneret, had fallen 15 centimeters below the critical level. Then, 10,000 Israelis gathered at the Wailing Wall to pray for rain. On the third day, rain came down on the country in torrents. Many people explain this fact as simple coincidence. If you had to point at anything in the universe that connects all things, the only substance you could find would be space. Space is everywhere, and water is an expression of that space. Any changes in the space will change the water. All life emerges from water because water is the medium from which space communicates with all living things. You find that you have hurricanes and typhoons, right? Hurricanes in the North Hemisphere and typhoons in the South Hemisphere. And you look at the way the weather patterns move on our planet, they go from the poles to the equator and back to the poles. They don't cross over. There's this double tourist behavior of how the water and the electric fields and the magnetic field of our planet is behaving. So water is an expression of the structure of space-time. The quantum vacuum is something able to oscillate. In this way, all the existing objects in nature are in the same position as the metronomes. They settle on an oscillating platform, which is the quantum vacuum. And through the quantum vacuum, they are able to tune together their oscillation. And this says why liquid water becomes a very good uh, tool for dialoguing, for having a dialogue with external signal coming from elsewhere. In the 13th century, an Italian mathematician known as Fibonacci, while observing various natural phenomena, discovered the golden ratio, an infinite sequence of numbers, every one of which was the sum of the two preceding numbers. Dividing any of the smaller numbers of the sequence by the neighboring greater number, we shall always get approximately 0.618. Creating his paintings, Leonardo da Vinci used a special principle of structural perfection. He called it the golden section, where the ratio of the greater part of the section to its smaller part and the ratio of the whole section to its greater part was equal to 0.618. Long before that, in the 6th century BC, Pythagoras the philosopher and mathematician of ancient Greece discovered this ratio in geometry. Years before that, 
we can find that ancient Egyptians made reference to the same thing. They called it the divine essence. Does this mean that Pythagoras, Fibonacci, and Leonardo da Vinci, as well as many other men of genius, had knowledge of special laws of harmony, which form the basis of all things perfect in this world? Quite recently, scientists put forward a new hypothesis, stating that the laws of the universe are written in water. The golden ratio, or the divine essence, was found in a molecule of melted water. In regular water, the angle between hydrogen atoms varies from 104 to 107 degrees. In meltwater, this angle is 108 degrees, and the ratio of the length of hydrogen ties 0.618. This is a special state of water. In melting from its frozen state, water deletes all information from its memory, retaining only one program, the program for life. Everything in nature's perfection has been created in accordance with this program. The arrangement of leaves on a branch, the petals on a flower, or the thread of a spider's web. The intricate form of a snail's shell, the DNA molecule, the universe. It transpires that who created this world transmitted the program of life to every living creature through water. The phenomenon of structural memory enables water to take an impression of everything that happens around it and to connect all living systems together. And each one of us is a link in an endless chain of this transfer of information. But in addition, each of us is also a source of information. Every one of our actions, a thought, an emotion, an uttered word, separates from us and becomes part of the overall informational environment. Informational dirt is poisoning the water, accumulating layer by layer in its memory. If that process was to continue endlessly, the water would lose its ability to support life. But it is endowed with a self-cleansing capacity. This occurs at the moment of phase transition, when it evaporates and then condenses and falls as rain. Or when it melts from its frozen state, shaking off the informational grime. Water always preserves its secret. That is, the program for life. All the information about life is contained in water. If we destroy this information, we shall destroy ourselves. Dr. Emoto's numerous experiments aimed at finding the word that structures water most beautifully have shown that it is not just one word, but a combination of two. Love and gratitude.
the river. You are the ocean, just like the raindrops that fall from above and return to the earth down below. You are the sea. There is love. You burn with life when all the stars that come out with the moon after dark, you reflect that light. You are the tide. Everything water is you. We all fall down. Yeah, we all fall down. Yeah, we all fall down. Like rain, think something different. Try something you thought you could never ever do. Move clouds as the universe calls for, and simply lies waiting for you. Time to make rain. Everything water is you. Time to make waves. Everything water is you. Excuse the hiccups, as Rama was saying.、Um, Rama went to see、um, our computer people. Her name is Annette、uh, Nelson's wife, and she was just told Rama, "What did she tell you to do?、Mm, to clean the memory. Clean up the memory, and Rama did that. That's still. 
I don't know what it is. I think it's the universal changes going on in the technology is way behind everybody. But we just kept on sending it love. <laughs> it made it. It's okay. Please excuse that. I'm going to play some things here from the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Um, it's a three and a half hour piece there, so we'll just do some of it. Uh, jump around. I'm going to start where I'm starting to see what we get to. See where we go. Here we go. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to MSNBC's special coverage of the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Tonight, we are going to bring you remarks from President Joe Biden and comedian Roy Wood Jr. live. Those should be starting soon. So until the festivities get underway, let us discuss what is arguably the biggest fight on the Hill this week, something that is bound to come up in tonight's speeches, and that is the debt limit. We are beginning to see the consequences of Kevin McCarthy's shaky win to the Speaker's gavel. This week, the GOP-controlled House passed a bill that finally raised the long-contested debt ceiling, but Republicans shouldn't be celebrating. It is a messaging bill that has no chance of ever making it into law. So let's see what is inside this messaging bill. It is dubbed the Limit Save Grow Act. The bill would lift the federal borrowing limit by $1.5 trillion or through March 31st, but it comes with a long list of strings attached. Things like cutting down federal discretionary spending, killing Joe Biden's student debt cancellation plan, rescinding IRS funding, adding, adding new work requirements for adult Medicaid recipients. Look, the list goes on and on and on. And these radical measures would be catastrophic um, to millions of Americans and the economy writ large. And this is not my take on it. That is according to a lot of economists. Slashing measures of Biden's Inflation Reduction Act would roll back jobs the legislation created. It would weaken domestic supply chains, and ultimately, it would raise household costs. But it's also going to cause a lot of issues for Republicans themselves. First of all, Kevin McCarthy, well, he barely got the votes needed to actually get this bill through. And here's what's even worse about it. We're learning that he made conflicting promises to different factions factions of his party in order to get the job done. You know, he told the concerned mainstream GOP members to ignore the substance of the measure and that it's simply a symbolic victory to get to the negotiating table with the president. And then, of course, he turned around and promised the far right base that this bill is more of a floor than a ceiling and that he'll oppose any agreement that does not include all of the original red meat provisions he promised. Look, it is impossible to do these two things at the same time. You don't have to be a politician to know that. And Senate Democrats were surely want nothing to do with this hostage note, meaning Kevin McCarthy could soon find himself in quite a bind with his own party. And sadly, the U.S. economy is on the line. Joining me now is Democratic Congresswoman Elhan Omar of Minnesota. She's a member of the House Budget Committee. Congresswoman, it is great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. First, I want to get your reaction to Kevin McCarthy's moves here. I mean, raising the debt ceiling is supposed to be a rudimentary process. And you've said this bill would force families into economic depression. And I want you to expand on that for our viewers. Talk to us through what's at stake if Congress and President Biden do not come to an agreement soon. 
Well, thank you, Eamon, for, for having me. Um, I think there are two quick things that you alluded to that uh, most Americans should understand. One, we have an obligation to raise the debt ceiling because this means this ends up uh, helping pay for the bills that we already uh, um, owe, right? Uh, so, so it's necessary for us to raise the debt ceiling. And we've done this over many years without having any strings attached to it. So the Republicans, including McCarthy himself, uh, have agreed to it during the Trump uh, presidency. They've done so the last two years with the Biden administration. Uh, so the, when the president says we are not negotiating on this, uh, he has the right to, to do that. The second thing that people need to understand is that when you say this is a messaging bill, there are a lot of messaging bills that people pass, and usually that is what you know, the, the American people might want or what might be uh, uh, of value to you. The, the substance should matter. The fact that he's saying that we should ignore the substance in a messaging bill uh, tells you just how dangerous that is. Um, this is going to have a devastating impact for, for so many families. We know that there are a lot of families that have economic anxiety when it comes to things like having access to, to child care, um, the cost of, of housing, the cost of food, um, veterans that, that need support. When we talk about cuts to discretionary spending, those are the programs that Republicans have put forth uh, to cut in their um, you know messaging uh, bill. And now they're trying to backtrack and say, no, 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 we're not messing with you know veterans' benefits. No, 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 we're not taking food out of, uh, you know, children's mouths. We're not going to cause economic hardships for families. But the, the details is in the pudding. We've seen their bill. Everybody's talking about it. Everyone can go and read uh, what a 22% cut would actually mean uh, and how devastating that could be. And, and I just love the fact that they are going to um, be stuck in this place uh, where they're uh, going to be strangled with their own words. So, I mean, look, I never I never want to ask you to speak on behalf of Republicans, but certainly try to put your, you know, put yourself in their shoes. What is their end game here? Help us understand what you think they're trying to do. Is it simply play hostage with the American economy to try and rally their own political base? I mean, it's really hard to, to understand. You know, we, we talk about them uh, being uh, the, the, the chaos caucus, the chaos conference. Uh, Republicans often would like to, um, you know, to have cultural wars instead of actually addressing the kind of economic issues that they might say they might be interested in, in addressing. And we see when we ask them for an actual plan that people can work with, this is what they put in front of the American people. Uh, I don't understand why they want to hold the American economy and the global economy hostage uh, by refusing to just have a clean bill that raises the debt ceiling and then come back and negotiate a budget when we're having those budget conversations, which is often what you normally do. Um, McCarthy, I think, is struggling in what it means to be a leader. Most of us knew that he was uh, a coward uh, and would try to sort of give everybody whatever it is they were asking for uh, because he doesn't have a backbone. He doesn't really have, um, you know, policy chops. He's not known uh, for having policy ideas that people can coalesce around. He's no Nancy Pelosi. So we're uh, able to actually see him uh, put that in front of the American people in a very uh, chaotic um, and comedic way. 
Let me ask you politically here in terms of how the Democrats message against this chaos from Republicans. There are reports that your party is preparing perhaps to hammer Republicans on the campaign trail over this um, uh, legislation, uh, basically using the same strategy that Democrats used during 2018 uh, midterms. Um, and, and you certainly may recall you had Democrats going after swing seat Republicans who were pushing to repeal Obamacare and enact tax cuts that were going to affect millions of Americans. Do you think that kind of plan to pressure vulnerable Republicans should work, could work now? Oh, certainly. I mean, we have Republicans on the record that say they care about rail safety. And in this bill that they put forth, they jeopardize um, rail safety by cutting uh, the amount of hours that could be available for regulations. They talk about caring about our children and their safety um, and the opportunities that could be afforded to them. But they're making sure children don't have access to programs like SNAP or child care or even Bell Grants that are supposed to help uh, vulnerable communities, low-income communities have access to to higher education. Uh, These are people who are talking about the cost of living um, increasing and being unbearable for a lot of people, but they're cutting a lot of the programs that help people with housing. They talk about caring about our veterans. Uh, You know, they they wrap themselves around the um, with the American flag, uh, and they're cutting benefits uh, to to veterans. We've seen them do, you know, their little um, video on TikTok and, and Instagram and, and Facebook uh, talking about how, no, 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 we're not doing this. Uh, but the American people can see it because it's actually in the bill and everybody's talking about it. And so we have to make sure uh, that, again, you know, we allow them to hang themselves with their words and their actions. Uh, Congressman, before you go, I got to ask you about tonight. Why are you not at the White House Correspondents? Did, 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 you and I are the only ones working tonight in Washington, it seems. Uh, I had a conflict. I was able to go last year. I had a blast. I look forward to going there, um, you know, in the coming years. But unfortunately, I wasn't able uh, to, to make it. I had other commitments earlier tonight. And, you know, it's fun to be here with you. Um, I might check I out. Say, their, their, their losses are gain, Congressman. We're so glad to have you on the show. We thank you for making time for us. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Take care. Uh, next, the terrible legacy of Tucker Carlson. Plus, we are keeping our eyes on the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and we're going to bring you the speeches uh, the moment they begin. Don't go anywhere. Mr. President, <laughs> thank you for being here. Thank you for having me here. You know, I was a little confused about why me, but then I was told that you get your highest approval ratings when a biracial African guy is standing next to you, so... Uh, <laughs> Everybody, just gonna fast forward here a little bit. Momentito. I get the change that. Moment, Or imprint for certain. 
Dove invited women who wanted their damage We're just moments away from the main event, President Biden's remarks at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and we are ready to bring them to you the moment they begin. Until then, some new NBC News polling to share with you. It shows the spectacular unpopularity of Donald Trump's MAGA movement. Just 24% of Americans have positive views of MAGA, 45% view it negatively. Now contrast that with the Black Lives Matter movement, which enjoys support from 38% of Americans. And support for the MAGA movement isn't even that strong among Republicans. Only 52% of self-described GOP voters view MAGA positively. My panel is back with me. Uh, Danielle, I'll take you first here. If support for MAGA among Republicans wasn't bad enough, the NBC News poll found that MAGA has only a 12% favorability rating among independent voters, and that is critical if Republicans want to win the White House or even control of the Senate in 2024. Considering this is Trump's entire brand and identity, what does it mean for them? I mean, it means that they're going to continue trying to steal elections. I mean, it means that they're going to do what they have been doing, which is go ahead and suppress the vote, which is deny young people the right to be able to use their student IDs as a way to be able to vote, to look for ways to kick people off of the voter registration uh, laws. They're, that's why they are in this movement that has been a policy-driven insurrection for the last since the insurrection that we saw in January 2021. It has been a policy insurrection that they have been waging, and frankly, they've been winning in a lot of areas where you have seen policies turn around that allow people the ability to vote. Things like silencing and banning women's uh, women's reproductive rights, banning people's voices, erasing history. I mean, this is what this Republican uh, army wants. And so they don't really care, I don't think, about independence. Uh, and their voices. They don't care about the people because if they did, they would put out policies that people actually want to vote for. Um, Dean, what do you make of how Trumpism has now taken over the Republican Party and how Democrats uh, fight against that? Is Joe Biden the guy? I mean, obviously, he is the guy who wants to fight Trumpism. He defeated Donald Trump, but we have seen Trumpism on the march growing since 2020. I think that this the distinction between MAGA and the regular GOP is now a false narrative. I think anybody left in the GOP is MAGA, and the GOP is itself is an anti-democratic movement. Like Daniel was saying, they're not going to change their policy positions. They're just going to change their tactics, which is make it harder to vote for young people. Don't allow you to use college ID because they know younger people are breaking to Democrats on policy issues, getting rid of polling stations, by colleges, doing everything they can to disenfranchise those who are going to vote against them. So, uh, to me, I view the GOP, it's all part and parcel of the same movement. It, it's a right wing, it's white national at its core, it's fascist at its core, it's anti-democratic. And I don't think Democrats should be making a big argument, hey, there's some good Republicans. I think the good ones have left the party to be fight. It's just a few left, but they're along for the MAGA ride, so they get labeled with the same brush. And here's the thing, though, David, because the Republican Party, which I agree with um, Dean, is no longer the traditional Republican Party of our fathers and grandfathers. They still have a noticeably higher approval rating than the MAGA movement, 33 percent to 24 percent. And I find that surprising because I think many people effectively view the two as the same thing nowadays. Well, I think many Democrats, as Dean pointed out, view MAGA and the Republican Party as the same thing. And I think there's a lot of good factual reasons for that. Um, but in a different universe, I think there's a lot of Republicans who use 
the distinction that they have in, in between MAGA and themselves as a way of saying, well, I don't like Donald Trump. I don't support who he is as a person. I think he's a terrible guy, but oh, I'm going to vote for him. And I feel like I've talked to people like that and I end up saying, well, you know, if you really dislike him, one thing you could do is not vote for him. But for some reason, that connection doesn't quite get made. So I actually do think despite the unpopularity of MAGA, I guess I'm a little bit of a downer here. Democrats should take Donald Trump as a real threat to win the presidency. Um, he's never been popular. People have always disliked his conduct, and somehow uh, there's been a critical mass of Americans who have overlooked it, and he's either won thanks to the Electoral College or come very close. And I wouldn't be surprised if that happens again in this election. It's going to be a tough fight. Josh, weigh in on that for us. You got some in the GOP suggesting that Donald Trump is, you know, his endless scandals, his unhinged rhetoric, they have forever doomed his electoral prospects. He only won last time because of the Electoral College, not because of the popular vote. The former president's underlying ideas, though, they still resonate with voters. And you got folks like Ron DeSantis appearing to think uh, a little bit this way, that Trump is done, but Trumpism is the future, and they're going to carry the mantle. Do you think that's realistic? Yeah, I mean, I do think that Trumpism is becoming kind of like the Rocky movies, where it's like, all right, you know, there's the first one, you know, loses, and the second one wins, and there's going to be this back and forth for quite a while, and, you know, you're going to get all the way to, like, like Trumpism 8, where you're like, there's no way, come on, please, he's so old, how? No one should be doing this. All right, guys, stick around. We've got a lot more to discuss. President Biden, comedian Roy Wood Jr. are speaking soon at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Stay with us. Hillary, what? Oops, I'm sorry. You know, you're going to get all the way to, like... Hillary will have to rage. Use some of money, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She gon' get that money. She gon' get all, all the money. Khaleesi is coming to Westeros. Hold on, everybody. Um... Another major DeSantis donor, Thomas Petterfee, has chosen to put his financial support on hold. And to complete the trifecta, billionaire John Castamatitis has ruled out any further donations, accusing DeSantis of not returning his phone calls. Man, brutal. Let's bring back my panel. Uh, Danielle, one of those mega donors uh, I mentioned, near a billionaire, uh, told the Washington Examiner, quote, why would I support somebody to become president of the United States that doesn't return my call? What do you think of these donors all pulling back within a couple weeks of each other right at the time that DeSantis is going to get into this and needs to build some momentum? I mean, I think that when Ron DeSantis made his trip to Capitol Hill, he kind of showcased that he's not likable. Um, a lot of the quote unquote stars within the geo, within the MAGA GOP, you know, didn't want to have anything to do with him. And so I think that Ron DeSantis lives in this Florida bubble where he only takes, you know, comments from people that he likes. He doesn't do, uh, oppositional press. 
And so I don't think that he is a likable person. And unfortunately, when it comes to the presidency, in order to get people to open up their wallets, you need to be likable. And I think that Ron DeSantis is finding out that, yeah, maybe he should do better. But the reality is we're still really early in this race. And so he does have the opportunity to turn his broomstick around. Josh, uh, the day after he won re-election back in November, the New York Post had DeSantis on their front page calling him the, quote, the future of the Republican Party and the heir apparent for the 2024 nomination. Is the future looking more like the past at this point? And what do you hope we hear at the dinner about DeSantis tonight? I mean, it's not looking great. You know, I think the more that you delve into DeSantis, the more you realize he's not really a politician. He's a cultural crusader. He's someone who is an excellent, like as, like as a comedian, I have to give him props for being an excellent troll. You know, he, he doesn't really pass legislation that's improving the lives of people. He sort of fights demons and ghosts that don't really exist all to win political points with people that are, are going to dissipate before he can even really cash in on them. And I mean, my man eats like, apparently, I don't know, I wasn't there, but apparently he's eating pudding with his fingers. If someone doesn't mention that, at the correspondence dinner. Like, that's so insane. That sounds like what the two oldest candidates should be doing. And this is what my man is doing. I got to say, I did see some pudding being served at the White House correspondence wow. dinner. I did catch a glimpse of that. So I do, I have a feeling, or it could have been chocolate mousse, but, you know, we'll see how it gets worked into the dinner tonight. Um I got to ask you, Dina, about DeSantis trying to flex a little bit of foreign policy chops. He was in Israel this week because I guess that is something a governor who wants to become president in this country has to do or wants to do, touting his ideas on foreign policy. But as the Washington Post reports, he basically copied Trump's approach, blasting the Iran nuclear deal, praising the decision to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, not demonstrating any nuance to what is happening there. Why would voters for DeSantis support him? If he's just copying Donald Trump and offering nothing new, why settle for some sort of off-brand cola when you can just get a real Coke? Sure, he, he's like the RC Cola of the GOP right now, or the Shasta. Remember Shasta? So the other thing I want to say, Amy, those billionaires that DeSantis is not calling back, calling them back, call me. I will call you back. If you're a billionaire and you call me, I'm going to call you back. But isn't there a bigger issue here that there's billionaires deciding – who are they going to throw their money millions and millions behind? So something so fundamentally wrong with our system. Back to DeSantis. Look, I don't see anyone going for a knockoff. We're on DeSantis' best chance is that Donald Trump not only gets indicted, but gets thrown into a prison cell and is sitting there. And maybe, maybe some people at GOP go, you know what? Having a 38 or 50 counts against you might not be a good look going into the general election. <laughs> That's the only help Ron DeSantis has. That's it. I mean, you got to hope like they go, Look, if a Democratic candidate that I love got a doubt and dining with 34 felony counts, I'd be like, we're going to move on. The GOP is like, we're going to love this guy even more. Yeah. I'll tell you a lot about the GOP. David, NBC News is reporting DeSantis' donors and top allies are also sounding the alarm, saying he is sore in sore need of a strategy change if he is to have any chance of defeating Trump for the nomination. They're basically getting tired of his obsession over culture wars, which he continues to double down on. Yeah, I think the problem with this is you can shake up the advisors, but, you know, the, the old saying, the fish rots from the head. And I think the thing about DeSantis is he's so obviously a dork, and he so obviously wants us to think he's a jock. And I think that's very strange. works <laughs> for Indy right now. Right? Like, they're making a second Dune movie. This is a 
I'm going to let this go. I'm going to go forward and see if I can catch the president. Let's see where we can go. Dorks and all. Here we go. Um... Moment to tell everybody. Okay. Here he is. I've had the pleasure to interview me a few times on my show. So look, I think the limit, I think there are comics who write jokes intentionally to get headlines. I was there when Michelle Wolf was there in 2019 and causing other things to walk out. I think she wanted to do that. I think... She wanted to push them to make them uncomfortable. I think the best form of comedy is stuff that's funny but makes you uncomfortable. And Roy can do that, but he does it so calmly. He's not at all like trying to needle you. He's smiling about being playful and being like a puppy dog about it, but he's killing you at the same time. David, your thoughts on this? I mean, is there in a room like this, is there anything that is off limits that you say? Actually, well, yeah, David, I'm so sorry. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a pause on that. The president is about to take the podium. Let's listen in. I'm just gonna say, President uh, Biden looks like he's aged a lot. We'll just send the violet flame to get through this. for that introduction, I think. <laughs> Let me start on a serious note. Jill, Kamala, Doug, and I are members of our administration. are here to send a message to the country and, quite frankly, to the world. The free press is a pillar, maybe the pillar, of free society, not the enemy. Thomas Jefferson wrote... Thomas Jefferson wrote, we're left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government. I should not hesitate to prefer the latter. To Evan's parents, Ella, Mikhail, and sister Danielle, as I've told you in person, we, not just me, we all stand with you. Evan wants to report in Russia to shed light on the darkness that you all escaped from years ago. Absolute courage. A handwritten letter from prison to his family, Evan wrote, quote, I am not losing hope. In an interview, his mom Ellis said, one of the American qualities that we absorbed is to be optimistic. That's where we stand right now. To the entire family, everyone in this hall stands with you. We're working every day to secure his release. Looking at opportunities and tools to bring him home. We keep the faith. We also keep the faith for Austin, Austin Tice. His mom, Deborah, is here tonight. She knows from our several conversations, conversations with me and my senior staff, we are not giving up. 
As I told you at this dinner last year, as I told you in the Oval Office, you raised an incredible son. When he was a kid, he was an Eagle Scout, a big brother, a born protector, a U.S. Marine, three tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Austin, Austin was a fearless journalist and a future lawyer. As a consequence of Austin showing the world the cost of war, he's been detained in Syria for nearly 11 years. It's simply wrong, it's outrageous, and we are not ceasing our effort to get him, find him, bring him home. Tonight, our message is this, journalism is not a crime. Evan and Austin should be released immediately, along with every other American held hostage for the wrongs we detained abroad. Paul Whelan, unjustly held in Russia for more than four years, whose brave sister I've met with and whose family has never quit fighting for Paul. And I promise you, neither will I and neither will this administration until we get him home. And there are other Americans being unjustly held in Iran, Venezuela, China, and elsewhere. Their stories may not make headlines or hashtags, but every day, every day, their family looks at that empty chair at the kitchen table. Birthdays, anniversaries, holidays without them. The pain of living in limbo in a sense, is almost worse than the pain of having lost a child and looking at an empty chair. The stress of not knowing, the sorrow of uncertainty. But I want them and their families to know, Jill and I understand, we see them. They are not forgotten. And I promise you, I am working like hell to get them home. As a nation, We'll never give up on hope. Things can get better. Things can turn. Things can change. Tonight, unlike last year, Brittany Griner's here with her wife, Cheryl. Brittany, where are you, kid? Stand up. Come on. I love this place. This time last year, we were praying for you, Brittany, hoping you know how hard all of us were fighting for your release. It's great to have you home. And boys, I can hardly wait to see you back on the court, kids. Remember your promise I get to bring my granddaughter, my all-state girl, to see you, right? Because of our unrelenting efforts, We've been able to bring home dozens of hostages and wrongfully detainees, the wrongful detainees from Afghanistan, Burma, Haiti, Iran, Rwanda, Venezuela, across West Africa, around the world. But we're doing everything we can to prevent these cases from occurring in the first place. For example, the State Department added the threat of detention as a new risk indicator to its travel advisors to go along with the threat of kidnapping. 
the war in America is where these threats are highest abroad. I also recently signed an executive order increasing the consequences for criminal groups and terrorists who engage in the appalling practice of treating human beings as bargaining chips, political pawns. Just two days ago, my administration announced the first sanctions under this new authority, punishing individuals with security services in Russia and Iran when part of the wrongful defense detention of Americans. Above all, across government, experts are working day and night to bring our fellow Americans home, much of which, as you well know, we can't talk about. Concern that will backfire. But my commitment, my commitment is to bring them home, just as I know your commitment is to continue to be the free and fearless press. And that's what we honor tonight. This is not hyperbole. You make it possible. You make it possible for ordinary citizens to question authority. And yes, even to laugh at authority without fear or intimidation. That's what makes this nation strong. So tonight, let us show ourselves in the world our strength. Not just by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. Folks, I know a lot's changed in the press. I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of you. This is not your father's press from 20 years ago. No, I'm serious. You all know it better than I do. But still, it is absolutely consequential and essential. After all, I believe in the First Amendment. Not just because my good friend Jimmy Madison wrote it. take zero questions and cheerfully walk away. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just announced my re-election campaign. Some of you, some of you scooped that I announced in the video. But really, you really all thought in your heart that I just blurted out, didn't you? <laughs> I get that age is completely reasonable issue. It's in everybody's mind. And everyone, by everyone I mean the New York Times. <laughs> Headline. Biden's advanced age is a big issue. Trump's, however, is not. <laughs> so that was the New York Times pitch spot. I apologize. <laughs> I love that guy. I should do an interview with him. <laughs> you might think I don't like Rupert Murdoch. That's simply not true. How could I just like a guy who makes me look like Harry Styles? <laughs> call me old. I call it being seasoned. You say I'm ancient. I say I'm wise. You say I'm over the hill. Don Lemon would say, that's the man who's prime. (laughs) 
here again. Truman and I haven't learned a damn thing. <laughs> I want everybody to have fun tonight, but please be safe. If you find yourself disoriented or confused, it's either you're drunk or Marjorie Taylor Greene. Sam, <laughs> thank you for hosting us. I love NPR. Because they whisper into the mic like I do. But not everybody loves FDR. Elon Musk tweeted that it should be defunded. Well, the best way to make NPR go away is for Elon Musk to buy it. <laughs> and that's more true than you think, anyway. This dinner is one of the two great traditions in Washington. The other one is underestimating me and Kamala. But the truth is, we really have a record to be proud of. Vaccinated the nation, transformed the economy, earned historic legislative victories and midterm results, but the job isn't finished. I mean, it is finished for Tucker Carlson. What are you mourning about like that? Like you think that's not reasonable? Give me a break. Give me a break. Look, like I often say, don't compare me to the Almighty, compare me to the alternative. We added 12 million jobs. That's just counting the lawyers that defended the president. At Ron DeSantis, I had a lot of Ron DeSantis jokes ready. But Mickey Mouse beat the hell out of me and got there first. Now look, can't be too rough on the guy. After his re-election as governor, he was asked if he had a mandate. He said, hell no, I'm straight. I'm straight. I'll give you time to think that one through. I think you don't know this. Ken McCarthy called me and asked me, Joe, what the hell's your secret? (laughs) I'm not even kidding about that one. (laughs) The speaker's trying to claim a big win this week. But the last time he told us he voted on something this, that hapless, it took 15 tries. That was good. Boy, it's great the cable news networks are here tonight. MSNBC owned by NBC Universal. Fox News owned by Dominion Voting Systems. reporters were able to attend because they were fully vaccinated and boosted. This year, 
with that $787 million settlement, they're here because they couldn't say no to a free meal. <laughs> and hell, I'd call Fox honest, fair, and truthful. But then I could be sued for defamation. <laughs> and ain't nothing compared to what they do to me. <laughs> Look, I hope the Fox News team finds this funny. My goal is to make them laugh as hard as CNN did when they read the, read the settlement. <laughs> but then again, CNN was like, wow, they actually have $787 million. <laughs> Whoa. Folks, I go where people are, The Daily Show. He once dubbed me the Jay-Z of Delaware. Don't let that look in your face, you did. Tonight he asked me to keep it short. Even offered me 10 bucks if I keep it under 10 minutes. That's a switch, a president being offered hush money. Look, I'm gonna leave the jokes to the pros. But let me conclude on a generally serious note. Roy was born in, Birmingham, born in Birmingham, Alabama. He graduated from a great HBCU, Florida A&M. He started in journalism the following footsteps of his father, Roy Wood Sr., who covered the Civil Rights Movement. During Black History Month this year, I hosted the screening of the movie Till. The story of Emmett Till and his mother is a story of a family's promise and loss and a nation's reckoning with hate, violence, and abuse of power. It's a story that was seared into our memory and our conscience, the nation's conscience, when Mrs. Till insisted that an open casket for her murdered and maimed 14-year-old son be the means by which he was transported. She said, let the people see what I've seen. The reason the world saw what she saw was because of another hero in this story, the black press. That's a fact. She had magazine, the Chicago Defender, another black radio and newspapers, along flinching and brave and making sure America saw what she saw. I mean it. Ida B. Wells. Ida B. Wells once said, and I quote, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon the wrongs. Turn the light of truth upon the wrongs. That's the sacred view in my view. That's the sacred charge of a free press, and I mean that. That's what someone we still miss so much, we honor posthumous light, stood for. Gwen Eiffel. You know, she was among the very best we talked about at the table. 
She moderated my first debate for vice president. I was a trusted voice for millions of Americans. Gwen understood the louder the noise, the more it's on all of us to cut through the noise to the truth. The truth matters. As I said last year at this dinner, a poison is running through our democracy and parts of the extreme press. Truth buried by lies and lies living on as truth. Lies toll for profit and power. Lies of conspiracy and malice repeated over and over again. Designed to generate a cycle of anger, hate, and even violence. A cycle that emboldens history to be buried, books to be banned, children and families to be attacked by the state, the rule of law and our rights and freedoms to be stripped away. Where elected representatives of the people are expelled from state houses for standing for the people. I made clear that we know in our bones, and you know it too, our democracy remains at risk. But I've also made it clear, as I've seen throughout my life, it's within our power, each and every one of us, to preserve our democracy. We can, we must, we will. I'd like to make a toast if I had a class. <laughs> My grandfather, Ambrose Finnegan, said, if you ever make a toast without liquor, you got to hold it in your left hand. <laughs> you all think I'm kidding. I'm not. I'm probably the only Irish you ever met and never had a drink in his life. Anyway, I'd like to make a toast, seriously. At this inflection point in history, let us commit there will be a nation that will embrace light over darkness, truth over lies, and finally, 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 restore the soul of the nation. Hear, hear. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, can I give you that? Yes. I'm going to uh, turn us over to Roy. Roy, the podium is yours. I'm going to be fine with your jokes, but I'm not sure about dark branding. TV. 
that degree from Florida A&M University is in broadcast journalism. And while pursuing comedy, Roy spent 13 years in morning radio in Birmingham, Alabama, at the same station where his father, a pioneering radio journalist, once worked. Without further ado, let's give it up for Roy Wood Jr. Drag Race. 
All right, we say good luck to you, George. Sashay away. And also, speaking of drag queens, can, can we stop with the grooming stuff? Can you stop talking about that? Drag queens are not at a school to groom your kids. Stop it. And even if they were, most of them kids going to get shot at school. It ain't no problem. Don't wrong pass legislation. <laughs> I think boom's gonna bother me. I'm like, oh my Mitch McConnell, I ain't got no soul. <laughs> so tumultuous time in the media though. We got layoffs everywhere. BuzzFeed News, NPR, Axios, Washington Post, ESPN. Paramount Global right now is considering offers from Byron Allen and Tyler Perry to purchase BET. That's how bad it is out there. These companies are so broke, they're giving BET back to black people. <laughs> Which, by the way, is not what we meant when we said black people wanted reparations. We meant cash. You can give it to us in the area took in the 20s. <laughs> but tonight, we're all unified under one thing, and that's scandal. <laughs> Scandals. Scandals have been devouring careers this year. The untouchable. Tucker Carlson is out of a job. Yeah. Okay. Some people celebrate it. But to Tucker's staff, I want you to know that I know what you're feeling. I work at The Daily Show, so I too have been blindsided by the sudden departure of the host of a fake news program. <laughs> Got caught up like that dude from Vanderpump Rules. Text message said, I don't know what Vanderpump Rules is about. I just watched it a couple times. My friends told me it's like BMF, but for white people. Or is that secession? No, secession is power for white people. No, Tucker Carlson is power for white people. No, that's white power. You know, never mind. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. We got to get Tucker back on the air, Mr. President, because right now there's millions of Americans that don't even know why they hate you. <laughs> Fox claimed Dominion conspired with the Democrats to rig the election. And the Democrats should be flattered that they thought that y'all were smart enough to rig an election. <laughs> Warnock needed a runoff to be the werewolf. <laughs> but it's not over for you, Fox News. You still got bad, more bad news coming down the pipe. That Smartmatic voting machine lawsuit is coming. That's right, Smartmatic is coming for you, and they want more money than me. Matter of fact, let me just say right now, my favorite voting machine is the Smartmatic voting machine. If your election needs the truth, put Smartmatic in your booth. <laughs> but I think it's fair that we should give credit where credit is due. Tucker Carlson is the first host to get fired from Fox News for something that's only partially about how he treats women. That's progress. He shattered the asshole ceiling. <laughs> Speaking of assholes, Don Lemon is out of the job. <laughs> Don Lemon, my dog Don Lemon, Don Lemon.
Letterman released a statement saying he got fired from CNN. Then CNN released a statement saying that they offered Don a meeting. They had to part ways because Don Lemon can't even accurately report a story about Don Lemon. <laughs> I still think that Don deserved more, CNN. That ain't how you fire somebody. It's messed up. How funny is it that you work in the news, then watch on the news that you got fired from the news? <laughs> Don Lemon is now the most obnoxious guy in the history of CNN. That's not fair. Even Jeffrey Tubin looking at Don Lemon like, oh, he rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> Letting Don go was the wrong move. You shouldn't have let him go. Not this soon, CNN. First off, Don was fine when y'all was letting him drink. You shouldn't have cut off his liquor. You don't fire your host after the first couple of scandals. Let the scandals, the scandals got to stack up. You got to get, some, you got to get ratings. Yes, Don Lemon was a diva, and he said a couple of women are raggedy in the face, but that's a promotion at Fox News. <laughs> but I ultimately understand why CNN did what they did. And get it, it's about morals. There should be no place on air for someone who speaks with wild disregard that doesn't consider the blowback to their coworkers or their company. Thankfully, CNN is taking steps in the right direction. You got rid of Don Lemon, and they've now given a show to Charles Barkley. <laughs> to Charles Barkley's co-host, Gail King, we say good luck. <laughs> I think it's going to be a good show. The whole show is going to be Charles Barkley saying something crazy, then Gail King looking into the camera, Charles. Charles. Scandals. That's what connects us. So many scandals. The king of scandals, President Donald Trump. And for, for, for just for a moment, can we just all acknowledge, can we just all be honest and just say that the Trump arrest didn't hit like we thought it was going to hit? We're so desensitized to scandals now. That Trump arrest, it didn't do what I thought it was going to do. The Trump arrest was like a pot brownie you ate four hours ago. And you're like, hmm, do I feel justice? This don't feel like justice. Hmm. Let me try one of them Georgia arraignment brownies. Maybe that'll be. Okay, that one's that's got some kick to it. <laughs> Can't follow Trump scandals. There's too many Trump scandals to keep up with. Keeping up with Trump scandals is like watching Star Wars movies. You gotta watch the third one to understand the first one. Then the, you gotta, you can't miss the second one because it's got Easter eggs for the fifth one. Donald Trump is the only politician whose scandals got spinoffs on Disney Plus. <laughs> but the Trump arrest, it made everybody question what they believe. You thought you leaned one way politically, then Trump got locked up. Everybody started waffling. Put Republicans between a rock and a hard place. Donald Trump got locked up for years. All Republicans, all they've been saying for years, we got to get tough on crime. Trump got arrested. We meant black crime. <laughs> Same thing with the liberals, too. Liberals is all confused after Trump got arrested. We got to abolish prison. Trump got arrested. Bring back rappers. <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but for me, um, the easiest scandal to follow 
was the Trump document scandal. That was the one that was easy to follow. It was simple. There's some stuff that's supposed to be in the White House that ain't. And the media, y'all did y'all's job. Y'all jumped on that story. As soon as the Trump document story broke, everybody was down to Mar-a-Lago. We were reporting live from the documents. Everyone was finding them. And then we found out Joe Biden had documents, too. And it was like, oh, it's not a big deal. that could use the scandal is Ron DeSantis. That boy is just running around just passing every controversial law he can think of thinking that's going to activate voters. That's not how you activate voters in this country, Ron. Everybody knows how you do politics. This is America. We don't pass laws. You make a promise to voters and then you don't do it. That's what the great leaders in this room understand. You know how to make things not happen. The only thing, the only thing Ron DeSantis has done that I gotta give him credit for, this boy that got people riled up over stuff they can't understand. Don't nobody, they don't know what critical race theory is. Get these people riled up about something that they can't even define, like crypto or NFTs. Any Republican that's anti-CRT, ask any Republican trying to explain CRT. They sound like a Democrat trying to explain the charges against Trump. <laughs> it's bad. They're everywhere. We just gotta stop it. We gotta stop it. We got the files. We got files. We'll be right back. I'm Rachel Maddow. I have files. <laughs> Rachel Maddow get them files on you. It's a wrap. <laughs> I think Republicans, y'all would be surprised, man, if y'all would just be real about what CRT is. You can be surprised. Some black folks might might meet you halfway. But you got to tell the truth. You can't lie to black people. Call it what it is. Anti-CRT policies are an attack on black history and an attempt to erase the contributions of black people from the history books. That's what it is. You are trying to erase black people, and a lot of black people wouldn't mind some of that erasure as long as that black person is Clarence Thomas. (laughs) Billionaire named Harlan Crowe is flying Clarence Thomas all over the world on unreported trips like an Instagram model taking Clarence to the Maldives and the beaches and all that. This billionaire paid for Clarence Thomas' mama's house. I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta give it up to billionaires. Billionaires, boy, y'all, y'all are. Y'all, y'all always come up with something new to buy. Like just when you think of everything you could buy on Earth, a billionaire will come up with a new thing. Y'all can buy space rockets. You bought Twitter. This man bought a Supreme Court justice. Do you understand how rich you have to be to buy a Supreme Court, a black one, on top of that? There's only two in stock. And Harlan Crow owns half the inventory. We can all see Clarence Thomas, but he belongs to billionaire Harlan Crow. And that's what an NFT is. (laughs) 
<laughs> Everybody's got some scandals, though. Despite the challenging times we live in, I look around this room and I see people that are hardworking. Many of you, I don't even think you should be working that hard. We should be inspired by the events in France. They rioted when the retirement age went up two years to 64. They rioted because they didn't want to work till 64. Meanwhile, in America, we have an 80-year-old man begging us for four more years of work. Begging. Begging. Let me finish the job. That's not a campaign slogan. That's a plea. Let me finish. Let me finish. I do. I do wish you the best of luck on the campaign trail, Mr. President. Um, you got a lot of things that you're going to have to navigate. A lot of hurdles. We've had quite a few scandals. You know, we know. We know about the documents. We know about the laptops. But there's been no scandal more damaging than the scandal of is Joe Biden awake? Hey, say what you want about our president, but when he wake up from that nap, work gets done. <laughs> he might doze off with his mm, infrastructure bill. <laughs> mm, student loan forgiveness. Uh, mm, did we free Britney Grind or free Britney Grind? <laughs> insulting scandal to fall to the feet of the Biden administration was placed at the feet of our Madam Vice President. The scandal of what does Kamala do? <laughs> Which is a disrespectful question. That's a disrespectful question because nobody ever asked that question of the Vice President until a woman got the job. <laughs> Tonight, 
Tonight is all about you all. The journalists, the defenders of free speech, the people who show truth to the world through different mediums, through television, through print, through radio, through whatever China let us see on TikTok. <laughs> but the industry that covers all of these scandals isn't immune to them themselves. The issue with good media is that most people can't afford that. All the essential fair and nuanced reporting, it's all stuck behind a paywall. People can't afford rent. People can't afford food, not healthy food. They can't afford an education. They damn sure can't afford to pay for the truth. Seems you want to buy a conspiracy theory, but at least it's affordable. I mean, well, unless you're Alex Jones, it'll cost you about nine hundred million. And I understand that we have to put the stuff behind the paywall because creating the truth is important. People can't afford the truth, but you all can't afford to go find the truth for free. The work you do as journalists is important, it's essential, it's dangerous. My father was an embedded reporter on the front lines with black platoons in Vietnam. He was in the South African Soweto riots and covered that. Civil War in Rhodesia, which we know today is Zimbabwe. My father came back home and co-founded the National Black Network because he wanted to tell black stories. So American Urban Radio Network's now, and they've been doing it 50 years, and that's part of what my father wanted to build. You know, and I know it was hard because you know black daddies love telling you when something was was difficult. <laughs> Shooting at me, boy, I, I, I never dropped my tape recorder. <laughs> my daddy tell war stories like Brian Williams. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lester Hope didn't laugh at that one. Okay, sad one. <laughs> Good journalism costs. That's the truth of the matter. Good journalism costs the people, but it also costs the journalists. It could even cost you your freedom. We talked about Evan of the Wall Street Journal sitting in a Russian prison as we speak on espionage charges. Which espionage charges, by the way, that's the foreign equivalent of saying someone fits the description. Evan and hundreds of journalists, they're imprisoned all over the world simply for doing their job. And we gotta defend brave journalists. Most of the national stories in this country at some point were first a local story. Those stories are championed by reporters at outlets that many of them have now folded. And if we can't figure out a way to pay local reporters, then as a country, we're only left with that many more blind spots to where the bull is happening. You hear about all these newsrooms getting cuts. That's every article that Tamara has been sending me the last two months. It's just the new room is getting cut. We're cutting people. We're cutting budgets. But you never hear about the multi-million dollar executives reducing their salaries within these organizations. Now, how do we fix this? I don't know. I'm a comedian. I was just up here. <laughs> It's not my job to have the solution. That's on y'all. <laughs> but local local reporting is very important. My mother is here tonight. And I know she's furious right now because I'm trying to put on camera, but 
My mother was amongst a group of black student protesters fighting for equality in the 60s at Delta State University. And that was a dangerous time. But those types of incidents were covered by local reporters and some of the shame that came from the national embarrassment of treating people inhumanely is part of the pressure that helped to create that type of change. What would have become of my mother and those other protesters if a local journalist wasn't there telling the story? And now it's no different. But thankfully, my mother's story was told. She got to complete her degree at Delta State and continued on to Florida A&M and got another degree. And then for the last 45 years, has worked at a historically black college as an educator and administrator. And one of those many black colleges that made a little bit more funny. You got a 20 on your show. Send that down one of the black colleges. Uh, to my mom, I say thank you for everything you've done for me and for helping countless students in Birmingham have the opportunity to see a college degree and to see an opportunity to grow, you know. may not have even begun if not for brave journalists who chose to chronicle history in real time. And I don't know how to ever repay my mom for what she's done for me and what she's done for so many people in Alabama. But just know, Mama, if if a white billionaire called you and offered to buy your house, please sell it. Because <laughs> I might want to become an NFT. Thank you so much to the Correspondents Association. Thank you so much to Tamara Keith. Thank you all so much for that. And with that, we are continuing our coverage of the White House Correspondents Center. You just heard there both uh, President Joe Biden and Roy Wood Jr. Uh, concluding their remarks for the evening. Uh, Wide-ranging um, speech by both uh, Roy Hold on, everybody. Get to the other one just a second. Probably have been different because Mullen's story was that important in getting the conviction. Right. One second. Um, hmm. Um, da-dum, 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 da-dum. Huh. Um, to dum to run. Um, okay. What can I say? It's time for us to play one more thing. I have with Rama. Um, 
Well, let's see. I could read something. I could. This is something from the past a little bit, but it's called The Alchemy of the Aquarian Age. The Empowered Light Bearers of the World. Might be worth a try. We have all been through so much, and yet a new request. Let's see. Ron? Can, we can, we got just enough time to play one more half hour piece. If you're ready, I, you can do that. Okay. Let's see. How about we play one of these pieces? All right. Um. Oh, let's see. Mm. What shall I play? Ah, mm-hmm. uh, really quickly. How oh, well, oh. <laughs> I'm getting lingered. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm. what about the cosmic plan? Well, that one's too long. It's too long. Mm. How about when I met them? The Ark of Time. Um, when I met them, the Ark of Time. Don't stop looking. This was the first message Ricardo received that led him on a nearly three decade long investigation of UFOs and ET-related phenomena. thought I had... Very sorry that I thought mm. I had recorded something there that... Guess I didn't. It just got lost in the wind. Um. It's okay. We will just have to I could also play a piece of music. Are you ready? Um, Rainbird, do you want to comment on what we heard so far? <laughs> Rainbird? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, no, I mean. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> hey, you, you see what I got? You've got to hurry up and get it. Right here. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm not there. Yes, I'll read this up. Don't stop looking. This was the first message Ricardo received that led him on a nearly three-decade-long investigation of UFOs and ET-related phenomena. Mm-hmm. In this episode, Ricardo introduces us to some of the most influential people in the Ibero-American ufology movement, 
a movement that spans more than 50 years. Characters like Carlos and and Sixto Paz Wells, Grupo Rama, J.J. Benitez, journalist and best-selling anchor, Maria del Socorro Perez, a.k.a. Marla, Enrique Castillo Rincón, Maruja Soler de Acervo, José Carlos Paz, Garcia and mm. Fabio Zepa. Not only are these individuals witnesses, contactees, and researchers, rather they have also developed the techniques known today as contact protocols and propose the technology. <sighs> Did you find it, honey? Yeah. Oh, good. Of close encounters of the fourth and fifth type. These extraordinary experts also created institutes such as the IPRI, the Peruvian Institute of Interplanetary Relations, the first ufology research group in all of America, and published books such as UFOs, SOS to Humanity, which promoted the CE5 protocols and the creation of contact groups throughout Latin America in the 1970s. Let's just start it, Dale, because it's a time run. I think this will be a, a good okay. final piece. Hmm? Do you have the sound up? Yeah, I gotta put this sound up. Okay. There you go. Have conscious beings from other worlds and realities contacted us? Who are they? What are they looking for? Why don't they show themselves openly? I'm Ricardo Gonzalez Corpancho. Welcome aboard the Ark of Time. Talking about close encounters with non-human intelligences is a very controversial issue. It shatters all our paradigms. In this first episode of The Arc of Time, I've decided to address this exciting topic from my own personal experience. Those who know my story know that I affirm to have established communication with extraterrestrial intelligences, beings with human features similar to us, who I have been able to meet physically, even in the company of other witnesses. For nearly 30 years, I've been researching this phenomenon of close encounters. I've traveled the world searching for signs of them, and I've published my findings in more than 20 books. And I must say that, despite all this, I have more questions than answers. But how did it all start? At the end of the 1970s, When I was just a five-year-old boy, I saw them for the first time. It was at El Bosque Country Club 
which is on the outskirts of the city of Lima. A place for my family to relax on the weekends. I remember that we had stayed up very late and the stars were already twinkling in the mountain sky. That's when I saw some lights moving over the hills and then in the sky. They would change speed and direction erratically as if they were playing a game. At such a young age, I didn't have the slightest idea of what I had just witnessed. In fact, you're now looking at some pictures from back then, one of them with my father at the country club I mentioned. I remember that these first experiences were accompanied by dreams that were strange, very lucid, very clear, where I saw myself in the garden of our house talking to, although this sounds like a delirium, an extraterrestrial child, a bald child with big eyes who had descended in a type of metallic egg, you could say. He was a kind of cosmic friend. Was it just a child's imagination triggered by the sightings of these lights? After these first experiences, there was a long silence until the summer of 1988. On that occasion, the sightings that I witnessed in Lima happened in broad daylight. It was a very shiny object that moved silently towards the Pacific Ocean. Seeing it, I admit that I experienced a wonderful feeling in my chest, a strange joy, as if I had always known all of this. I was not the only witness. Throughout that year, 1988, different media outlets in Peru reported sightings all over the country. That's when I started to investigate. But I must admit that after a time, I gave up my ambitions to find out more about UFOs. I had completed my education and started out in the marketing profession. My concerns about UFO mysteries seemed to take a back seat to the cares of everyday life. However, the tipping point would occur shortly thereafter in 19... 1993. I was a young man of almost 19 when they returned, and this time they were here to stay. I was studying at a desk in my room, my bedroom. I had to take some statistics and accounting exams. And like every young person who is in college, you try to close your books, close your notebooks, and try to relax for a while. Some people drink coffee, others listen to music. Music. I fell asleep from the exhaustion. I was in a state of catnapping. And it was at that moment that a voice in my own language and perfect Spanish broke the silence. Speaking to me very slowly and calmly in my head, telling me in a metallic tone, don't stop searching. We are extraterrestrial beings who are making contact with you. You will go through preparation and later you can meet us physically. Obviously, I was surprised, astonished, stunned. I couldn't believe that something like this had happened. I asked myself, have so many hours of studying notes and books left me dazed? Had that triggered something in my imagination? And that's when this voice resurfaced. It arose again in my mind and asked me, do you need proof? Climb to the rooftop terrace of your house, and there you will see us. I had nothing to lose, and as I have said in different interviews and in the media, I went up to the terrace. Along with my family, we saw a luminous object that emitted very bright, reddish energy. 
descend on the house without making any noise at all. We were all astonished. The object then moved toward the mountains, Lima's mountain range, and we lost sight of it. A few days later, media outlets spoke of a wave of UFO sightings in Peru. That is to say that this alleged mental contact with an intelligence that introduced themselves as an extraterrestrial had been confirmed with a sighting. But who were these beings? Where did they come from? How could I find answers about what had happened to me? Something incredible happened. After this amazing encounter with the UFO on the terrace of my house in the city of Lima, I was on my way to the testing center to take the exams that I mentioned. I was crossing a bridge in the Miraflores area, which is where I went to school, when a woman, right in the middle of the Benavides bridge, an older woman approached me, and out of nowhere she asked me, do you know that the brothers of the cosmos are waiting for you to make a decision? I was surprised. How is it that this woman knew that I had just witnessed with my family the appearance of an object over my house? And this experience was preceded by an alleged telepathic message. This woman immediately gave me a handout, a flyer, announcing a series of presentations in Lima on the UFO phenomenon. Although it sounds dreamy, I took it as a sign. I decided to to follow my intuition and I went to that ufology conference in Lima and there I heard other testimonials other people who also affirmed to have had these same close encounters these inexplicable sightings and experiences I, I continued my research and I tried to understand what was happening to me that's how it all started that is how I discovered that these contacts had been happening in Peru since ancient times. I was one of many contact witnesses. I was able to track that this program of communicating with non-human beings had begun in the Andean region of Ancash. I'm referring to a very concrete case that I have disseminated worldwide, the mystery of those called the Apunians. I traveled repeatedly to the Andes attempting to trace this story, a story that had begun with ordinary witnesses, sheep herders and farm people of the Blanca mountain range. According to my research, there were reports of close encounters with beings with human features, described as quite tall, over six and a half feet in stature. These creatures, men and women, dressed in a kind of metallic suit, tightly fitting their slender and proportionate bodies. Appearing in the Andean highlands, between 13 and 16,000 feet in altitude, these sheep herders and farmers of Ancash that I mentioned had met with them. And seeing that these beings came out of the mountains, they called them, as I said, Apunians. The term Apu is ancient. It is native Quichua, meaning something like protector a belief that has been maintained until today in Peru to describe the energy of protection from the mountains. And since these beings had emerged from those mountains, the farmers called them the messengers of the Apus, 
or Apunians, but they actually were an advanced extraterrestrial civilization, which, according to their messages, had settled in the Blanca mountain range of Ancash thousands of years ago. They had underground bases within the great snow-capped mountains, among them Huascaran. I dare to say that close encounters in Peru started back then, in the decade of the 1950s. Some researchers, such as Richard Greenwell, lived in Peru and echoed these news, publishing books and articles about UFO sightings in the Peruvian Andes. Above all, an image from the 1960s where some objects appear, right in the area that I'm describing, the Blanca mountain range. These are the Yungay UFOs. These images, which date back to 1967, would have taken place someplace in these mountains, were widely reported in the media. In addition to Greenwell, U.S. Air Force Colonel Wendell Stevens, as well as the Spanish journalist and researcher J.J. Benitez, investigated this case. They came to the conclusion that the images were authentic. According to Ankar's contact witnesses, these beings were trying to get people's attention because something incredible was going to happen in this region. And that was the case three years later with the great earthquake of 1970, which claimed the lives of over 50,000 people. It is believed that this incident, an intense seismic movement that caused an avalanche on the Blanca mountain range, could not be avoided by these extraterrestrials. But they were trying to create awareness in the people of these villages so that they could evacuate. One of the contact witnesses of that time, Vlado Kapitanovic, a Yugoslav who had fled from the Second World War to live in Peru, and worked as a plant technician at the hydroelectric plant in Huayanca, in Pato Canyon, he had spoken to the mayors and even to a justice of the peace and Yungay authorities, so that, according to the messages of these beings, the region could be evacuated. But they wouldn't listen to him, and Yungay was buried. That's when Vlado Kapitanovic decided to speak publicly to the Peruvian media about his close encounters with these beings. Kapitanovic, as I have said in other interviews, had been initiated by farmers and shepherds of Ancash, whom I mentioned. Then he broke his oath of silence that he had made with these humble people of Peru to tell his story. This was the beginning of public close encounters in Peru. In the 1950s and 60s, we find a lot of reports, not only of UFO sightings, but of close encounters. And Latin America was really a crucible for these experiences. And not only in Peru. For example, at the end of the 1960s, Maria del Socorro Perez, better known as Marta, affirmed to have had meetings with extraterrestrials in her native Mexico. She combined the information that she had received from these beings with her research in spiritual and esoteric groups and created a preparation system based on techniques for concentration, meditation, 
including information that allowed her to help people to heal. It is well known in Mexico that Magla offered seminars to doctors and specialists to help them with this information that she had received from extraterrestrial entities. Magla's information also reached South America and other parts of the world affecting the first Spanish-speaking contact groups. A very specific case is that of Costa Rican engineer Enrique Castillo Rincón, who, at the end of the 1960s, observed unidentified flying objects in Costa Rica, where he was working as a telecommunications engineer. Later, his work took him to Venezuela and to Colombia, and it was there that he prepared himself, thanks to marvelous techniques based on concentration and meditation that a woman had taken to Colombia, a woman named Karenka. These concentration and meditation techniques that, in modern ufology, some now call close encounters of the fifth type or the sci-fi protocol, already existed in Latin America for many decades. Following these techniques, Enrique Castillo Rincón managed to receive a message to experience a close encounter invited by the extraterrestrials in the month of November 1973. It was then that he went to a predetermined area in Colombia, which is secret and no one knows about, an area where there was a lagoon, and there he met beings with human features who allowed him to board their ships. Castillo Rincón is considered one of the most important contact witnesses of Latin America. He has been researched by important scholars like J. Allen Hynek and Dr. Jacques Vallée. And in fact, according to the testimony of Enrique Castillo Rincón, back then he was administered sodium pentothal, also known as truth serum, here in the United States. And he could not have lied about his close encounters with Chromacon, Christamark, and other entities who, allegedly, came from Pleiades. You may wonder, and how is all of this related? These alleged close encounters in Mexico or in Colombia with Castillo Rincón with the story I'm narrating from Peru, because groups came to Lima linked by this information, the techniques for contact, for meditation, to generate extraordinary states of consciousness to seek out a message with these beings. They interacted with the first ufology research group in all of the Americas. I'm referring to the Peruvian Institute of Interplanetary Relations, a very pompous name, the IPRI, which had been founded by the great researcher Jose Carlos Paz Garcia Corrochano. It was then that this information became part of this ufology group which began to try to receive messages or communication according to the protocol that Enrique Castillo Rincón and his groups had followed already in 1972 and 1973. But that's not all. In a place which today is famous in Peru, Chilca, which is located about 37 miles south of Lima, Maruja Soler de Acervo, the lady of the desert, as we call her, was having contact experiences. It was the decade of the 1960s, and at the end of that decade, she began to receive messages and communication and to have paranormal-type unexplained experiences in her home in Papaleon 13 
in Chilca. Her gripping experience happened between 1970 and 1972. And that's when Maruja, as she was known, or Maru, decided to ask for help, for someone to explain what was happening to her. And she asked her son, Juan Acherbo, to go to the IPRI that I mentioned, the Peruvian Institute of Interplanetary Relations, to try to get some type of advice or information. Juan Acherbo approaches Jose Carlos Paz Garcia and tells him, my family's receiving messages, having sightings, experiences in the area of Chilca. This information is historical because from the syncretism of experiences is born, at least according to my research, what is called the Rama Group, one of the most important extraterrestrial contact movements in the history of Ibero-America. It started in the summer of 1974 with brothers Carlos and Sixto Paz Wells, two authentic contact witnesses who, as teenagers, 18 or 19 years old, received messages, communications like those received earlier by Maruja Soler de Acherbo or Castillo Rincón, and they met in Chilca, in fact, in the summer home of the same Maruja Soler de Acherbo. And there is where the sightings and experiences happened, but all this activity was limited to the environment of the contact groups. The message still needed to reach more people. That's when Carlos Paz Wells, Charlie, as he was known back then, received an important message from an extraterrestrial entity who called himself Pulba, an Apunian, like those described in the reports from Ancash in the Peruvian Andes. And this entity allowed him to invite the Spanish journalist, J.J. Benitez, to go out into the desert on September 7, 1974, and verify the appearance of these objects through a prearranged contact appointment. That is, these beams indicated on what day, at what time, and in what concrete place they were going to appear. The sighting occurred, and when J.J. Benitez returned to Spain, he published his first book, UFOs and SOS to Humanity. It wasn't the first book he wrote, but it was the first that was published. It became a bestseller, and then there began to emerge different contact groups throughout Latin America. This story, which may be unknown to many, which did not start in Peru, but in different countries, and it has followed a common thread. A common thread where yours truly is just one of many contact witnesses of this exciting story that continues on. Investigating all this, it was evident that I was just one of very many witnesses who had come into contact with those beings. And it was precisely there in the Chilca Desert when I saw them for the first time. August 30th, 1997 was the first time I saw one of these beings, who we know as Apunians, face to face. I had been invited to the desert of Chilca. I went out with a very small group. For these beings, it is easier to initiate communication or have an experience with individuals, a few people, or small groups. They say their proximity can affect our psyche in an unpredictable way, and they don't want to destroy our social context as we face a contact, which obviously breaks through our paradigms 
and the type of life that we usually live. They only contact certain people who they consider will be able to endure these types of experiences, who have some type of resilience, and that the experience itself will not drastically affect their social or family life. And I want to carefully point out that I'm only referring to this type of close encounter because there are different experiences. I'm talking about close encounters with beings with human features, whose intentions are friendly, pleasant, ethical, positive, according to our perception, who have tried to respect our observations about these incredible experiences. With that contact, in fact, when we were camping in the desert, there in Chilca, objects first appeared floating over our camp, zigzagging, emitting large flashes of light, which even lit up the ground. A light that seemed to have some type of weight or density that would fall to the ground. And when you lowered your hands to the desert floor, to the ground, and you picked up the dirt with your fingers, you would have the light in your hands. It was a strange light that these objects produced. That's when a mental voice asked me to come closer to the area of a ravine in Chilka, where we were camping. You could hear some very loud metallic sounds clank, clank, over and over. It really scared us. It really got our attention. Imagine, in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the night, listening to those strange sounds, clank, clank, over and over. It was remarkable. Then, I saw a very tall silhouette moving toward our camp. I approached it, despite being very nervous, of course. When I arrived, I would say about 80 or 100 feet from that figure. I would estimate that it was at least eight feet tall. Truly a giant. This being with human features was dressed in a type of metallic silvery suit. I could see the color because a ring of light illuminated the ground around his feet which traveled from the ground up. As if he had done this deliberately so I could see him more clearly and maybe to test my emotions, how I would react to the experience. That minimalist suit covered him completely, just leaving his hands and his face uncovered. I can't describe it in more detail because I was some distance away, but it was a human face of what seemed to be a younger man, maybe 35, 37 years of age. This being, who introduced himself as Antarel, asked me to accompany him towards an object that had arisen from the bottom of the hills, floating about 100 feet off the ground, giving off a dim, golden light. I was so nervous, not just because I felt that these beings had hostile or negative intentions, but because it was so strange, so different. It was the first time that it had happened to me, that I didn't dare take one more step. That's when this entity, Antarel, who I mentioned, told me in perfect Spanish in my mind to stay calm, and when I was better prepared, we would resume the contact and accompany them inside their ships. Then he left. I went back to the camp, the ship lit up, rose above the desert, 
we all saw when the object left. And I remember that it left a big emotional impact on me. I broke down in tears because I had missed out, at least at that time, on the experience of a lifetime. But I was also left with a feeling of peace upon seeing these beings. Like I was saying, at least those who have contacted us behaved appropriately toward us. They had seen that we did not have sufficient preparation. It was like a test, a trial. Our emotions took over, and they decided to postpone the contact. That is, we would have to go through, as I was told in the first message, a training, a kind of preparation to break through our mental paradigms about extraterrestrial contact in order to have these experiences. But why me? Why us? ordinary people who aren't important at all from such a humble country as Peru considered a developing country why not contact an important scientist or a high-ranking military officer highly credible witnesses it's not that they haven't done that the thing is that those highly credible witnesses fear derision and questioning okay we got it almost. It's okay. We got it. <laughs> They're here, everybody. What do you say, Rama? Uh, ditto. <laughs> <laughs> and we're here. And it's a really good time to be alive. And I'll just say that, uh, inshallah, that may peace be upon us all over the world um, and thank you for this time together again and it's time for peace Om peace <laughs> Sat Nam Sat Nam Ki Namaste and maybe just real quick We'll give Cheryl's phone number for tomorrow. It's really a good time to come together and affirm, affirm the time for peace. And this is exactly what we do on uh, Sunday evenings and Monday evenings. So here we go. Just a moment. Where is that number? Here it is. All right. That number is 425-436-6260 and uh, 946-7441-POUND. And Rainbird, you got anything to share? Oh, just to say thank you for tonight, and yeah, looking forward to Cheryl's call tomorrow. <laughs> yes, yeah, all right. Sounds that starts around seven o'clock our time, uh, Mountain Time, nine o'clock Eastern Time. So see you there for about oh, about three hours. Okay, Namaste, Aloha. <laughs>